You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Happy New Year, Will. Happy New Year, David. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to the Common Descent Podcast. Here we are again at the end of a year. This time it's 2023, and it is a time for the end of the year Q&A. As always. As always, this is our end of the year tradition. We had a form open for a month so that you, the listeners, could submit questions, any kind of question that you would like us to answer. We got tons of submissions. We're going to answer as many of them as we can get through in as long as we have to tonight, to tonight <laughs> before the night is over, we will answer as many of these questions as we can. We will not get to all of the questions. Well, you can't answer Q&As past midnight. That's one of the rules. Right. Is if you answer them past midnight, they you, turn you can, in. You can't get them wet. They, yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's all the introduction. Let's just jump right into it yep. and start answering questions. We got a lot to do. The first question. Uh, this is a question that was actually submitted uh, by two different people. Emily and Jesse both asked, what was your favorite news piece from this year? Good question. Always a tricky one because we do so many news that it's easy to lose track of them. Yes. I, I had one. I, I said it. I have. We, we did oh, it. Yeah. We did an episode and I announced what it was. I, I, yep. I, I'll remember. No, it was the Egyptian snakes news. Yes. Yes. It was the one where they looked, they were looking at the ranges of snakes during the time of ancient Egypt and comparing it to the Brooklyn papyrus to determine which snakes might have been present in that region at that time to bite and envenomate ancient Egyptians. Yes. Which is awesome. Such a cool study. I think mine would have to be the parthenogenic crocodile. Oh yeah. Because uh, that's fantastic and, and fascinating like that that's a brand new crocodile fact a thing that they do yeah that a thing we now know about that's completely brand new that's awesome good choice mm-hmm. next up we have cloudy who asks what is your favorite mass extinction oh morbid yeah oh that's that's interesting it's so, I mean, it's really hard not to just say the end Cretaceous mass extinction. It, it does, it is the one with the big space rock. It's the one with the big space rock, and it's the one with all the best animals there. Sorry, everybody else. <laughs> and it's the one we know the most about. Yes. And it's the one that is most often studied. It is a very dramatic and exciting mass extinction. So as much as I'd like to, you know, spread some attention and joy to the lesser known and no less fascinating the end Triassic, which is a really good, important one. The end Permian, of course. But as I mean, listen, it's the end Cretaceous mass extinction is the T-Rex of mass extinctions. Literally. It, 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 it is. It is the one with the T-Rexes. Uh, it's the one everybody always talks about. But also, yeah, it's really cool. I have always had a soft spot, for though, for the great dying. The Permian. The Permian. That. Mm-hmm. That, that title is pretty impressive. They had to give it a cool title because it's not the KPG. Extension. Yes. <laughs> that's how you get, that's how you get the publicity is you need an even better, you need a cool title. You need to be marketable. You need a good name. <laughs> Nobody cared who I was until they called me the great thing. <laughs> so I killed everything. <laughs> Rhonda asks, 
There are certain animals, bats for instance, for which a large chunk of evolutionary time is completely missing. If you could have this time suddenly found in the fossil record, which creature's hidden evolutionary time would you want revealed? I mean, bats is a really good answer. Bats is a great choice. That, that That's probably mine just because I did the bats episode, and so I've had True. that now, that little bit in the back of my brain ever since of like, boy, it would be nice to know what a... A, a not-quite-flighted bat looked like. Yeah. On a very similar note, uh, I am very tempted to choose pterosaurs. Yep. For similar reasons. How do you get that shape? How do you, How did you get into the air? How, for both these groups, how do you get that weird? How did you do that? Because that's did you, weird. How did you get up there? Also, uh, snakes yes. is sort of my obvious uh, selection. We don't know a lot about early snake evolution. That's another one that would be really cool to, to, to find. Yeah, see, I'd say Crocs, but we, with the Crocs, Crocs are doing all right. It's a pretty good. Yeah. It, Crocs don't have a, a, a huge gap in the mm-hmm. early fossil record. Uh, that, that sort of very obvious gap yeah. like we see with some of those other groups. Yeah. Good question. Next, Trainer Cambroda states, you are a Pokemon gym leader or Elite Four member. What type, if any, do you specialize in and what Pokemon are on your team? So... I have an answer to this question. Yeah. This isn't one like I have to think about it off the top of my head. I my it's steel type. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. my favorite type. I have steel. I have steel type, and I also know who my six members on my full team are. This is Steel Team Six, uh, who which I already know, and that's Steelix, Empoleon, Magnezone, Agron, Metagross, and Corviknight, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. who replaced Skarmory. Used to be Skarmory, and then Corviknight came out. That's a good replacement. Also, ever since I played Pokemon Legends, I've been wondering if Scizor belongs on this team, <laughs> because I, I, I found a, a connection with Scizor while playing Pokemon Legends, but I don't know, because uh, it, it feels like the, the, the top choice to remove would be Agron, but I don't want to remove no, Agron. Agron. Yeah, so it's it's a tough, it's a tough one. But that's my team. That's, that's still Team Six. That's a good team. <laughs> I have a harder time because the Croc types are all different types. Yeah. So you wouldn't have a type. If I could have a gym based off of the move Bite. Uh, oh, based then, on biting moves. Yes. Strong jaw Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Then yeah. Tyrantrum yeah. and Feraligatr and Crocodile. Yes. Yes. There. Yeah, that'd be good. Will and I did. <laughs> I'm sure we've talked about this. Yeah, well, because we, we posted them. We posted uh, them mm-hmm. on Facebook uh, where we did. This was during the pan, like early mm-hmm. pandemic. Where there was a Facebook meme chain thing going around that was comment below and your friend will assign you a type and to be, to and then you have to make a team for whatever type they gave you. And then Will and I had so much fun that we went through all the types and we made our own gym leaders uh, and it was tons of fun. And steel was the one I didn't have to think about. Yep. I already had it. If I had to pick one of those rock type where I just did all the fossil types and my guy was a paleontologist. Yep. Yep. That That's yep. probably the one. Which, <laughs> yep. Matt asks, why aren't there mammal semi-aquatic ambush predators like crocodiles? Were crocs just much more suited for filling that niche? That's a good question. Uh, there might have been in the past. Right. Uh, that has been suggested for things like Amblycetus, which is one of the ancestors to early whales, mm-hmm. that they they had kind of a crocky body shape with short limbs, long body, long face. Mm-hmm. And they were definitely predatory. And they they were the teeth. Semi-aquatic. They were semi-aquatic. So they could have been doing that. They also might have been more like otters, where they were still hunting in the water and then coming up on land to rest and stuff. So mm-hmm. there's other things they could have been doing with that body shape, but it's been suggested they might've been mammal crocs. 
Uh, and yeah, it very likely could just be that you'd be competing with Crocs on basically any continent you try to do that in. Yeah, the only other major group of organisms that has done that Croc thing that are outside of the Croc lineage mm-hmm. are early tetrapods, your early amphibians and stuff. And that was before Crocs. Yes. Since Crocodiliforms showed up, there hasn't really been other major groups. There are today like big salamanders and stuff, yeah. but they're not quite doing that ambushing from the water thing that crocs do yeah it might just be that the the pseudosuchian crocodiliforms lineage did it and that was just it yeah now there's no room anywhere because there's already a croc there but you'll see that behavior there's those catfish that hunt birds and they're hunting like Mm -hmm. crocs so you'll see things do that i'm pretty sure there are seals that'll try to pull things off of ice sure and that's basically the same thing it's not the sit and wait they're sneaking up on the sleeping seal or or whatnot but they are still hunting the same way of ambushing from the water so you will see the behavior but as far as that being the specialized thing yeah that's kind of just crocs jesse asks what were some of your favorite episodes this year good question now i have now we have to remember what episodes came out this year well and this is also the nice form of what your is what's some of your because then we can just give right. a... We just start listing We don't have episodes. to pick one favorite. Uh, sea Snakes. Sea Snakes and, was fun. And Marine Crocs mm-hmm. both came out this year. Yeah. That was this year's Croc and Snake Month. Right before that, Geologic Dating, yeah. which I was I was very excited to do. Yeah. Had a ton of fun putting together the Geologic Dating episode. That was 167. I really liked Sleep. Yeah, uh, 161. That was a lot of fun. I learned a ton. That was cool. Right after that, actually, 162 was Sicilians, Ooh, which yes. I was delighted to get to do. We're naming our own episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, because that's the, the ones that I'm going to have the favorite are the ones that I <laughs> learned everything. <laughs> yep. It's fresh, but yeah. 181 was Dragonflies, which I had a ton of fun putting together. Yep, yep, yep. Was the moon? When, when when did I do the moon? No. No, that was last year? That was a while ago. All right, cool. I don't know. I had time is an illusion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Those are, those are all good ones. Yeah, there's probably more. Braden asks, I perform educational outreach programs with animals to teach about biodiversity and the lifestyles and adaptations of various species, and I even have a program using fossils for my business. Am I a science communicator? If not, what makes one? Uh, you are absolutely a science communicator. You're communicating science. Yes. Presumably doing so in a responsible and effective way. Yes, absolutely. You are 100% part of SciComm. I, I do not deem that there is like a strict list of requirements that a person needs to check off mm-hmm. uh, to be a part of that, that title. As David, those, as you just said, as long as you're doing it responsibly, we will be proud to right, <laughs> welcome <yes>. you. Uh, <laughs> as long as you're a good science yes. communicator. Because you, you can be a science communicator and be irresponsible with it. <laughs> right. Uh, there's plenty of uh, sites online that do that, where they are a science site, mostly in name, and it's mostly sensational or just kitschy, fun stuff. But if you're using science to educate and you're doing so in a way that is in effective and inclusive and informative and you are communicating science in an accurate, up-to-date way, then, yeah, you're yes. communicating science. You're a science communicator, even if you don't have a title that is science communicator. Yes, uh, you do not need, like, a science degree and then to do education. Mm-hmm. And so, by by all means, all science teachers, all 
people working at scientific uh, uh, facilities or, or educational facilities dealing with science. You're science communicators. Yes. 100%. We've gotten this question, uh, the, the question on Q&As in the past of what what makes me a paleontologist or not? Mm-hmm. And very similar to our answers to that, uh, I don't, and I know you happen to agree with me, uh, we don't see a whole lot of value in drawing a hard line where it begins because that is exclusionary. Yes. And we want to be as inclusive as possible uh, and include as many people who are doing a good job as we can. Well, it's the only benefit I can ever potentially see is to refute someone who doesn't have those criteria and is doing a irresponsible job. Right. But that would be hypocritical because there's tons of people who have the correct titles and are also doing irresponsible (laughs) jobs. So, right. If we're not going to exclude them, then we shouldn't exclude the others. <laughs> so we can we can uh, judge people based on their credentials and performance. Yes. Uh, without quibbling over where the line is. Yes, exactly. Uh, who, who earns the title? Next, we have Ava. What is your opinion about academic life and academic careers nowadays in terms of opportunities, possibilities, and the future of science? Ooh. Uh, pretty good. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty good about it. It is... The, there are more opportunities and more possibilities now than probably there have ever been before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's still not perfect. Nope. There there are absolutely still barriers in academia and in science. There are still structures and systems in place that make it really difficult for certain groups of people, whether that is based on your sort of financial status mm-hmm. or your personal identity or your background or yeah. your heritage or whatever, where you're from. There are a number of barriers that make it hard for certain people to get access to academia, get access to science. There are also, uh, for sure, certain practices within academic circles that are not great. Yes. There are absolutely things about academia that can be very common, that are unhealthy. There are systems in place that make it very difficult for academic institutions or organizations to shed practices that they shouldn't have anymore or people that shouldn't be there anymore but those are things that are more and more visible that are being talked about more and more it's kind of it's funny because you'll be on like tiktok or instagram and you'll see people in academia complaining at length about academia Mm -hmm. and sometimes i'll see people who respond and who are like What's with all these complaints about, like, why is it, like, it's just everywhere, everyone's complaining about academia. And on the one hand, yeah, that it's very everywhere, it's very ubiquitous, and it can feel sort of repetitive or mimetic, like this is trending, literally trending. But also at the same time, it's a wonderful sign of the times that people feel like they can express those things yes. and can share those things and can talk openly about some of these problems that exist. So I think that there are certainly still things to work on and there are obstacles in people's way, but there are more opportunities and more people available to connect with to make things easier and better for people interested in getting involved. Yeah, it definitely seems to be on a trend of improving in those categories. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a tricky t- topic because people will be like, hey, should I go into this science? And I always want to say yes, because we want to be inclusive. We mm-hmm. want to welcome you. But also be aware it's going it, to, some of it's not great. Well, and <laughs> there, there are issues still to be faced. There's some things that, you know, some of those, those posts and you'll hear people complain about that. 
aren't anything really unique to academia of like, mm-hmm. there's politics because you're working in kind of an office setting. Sure. So like you have to deal with those, that kind of office politics a lot of the time. Right. That doesn't really have anything to do with the academia side of it, but that you're all using the same c- printer and break room and space that you, you end up being on top of fellow researchers getting on each other's nerves. So like some of it's just that, just work stuff or just, education yeah, stuff exactly. or just whatever country you're in mm-hmm. stuff. So, yeah, but so, I agree. I think it is getting better. Uh, the future looks good. Yeah. The future looks better in the past. Yes, it does. Jim asks, if you had superpowers, what would they be? And what name would you go by? Hero or villain? So uh, his name's Kitan. And he would be a hero. He has a symbiote, but it is an offspring from one of the uh, other symbiotes. And so it's a little bit different. And it is a hard version of the symbiote from the Marvel comics. So it's not gooey. It's more like sectioned armor, like Chitin. Mm -hmm. And so that's his name. And he would be a hero who models himself off of Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I've thought of this before. This is, this is your version <laughs> this is, of my yeah. uh, Pokemon gym leader team. I've drawn this guy. This <laughs> is my Spider-Sona, my Symbiote-Sona. Uh, this is this is my dude. That's awesome. I don't... Uh, we've talked about the superpowers question. Uh, I've never thought about what name I would... I never picture myself as being a hero. You're just having superpowers. I'm just having superpowers. Yeah. Well, you're just like a mutant who hasn't joined the X-Men. Right. Yeah. Well, because I either have very practical superpowers, in which case I have the powers of Multiple Man mm-hmm. from Marvel Comics, who is a mutant, who can duplicate himself uh, and then do many, many things at once, which sounds delightful to me, which I would use to benefit myself yes. uh, personally. Or I have uh, telekinesis and I can be Magneto or Mewtwo and uh, be super powerful, in which case I would use it. I I would help people, but also I'd have to perpetually fight the urge to go out into the world and correct the wrongs. The two examples you used of Magneto and Mewtwo. Listen, they, yeah, (laughs) I am. (laughs) You might, that would raise some concerns when you, when you're applying for the X-Men when they're like, now who did you say? You were, uh. You were get, modeling yourself off get of... Get myself a shirt that says Magneto was right. <laughs> M&M. <laughs> Milo the Biohazard asks, What creatures would you choose to do a cute E episode on for each spooky topic? Oh, that this is fun. Very fun. Uh, if, we, if we retroactively mm-hmm. added a cute E episode to each year of spooky... If we had been we, doing it. Which we might someday. Oh, yeah. Like, that'd that, be a really cool thing to do. That could happen. But off the top of our heads, so year one, classic movie monsters. Yes. I feel like uh, Gremlins could be a fun one. Oh, yeah, that would be cool. Do a Mogwai, which is kind of half cr- cutie, half spooky. Yeah, or like Trolls, something yeah. something in that range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Season two, Greek monsters. Greek monsters. Could be Pegasus. That's uh, true. Pegasus would be... There's lots of... There's lots of horses that could make it into various lists. Yeah. Uh, but Pegasus comes to mind... I guess there are things like satyrs, but those are like people. Uh, yeah, which is a little bit. Yeah, that that's getting out of that. Uh, uh, it's getting into that weird, you know, now is this a, should we be talking about their culture more than their evolution yep. sort of thing? Uh, year three was sea monsters. Sea monsters, which obviously suggests mermaids, but we've kind right. of done right. a little bit would of we, that. Would we do a, you know, redo of yes. mermaids or something? Because we did that, but digress, but we digressed so long ago. Or maybe we do. Maybe we we do a different. We pick one of like the the shark mermaids mm-hmm. or something weird Ooh, like selkies. that. Ooh, selkies! 
There you go. We could do Selkies. That'd be fun. <laughs> Year four was Plant Monsters. Yeah. That one. That one's a little tricky because we kind of exhausted a lot of the plant we monsters. We could do the killer fruits that we had talked about doing yep, yep. as a cute version of yeah, it as a goofy you know killer tomatoes being yep the silly uh uh version so there's that uh year five was dungeons and dragons monsters which there are so many options there are a lot of options but okay. like specific D specific creatures they're also like based in other mythologies mm-hmm. that it's hard to pick something specific this the the uh, uh quatoa Right? The silly fish people? Yes, yes, uh, We yes. did a fish people episode, yes. but that could be pretty fun. I think that that is uh, distinctly D&D. Yep, yep. Uh, flumph. Flumph. We'll do flumphs. <laughs> yes, there we go. <laughs> I'm good with that. Uh, and then this year, we we did a uh, cutie. Yep. Uh, for dragons. So Very fun to think about. Yeah. Anthony asks, what's the possibility of a new class of animals evolving in the future? Uh, I mean... There's definitely the possibility for stuff like that to happen as long as the split. That's one of those where it wouldn't happen like we find a new newly evolved thing and it is already in its own class. Right. It's a it's an odd way to think about it because classes don't really evolve. Yeah. We put class names on things. But if we if we were to jump however million years into the future and see what life there is, it could very well happen that a branch of rodents, you know, that naked mole rats mm-hmm. continued to diverge and be different so much so that they are so different from the remaining rodents at that time that we go at this point, it doesn't make sense to have you in the same class you were in. Right. Or we, we would we define can... this as a new class somewhere between the time we time traveled somewhere yes. in there you became a new class because you are just too different now. Yeah. So right now there are species on the planet that are part of what we would call a new class if we were in that future time. Yes, exactly. Like naked mole rats or like whatever. Because life just keeps branching and diversifying and expanding. uh, And where a class starts, we decide. Yeah. So that's something you can only really identify a new class in retrospect, mm-hmm. you won't be able to find something and go, this is becoming a new class right, right. now. Or it just did become, yeah, that doesn't happen. Next up, Teddy asks, do crocodile osteoderms help in absorbing sunlight and heat? If so, are there any other creatures that have done this in the past? Well, I'm glad you asked me this question <laughs> uh, while I'm on the receiving side of the question. Uh, as far as I know... Yes, yeah. they are thought to be helping in absorbing sunlight and heat. They're highly vascularized. Mm-hmm. Lots of blood vessels around there. And there are tons of other animals from the fossil record that also have big flat osteoderms, mm-hmm. like ankylosaurs, like other dinosaurs, that could very well have been doing something similar. Yeah, I'd be kind of surprised if we didn't find other, especially archosaurs that are, you know, bony skinned. Mm-hmm. that weren't like phytosaurs were super osteodermed and they're very croc like it'd be kind of yep. odd if they didn't have any of that so yeah i'd expect so and like we've talked about anything you have that has a big surface area can be helpful in thermoregulation so those ankylosaurs with like the big spikes and stuff those certainly could have been helping with uh heat absorption or loss yes joe asks While the Cenozoic is commonly known as the Age of Mammals, there were still some extraordinary reptiles that lived during this time. 
What is your favorite fossil Cenozoic reptile? Ooh. I'd have to go with Purosaurus because it was the giant caiman that was around down in South America during the Cenozoic and is in the same size category as all the other biggest crocs. So like 40-ish feet long at max with a six-foot skull. Mm-hmm. And it's also just got this the beefiest of heads and a giant nose. It's... It is odd. It, it's one of those where you're so big and you are oddly shaped. What were you doing? So yeah, that one. Yeah. There's a lot of really great choices. I mean, Titanoboa existed in the Cenozoic. Yeah, it did. Uh, but also like the Eocene sea snakes. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. Also, I named a species of snake from the Cenozoic. <laughs> so I'm extremely biased. Uh, that's Zelontophis from the early Pliocene of uh, Great Tennessee. So, yeah, that one's also that one's also pretty cool. (laughs) Chandra asks, what was the highest number of human species that existed together at the same time? Also, what's your favorite depiction of a fictional world with different human species? Oh, I don't. So there have been multiple times. Again, it depends on what you're counting as human Mm -hmm. within our lineage. If you go back to the Pleistocene, uh, you, of course, have our species, you have Neanderthals, you have Denisovans, you have Floresiensis, uh, maybe lingering members of earlier groups of, you know, Homo erectus, uh, earlier species. If you go back further than that, you also have early Homo species overlapping with Australopithecines. So, and then, of course, who knows how many species we're missing. Yeah, yeah, that we haven't found. We don't know about. So there, there for a while, it was the norm that there were several different species like in the not too far ago in the Pleistocene there were times where there were at least half a dozen Mm -hmm. different major lineages of our genus living in the world at the same time which is pretty decent Uh, and yeah we have made this comparison before that it makes us think of like Middle Earth Mm -hmm. where you have obviously these would not have been quite as dramatically different as dwarves and elves and orcs and such, but that you would have had different cultures, different lineages, heritages of people around the world. And I, and I don't know which one I would list as my favorite of those, uh, because it, it feels like if you do that scenario realistically, then it will be fairly boring because mm-hmm. then you just, you just have s- just people that look, have slightly different features, you know, which is not, there's nothing actually super exciting. That's just, all right, yeah, cool, reasonable. Or you have to go fantasy with it, where right. there's fundamental, magical, you know, archetypes that distinguish the different species of the plant, that planet. Lord of the Rings is a good one. Yeah. Also, D&D. D&D. I, that's, that's a pretty yeah. easy choice. Yeah. So. Uh, the Dragon Age uh, games had some fun stuff. Yeah. Mm. Uh, some fun versions and aspects of that. I like their dwarves. Captain Placoderm and Scuddles asks, as far as we know, humans are the only intelligent species to have arisen on earth in our planet's vast history. What do you think are animal lineages that could have hosted a long gone intelligent species? That is a fun question. There's actually a, uh, Kurtzgazot about this of, hmm. could there have been past civilizations right. that, you know, built their buildings out of only organic material, so nothing would have persisted to today mm-hmm. because they were around millions of years ago. 
I don't suspect so not very likely. There definitely there definitely could be some extinct organisms that were surprisingly intelligent. Like right. we but, definitely could find out that like ammonites or you know uh, other members of lineages that have intelligent members a day would have been scary smart had we encountered one in, in alive. Uh, right now, when we but of course impressive intelligence is in the eye of the beholder. Exactly. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if you had things like dinosaurs that were as cognitively advanced as some modern-day birds mm-hmm. or things like ammonites that may have been similar to modern-day octopuses and cuttlefish. But I, I don't think there were any, you know, potentially budding civilizations that yeah. didn't make it. There's not really any evidence to suggest that that yeah. would be the case. It feels like there we would have seen something unusual. You know, even if we don't have those artifacts or those, you know, mm-hmm. direct evidence that we would see something weird about the way they are fossilized or the way that they've preserved in, in groups or that there'd be an odd trend that would yeah. s- somehow sync up. Uh, that being said, it is interesting to think about the social dynamics of extinct groups or if some of them were building oddly complex nests or using interesting tools, stuff like that. Certainly possible. Yes. Max asks, can isotope analysis of a predator's teeth distinguish between vertebrate and invertebrate prey? Uh, that is a good question. I believe so. I have seen I, I, I've seen some studies that do distinguish invertebrates from other food types. Mm-hmm. It probably is conditional. Yeah. It's probably specific to the circumstance that you're in. I don't know that there would be a isotope ratio that just across the board says invertebrate versus vertebrate this is the bug isotope but you can certainly get different isotopes in different habitats you can certainly distinguish plants from animals so if you have some information about what sorts of invertebrates are available as opposed to other food types then you can probably make reasonable inferences about well yeah this isotope basically rules out everything but the invertebrates that are available here in this environment. Uh, that's a good, I haven't seen a lot of that discussed. Certainly, I haven't seen a lot of it in fossil literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen it mentioned a bit in modern studies. Uh, and that would be my guess, is that it is using the information about what lives in that environment to then interpret what those isotopes are going to most likely link to. That makes sense. BR asks... While they may not always be realistic or backed by evidence, do you enjoy paleo art with speculative behaviors or features? Oh, very much so. Absolutely. I really like seeing people. Well, I, one of the trends that you'll see like on, on DeviantArt a whole bunch is paleo art taking dinosaurs and giving them the color palette or, or some of the aesthetics of modern birds. Right. And I love that. Because even though, yeah, it probably wasn't exactly osprey colors. Right. Because that's just, that'd be very surprising to, for them to have come to the exact same color pattern. But it is expressing that sentiment that we uh, say so often of dinosaur traits, bird traits are dinosaur traits. Mm -hmm. So it's linking that, which I enjoy. It's exercising the brain to think of them as things other than brown. Right. Which other than the classic. Yes. Which is always great. And it usually looks really cool and pretty. So I'm (laughs) I will just enjoy the aesthetic of that. (laughs) 
Well, and it, it's nice to deliver that message that, yeah, there was variety, there was diversity. Here is something that is possible well, it's, and, and fun to think about. Yeah, not so much that this is what it looked like, but there's no reason it couldn't have looked like this. Right. So it's, it's giving the bounds of what dinosaurs could have looked like are everything we see birds looking like today in many regards. So having that idea out there is tons of fun. Yeah. If you want to do art of colorful, wacky, interesting, silly dinosaurs that is backed by, you know, similar to modern days, sometimes it is just ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Like, almost uh, surely that's not accurate. Right. Well, like, there's that that one bit of art that I never remember who did this art, but it's the Therizinosaur mm-hmm. in the Wolverine costume colors yep yep and it's like yeah okay that's that's very silly but also i don't think anyone is taking yes. that seriously well it's like i've seen that's for fun and uh, it is fun vulture-headed tyrannosaurs and they, they've got like the fleshy face and everything mm-hmm. and one of those where it's like that that's a super cool concept whether or not that's what they would have looked like that might be a bit too literal uh of comparison but cool concept and cool thing to think about yeah and if it's and if it's on you know instagram or deviant art or something then yeah go for yes. it right? have a ball with with your speculation if it's like a documentary or a museum exhibit or something then there should at least be some explanation yes. of here's why we went with this here is here are the parts that are speculative and here's what that's based on and here's the, the sort of the acknowledgement that this isn't hard data but it's something plausible, it's something interesting, and here's where we got the idea from. Also on the note of behavior, because you mentioned that, mm-hmm. uh, I love seeing art of mundane behavior in prehistoric creatures. Yeah. Uh, you know, them sleeping and stuff, but also them, like, scratching their face. Like, you know, because it, it's stuff like, that most people don't realize how crocs scratch an itch on their face, <laughs> and they scratch themselves like a dog. Yep. They bend around, and they take their back foot and scratch their face. Which, if you've never seen that happen before, you probably wouldn't guess that's what they did do. Yeah. So I like seeing people speculate about how would T-Rex deal with an itch? How would they drink? You know, how would they climb? You know, or if they're trying to get up a hill or get up a tree, what would it look like? I like seeing that because those are the behaviors that we don't usually, because it's not exciting. Mm-hmm. We don't always get to see those in art. And so I love when people do mundane day in the life of that dinosaur. Next up is Daniel. Certain species survived the KPG extinction. Can you make an informed guess about how many individuals of those species survived? How many would be enough to rebuild a population? And could there have been other lineages that survived that just didn't have enough individuals to repopulate? An interesting set of questions. I do not feel like I can make a very informed guess about how many individuals of each species survived. No. Only to say that it would have to be enough to make a healthy population. That if you get down to, right, if there's only 12 individuals left, that might not be enough. A, it might not be enough for them to find each other. Mm -hmm. If you're too spread out, they may never meet each other and then they all die off. Or it could be that that's small enough that there aren't enough reproductive individuals or that they are reproducing, but they become highly inbred and then they accumulate issues within the genetics and they become susceptible to disease or deformities and such and then that lineage doesn't make it yeah so for each in the species that survived there would have had to have been at least enough to make a healthy reproducing population i imagine there would have been lots of genetic 
sort of homogeneity. Yeah, yeah, bottleneck after a mass extinction event. As far as could there have been uh, other lineages that survived that just didn't have enough individuals to repopulate? That's an interesting question because I would say no because I would include that in the extinction event. Yeah. That if you went down to too few individuals in sort of the high, the extinction event was something that happened over hundreds and thousands of years. It wasn't just the day of the asteroid impact. So where the extinction event ends is kind of an arbitrary choice. Mm -hmm. I think you certainly could have had lineages that survived with small populations. And then those populations just dwindled for a couple million years and eventually petered out. And like, is that still part of the mass extinction? Mm -hmm. Is that the after effect of the mass extinction? So there almost certainly would have been lots of lineages that tapered off for a while after sort of the peak of the extinction event happened. Yes. And there are numbers for what you were saying earlier of like how many you need to have a reproductive population. There are numbers that goes along with that in like population and environmental studies. I don't remember what like the typical ballpark number they say often is. And I think it it varies for different groups of of animals. Of like what your reproduction is like, how genetically diverse you tend to be or Mm -hmm. how quickly, because different species, you know, mutate at different rates. You know, not all animals are equivalent in how quickly they build up variety. Uh, So there, there are people who probably have guesstimates for any of the ones that made it through that extinction needed probably a minimum of at least this, right. generally speaking, but I don't actually remember what that number is. Neo asks, if this isn't too personal, what were your grades like when you were applying to grad school? I'm currently in my freshman year of undergrad and struggling and scared to permanently mess up my chances of getting into grad school. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was a pretty solid uh, high B, low A student mm-hmm. a lot of the time. There were some classes where I kicked butt and got A's most of the time. And then the majority of classes, I was I was a B student and for like the things that weren't as critically connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that's that's typically where I, I, I considered myself a B student back in school. Yeah. Uh, B's get degrees was my <laughs> my motto. <laughs> I did pretty good. I think I was in a similar uh, range Generally, I had a bunch, especially later on mm-hmm. uh, when I was taking more classes that were my particular interests. My grades were pretty good. I had a couple of classes that I did very poorly in. Yep. The calculus kicked my butt and I did not get very good grades uh, in calculus. As far as how much that's going to affect your next steps and sort of getting into grad school, it does vary based yes. on the school you're applying to, the program you're applying to. Uh, fortunately, there are other things that grad schools will look at in their applicants Mm -hmm. in terms of your experiences, in terms of what you're interested in. Oftentimes, uh, you'll get the chance to meet and interact with uh, the professors, the scientists you're applying to work with. So grades are good to keep up. Mm -hmm. There are other things that you can do to sort of flesh out your experience and your preparedness. Uh, And if you're just getting started in undergrad, then there's tons of different opportunities available to get involved with projects, get involved with professors and research projects and student organizations that are doing things. Also, there should be a bunch of resources at your school to help you with your grades. Mm -hmm. There's tutors, there's study groups, there's stuff like that that can help out. 100%. Uh, It's way better to be 
uh, scared and worried about this in your freshman year than to be scared and worried about it in your senior year. Yep. Get started on <laughs> sort of getting yourself involved with all these different resources, uh, and you will be in a good position moving forward. Yes. Good luck. Next question is from Kraken. What would a T-Rex's tongue have looked like? There has been research on this. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about it a bit in a news at some point that most theropod dinosaur throat bones, what we know about them, do not look quite as weird as birds, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which means that most dinosaurs probably, in the absence of any weird specialization, probably had tongues a lot like crocs. Yep. Which is a croc tongue is part of the bottom of their mouth. Uh, they don't have a separate fleshy floppy tongue like we do. And so they can't stick their tongue out at you. They're, that is part of the musculature of the bottom of their mouth. It's what lets them relax it into the pouch and make some of the, you know, close the back of the throat. It's that musculature. So their tongue's kind of glued down, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it would be a very, very different tongue than what we think of as a tongue. Yeah. Unless they were specialized for eating ants. Yes. In which case they would have had very long uh, straight tongues. <laughs> they have woodpecker tongues. <laughs> Just harpoon uh, smaller dinosaurs. Yeah, just grabbing pterosaurs <laughs> out of the air like a cone snail. Sebastian asks, if there are big cats, why aren't there also big dogs? Is there something about cats that makes them more inclined to larger sizes? That is a very good question. Uh, there have been large dogs. Right. And there still are yes. large dogs today. But and there, So like the, the wolves today are us-sized, which mm-hmm. is a pretty big predator. That's, pretty, that's like leopard-sized, yeah. leopard, cheetah. Puma, yes. big cats. So that is big. And there have been bigger uh, uh, dog, you know, that would have outweighed our wolves today mm-hmm. in the past. Like, like barophagine dogs. Mm-hmm. But n- none of them have really gotten up to tiger and lion size. Mm-hmm. And th- that could be a couple of things. It might just be that there's not as much benefit for the way dogs tend to hunt. That cats wrestle their prey. Mm-hmm. They are able to grab on with paws. So... Being bigger actually lets you, it's like being a wrestler. If you're in a higher weight class, you can now take on higher weight classes of prey. Dogs don't do that. They're using their mouth and biting. Yeah, and some of the ones that were big, like barophagine dogs, some of those are inferred as being more grappling, yeah. ambushing, kind of like cats. So there may be something about the hunting style. Yeah, so it, it might just be that a dog the size of a tiger would not be as effective, like would not be that much more effective than mm-hmm. a just wolf-sized canine. But it 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 is a, a distinction, and I don't have a solid for sure answer as to like, mm-hmm. dogs can't be that big sort of thing. It's yeah. It just might not be as useful to be a dog that size. Good question. Next one is from Brad. What are some of the national and international ins and outs regarding personal fossil digging, collecting, and owning? Uh, Good question. There are a lot of ins and outs. Many. Uh, There are tons. Here in the United States, uh, it is different state by state. There are some sort of, you know, nationwide rules about Mm -hmm. it, but a lot of those rules come down to state by state. It depends on where it is. In many places, fossils are considered the same as minerals, and if it's in your land, it belongs to you, as opposed to if it's like Native American remains or artifacts, there are different rules surrounding. That's something that you're not allowed to just keep for yourself uh, on your land. Internationally, it also varies country by country. Some countries 
are much more strict about the regulation of their fossils. Mm -hmm. I, I believe there are a number of countries where fossils are considered items of heritage yeah. of national heritage yeah, national that, treasures that come that get that goes into a repository yes. and a, a national repository like a museum and then of course there are plenty of rules about the international movement of fossils mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. certain countries that have very sort of open relationships with other countries in terms of transferring fossils for research and such there are certain countries that try to be very restrictive about that often because they have been exploited <laughs> yes. in the past. There have been issues. There have been a lot of stories in recent years about places like Mongolia and Brazil that have been trying to get fossils back. Mm-hmm. As like, hey, we, we've we've got a bunch of these laws in place, and either these laws are new because we're trying to sort of secure this this natural heritage. Or these rules have been there for a while, but people have been breaking them anyway. Yep. So now we're trying to crack down on that a bit more. Yeah. So there's there's a ton. Yes. So if, uh, wherever state or country you live in, uh, you will have your own set of rules for collecting fossils. And I know there also can be different rules for collecting and selling, for instance, fossils yes. within a, a, a single place. Taps asks, are either of y'all Dimension 20 fans? If you haven't been watching Burrow's End, you're missing out. <laughs> I want to be. I have not actually started watching any of Dimension 20. Mm-hmm. I've watched lots of clips, and I, I love Brendan Lee Mulligan and a lot of the other crew, uh, but I have not sat down to watch yeah. any of them yet. I am a huge Dimension 20 fan. Yeah, you are. I've seen maybe like half of them. Uh, And I recently uh, got my girlfriend to start watching. (laughs) So we've been working through and watching uh, what what got her is that Hank Green was on the latest (laughs) season of it. He was in Mentopolis and that's what got her attention. So then we watched Mentopolis and then she was hooked. (laughs) So uh, we're going to we're working our way through it. Uh, Yes. And I have I have not watched all of Burroughs End. I've fallen behind, but I've seen the the early parts of it and it is a whole lot of fun. (laughs) Linda asks, are there podcast analytics that you find most valuable? What results do you find most encouraging? Does the data show which episode was the most popular? Uh, Good question. We do keep an eye on a lot of our analytics. Typically, the main one that we're looking at is just download numbers. Yes. There are other things. There are, you know, engagement, how much attention do do, do certain topics get. Uh, For us, it... Download numbers are our main metric for, like, how much attention is this getting? Uh, and that can tell us which episode was popular. Mm-hmm. For example, historically, one of the most popular episodes of our podcast has always been the first one. Yep. It gets a ton of downloads because a lot of people will go and start there. Other times we'll have episodes that are extremely popular that are not at all surprising. Episode 120, as expected, it says Tyrannosaurs in the title. Yep. That one gets lots and lots of downloads. Uh, sometimes we're surprised. Uh, that when cephalopods came out yep. way back in episode 16, it was the first time we ever had a spike in download numbers. And we were like, what is, what happened? Wow. Did someone important share our podcast? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then another, this is sort of on the opposite end of things. Uh, our requests yes. are a great measure of what people are interested in. Uh, that helps us to sort of guide what we do on the podcast. Absolutely. Nicholas asks, why is a fascination of dinosaurs as a child 
more often considered a childish phase compared to other fields or obsessions? Good question. I think it's probably just because it is so often that it is so common among kids that it gets attributed as being a kid thing. Very similar to the same way that like trains and other, you know, topic space sometimes gets this where it's, yeah, no, they're into space right now. And well, it means that a lot, many, many people know way more kids who are into dinosaurs than they know adults who are into dinosaurs. Like if you were able to take a poll magically right now for people interested in those kinds of things, probably you're going to get a lot of kids back in that magical census just because a lot of people do kind of grow out where it's like, yeah, I really liked these things as a kid. And then I stopped and I got interested in something else. Well, and I think you'd also get more adults than you would expect yes. to get. Because adults aren't talking. There's a, There's been a meme going around that I've seen online is, why aren't people asking me what my favorite dinosaur is? Yeah. Why like, is the, you why ask, the, you why ask that kids stop? that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's, it's partially because a, a lot of people, you know. Sort of your exposure to who is interested in it. That and, you know, you have people who have either legitimately grown out of it or were forced to grow out of it. Because I've met lots of people who are like, yeah, I used to be and I I kind of wish I still was. And it's like, yeah, you didn't naturally grow out of it. You know, you you were discouraged out of it. Yep. And so I also wonder often when you hear people kind of vehemently say these are that's a kid thing. Were you forced out of something that you liked? Yeah. Because that happens all the time. Doth thou protest too much? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Also, it has to do with the way that it's portrayed in just general media and culture. Dinosaurs are often portrayed as kids books, cartoons, things like that. They are very marketable to kit. They're they're big, colorful, different shaped monsters (laughs) that you can make either bad guys or good guys. And you can have people ride them and like... They are very good for kid content. (laughs) Yep. Bethany says, I live in the desert southwest, and because of how dry it is out here, things tend to desiccate rather than rot. In addition to this, many animals burrow to escape the heat. I'd think that these two things would result in some pretty spectacular fossils, yet you often say that deserts aren't good places for fossils. What gives? Uh, great question. Deserts can absolutely be great faces for fossils. Uh, and there are a number of cool, great fossil deposits, uh, geologic deposits with really good fossils that are deserts. We get a lot of that kind of stuff in like Mongolia, mm-hmm. China, places where you get protoceratops and, and velociraptor. However, deserts don't always have the right depositional conditions. Mm-hmm. When we find it, it's usually like within dunes or places where sand built up over time, the best places for fossils tend to be places like lakes and rivers and stuff like that. So it makes deserts uh, oftentimes rarer places to be good for fossilization. Yeah, they do have a lot of erosion going on with the sand mm-hmm. moving about. So it's all, as likely as it is for something to be buried, it could also be unburied and exposed. Right. So they absolutely can be great places. We get awesome fossils out of ancient deserts. It's just not quite as commonly producing really good depositional environments for long-term preservation as we see with things like lakes and the seafloor. Yes. Josh says, what are your general thoughts slash opinions on The Future is Wild? Ooh, yeah. I very much like The Future is Wild. Uh, I haven't watched it in a, in a long time. But I really enjoyed it. Was that's a speculative documentary about what life could evolve into mm-hmm. on here on Earth? It did some neat stuff. It did 
some cool things with like looking at the paths of lineages and also following up on like it would move through sections of time and it would also follow up on that speculative organism we had in last episode its lineage went on to become this lineage in this episode Mm -hmm. so it was a good really good display of speculative evolution and it didn't do too terribly much that i felt like was just wacky out of unreasonable biology that i was uh uh, bothered by it so yeah i liked it i I, I liked future as wild Mm -hmm. jade would like to know if you could re-record an episode which one would it be Ooh, my, my answer to this is very boring, and mm-hmm. it's probably one of the ones that just, like, the audio quality was yep. bad. Like Triceratops. The where... Ceratopsians, episode 87 comes to mind as one where, yeah, the audio quality got messed up. Yep. We had the wrong mic recording. Uh, we had a similar thing with um, 177, mm-hmm. uh, Neanderthals. Yep, yep. Where it's like, it was fine, but our audio quality was just a little bit not super great. Yep. And it'd be cool to go and, and fix it. As far as content, uh, you know, I... I'd much rather just continue to revisit those topics yes. into the future. Like if, if I had to choose, once again, it'd be kind of a boring answer of really probably most of the early ones where not only has there been new data that mm-hmm. probably could be added to that, but also we're more practiced and I now have different ways that I would do that episode just because yeah. I've been doing it for yeah. a while. Crocs and snakes. We yes. would redo, we would redo Crocs and snakes. Yep. That That's <laughs> probably, so yeah, there's nothing that's like, oh man, I have regrets about this one. Yeah. Other than technical stuff where it's like, oh, that sucks that the that the webcam <laughs> mic was the one that got selected. Right. I didn't think that would happen. Whoops. Hana asks, we know we lost a lot of diversity of human species due to interbreeding. Are there other examples in which we lose diversity under similar circumstances in other clades? There are examples of that happening and it potentially lowering our species count uh the one that i always go back to is the american and cuban crocodile situation that's currently happening in cuba that the american crocodile can interbreed with the cuban crocodile and the babies that come from that mostly just look like american crocodiles Mm -hmm. that phenotype that you know morphology just kind of overpowers the genetics of the cuban crocodile and what you get is a normal american crocodile so if they continue to interbreed, we'll just have crocs that look like American crocs and the specialized different Cuban croc morphology will be lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, so absolutely, that that is something that can happen with some regularity throughout Earth's history. Yeah, and there are examples today and there are some examples that are suspected uh, of the past. And it has been suggested for some ancient human uh, lineages, although I don't know what sort of the full extent of that research is. Yes, how much we think it was... Uh, uh, actually the cause or how much effect it truly had next up we have slam jambert the slam jam magician with the slam jam tradition hey slam jambert welcome back they say you are locked in a room with your favorite spooky creature of for 24 hours what is your survival strategy oh man oh but this is two questions yes because now i have to decide who my favorite because if i want to cheat i can say uh, I'll just pick the very last one we did, which yep. was friendly dragons, and I'm fine. Yes. Because they're friendly. Yes. I just keep my distance and bring them food, <laughs> and it's perfectly nice. That was where my brain went first, and it's partially just because it's fresh, but I was very pleased with where we went with friendly dragons. <laughs> I was very, very tickled by that that result. Uh, so yeah, that one would be fine. I think for most of them, it's uh, try to be as small as possible <laughs> and just stay away or make loud noises when necessary. I think I 
I might be in some trouble because if I if I line them all up, I was re I really enjoyed what we ended up with for the owl bear. Yeah, which could put me in a tough spot. That's a that's a tough one. That's not an ideal one to be locked in a room with. No, I uh, think we decided they're territorial. Yeah, that's trouble. So yeah, I I just try to be quiet in the corner. Uh, there's not much else you can do with that one. Uh, man, if I, if one of the sea serpent ones was my favorite, I'd be great because great and let it flop well, around what's in the room yeah no is this like in the shape of water <laughs> is this my room have we uh <laughs> <laughs> is this just my room i get on my bed uh uh it, well in the shape of water we did actually do fish people yes we did uh, so my strategy would be uh what happened in the shape yes of water. yes <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get real close lydia asks lydia asks if your favorite museum was being forced to sell all of its specimens at a public auction and you had the ability to save a single specimen or fossil organism, what would it be and why? Ooh. I think where my brain would go to first is which of them is our collection of that group or species or, you know, taxa the most limited. Right. Is this the only member of that group? Yes. Is this is this the museum that has that the one Carnotaurus skeleton? Exactly. In it? Yeah. Like if this is you know, or if it's there's really only a few else around the world, I, I'll lean toward those quicker than I will you know the Tyrannosaur the the Tyrannosaur skeleton, which is super cool. But we we have a bunch of those. We know mm-hmm. that group fairly well. Uh, if also- this is a fifth of the entire right. body of knowledge of this ancient group, I want to save it. There also might be a strategy in place to research everybody at the auction and then see who's bidding <laughs> and be like, all right, if that person wins it, it's going to go in a vault forever and no one's ever going to see it again. So yes. oh, I'm going to bid against that person. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Whichever one the, <laughs> the worst rich person is bidding on. Yes. I'll, I'll outbid them. <laughs> Marcella asks, Will, how is your ADHD journey going? You were in, you were courageous and shared how you were doing during the 2022 Q&A. Thanks for being willing to talk about starting medications and your feelings about it. Aw, thank you. Uh, very sweet, Will. It's gone It's gone all right. Uh, I've kind of paused on searching medications. Uh, none of them really seemed to work on me, mm. uh, which could just mean that I have a tolerance. You, uh, have, a, you have a highly resistant strain of ADHD. Yeah, it's, it's, which it checks out from the, the couple of times I ever drank that I, I have a, <laughs> I'm a bigger guy. I have a higher tolerance. Uh, baffled my psychiatrist. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so I've I've kind of put that on a pause, but I have been trying to focus more on sleep schedule stuff so that if I can't uh, pers- keep going with that, I'll go with other things. With, uh, with behavioral adaptations. Yeah, things that will hopefully balance out other parts of life and make it easier to find the energy and the focus and, and maintain the other things while I am awake. So yeah, I, I am glad that this is helping anybody out there with their journeys potentially. So uh, hope you all are doing well if you are on a similar journey of self-discovery. Quags asks, in the ears episode, uh, that was episode 178, you mentioned that vertebrates detect sound with sensory hairs. Are these true hairs like mammal fur? Are they more like villi and intestines? What are they? Good question. These are not True mammal hairs. These are cellular hairs, so kind of like the cilia that you'd see on single-celled organisms. Like that, a flagellum. Like a flagellum that they can use to swim around. 
uh, that cellular quote-unquote hair, that flagella, that cilia, is what it seems very likely most hearing structures in most animals are at least ancestral from, that they are based off of that same kind of structure. So this is an extension of the cell, not a true hair. Uh, and But it's still thin and then therefore able to pick up vibrations very well and transmit them back to a nerve cluster. Matt asks, there are... There have been a number of very well-preserved frozen Ice Age animals. Do you think it's possible that a well-preserved Neanderthal will be similarly discovered? If so, how much how much more will we learn beyond what's known from bone and tools? Uh, really interesting question. I I'm uh, I'm a little bit surprised we've never found a frozen Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it is quite possible. Uh, there, there's, there's. I mean, I say that there's not a lot of frozen animals. Yeah. Sorry, the the, the numbers are low. The odds are not uh, uh, in our favor. But I, it's totally possible that you could get a Neanderthal frozen in similar conditions that you would get, you know, cave lions and and mammoths and such. Yeah, there's no reason we shouldn't be able to. That shouldn't be able to have happened. Right. It seems like it might be more... A lot of those famous finds come from places like Siberia. Mm-hmm. So we might find something over there, which could be Neanderthal, could be early Homo sapiens, could be Denisovans. It could be a different lineage of ancient humans. Uh, so we certainly could. Uh, we would learn what they looked like. Oh, yeah. We'd learn so much. <laughs> that would be the big thing is what does their... And obviously it would... I was thinking about this while you read it. It would be a very disturbing find. Oh, yeah. Because if you think about the way that these sort of frozen animals look, they don't look good. They're like shriveled. Very ice mummy. They're very mummy. It it would not be a pretty look, and it would be a person. Yes. Uh, Which, of course, we found frozen people. It wouldn't be unprecedented. But the big... (laughs) This one would make a lot of news for being a frozen human body. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh, If we got a really well-preserved... We could CT scan, learn about internal anatomy, see if there's any, like, differences in the organs in there. Mm, musculature could potentially. Musculature. Physical appearance would be the big thing that would come. That would be what made all the headlines. Yes. Here is a picture of the face of a Neanderthal. Yes. And, and our paleo art now could be almost dead accurate for at least what this right, individual looked person. like. Also, is it is this individual wearing clothes? Yeah, because that would be. Re- Can you imagine if we found a frozen Neanderthal and they had like braided hair yeah. and an ear piercing? Exactly. Like, like if they're you fully clothed with all their stuff, you have a tattoo. We could have tons. We would. Su- we might just suddenly learn all of these things that we had questioned whether it was part of their culture. Yeah. So it's. I'm not rooting for a Neanderthal to have become frozen. Because that's a that's a tragic way to go, uh, but I'm rooting for us to find yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> if it already happened, condolences. I mean, but yeah, let's. But <laughs> let's. That would be really informative. Nolan asks. One of my favorite parts of your Silver Screen Science episodes is the mini rants section. I would like to propose a freestyle rant. Pick any movie, TV series, etc., and give us your opinion on its paleontological accuracy. Positive and negative feedback are both welcome. Ooh, that's fun. I I think my mini rant, if I if I'm 
just picking out of the the entire list would be Primeval, which we've talked about. Was oh, that, you took mine. Was that yours? <laughs> I was, yep. was going to mini yeah, rant about that's not That's not too surprising. <laughs> uh, my mini rant, though, would be a bit on the utter, utter convenience of the portals. Right. Uh, that was the thing that would get me every now and then in the episode. So for anyone out there, this is the show we've talked about where prehistoric animals are being portaled through temporal rifts mm-hmm. to modern London. To London. Uh, and it's just like, wow, it sure is convenient that that portal opened up in this swimming pool. Yep. Which is well above sea level right now. So that's... I guess it wasn't in the past, and it also happened to be right. in the ocean. That seems odd that the Mosasaur only opens up in places underwater. <laughs> I, I would get thrown off every now and then where it's like, oh, come on. Like, at least have it be above the water. Yep. And it flops out into the ocean. That that would be a cool scene, and I'm fine with that. Right, Just a, a, a waterfall appears yeah, for a second. Exactly. And we see a silhouette wash out into... But it was just always in very convenient locales, uh, which I understand, but took me out of it a little bit a lot of the time. Uh, Since uh, positive and negative feedback are both welcome, I'll quickly mini rant that kudos to Primeval for picking really cool, interesting, diverse creatures and not just going with dinosaurs and popular animals. Yeah. It took like seasons for them to do like a woolly mammoth or a T-Rex. Yep. And my goodness, way to go. Uh, similar uh, uh, praise for Pokemon mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for resisting for like two decades before doing a Tyrannosaurus uh, fossil Pokemon. Yep. You went four generations before you did dinosaur fossil at all. Wow, way to go. I, you, I'm very proud of you. It feels like both of them, a very concerted effort and, and decision was made. Yep. Of, no, no, we don't want to just do the obvious ones. Emily says, I am getting a new custom road bike. My old favorite road bike is named Archaeopteryx, Archie for short. Since the new bike will be quite a bit newer, it needs to be named after something a good bit later than Archaeopteryx. So which impressive late Cretaceous pterosaur should I name my new bike after? Fantastic question. Yep. Uh, Well, if you want an impressive one... Uh, you can go with one of the big ones. Yes. Hatsagopteryx. That's what I was thinking. Feels like a good, like, rugged, you know, that's sort of the beefier giant pterosaur. You could call him Hattie. Yep. That's, <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, maybe it's because we just recently did filter feeders, but mm-hmm. I'm also thinking Pterodostro. Yeah. That's a really cool one. Especially, I don't know, there's spokes on a bike. I, you know, come up with some reason for... Yeah, no, I like... I, Hatsagopteryx was the first one I thought of. Yeah. Because that's, that's one of my favorites. That is that's that is a very good choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wesley and Z ask, In many retro dinosaur films like The Lost World and Valley of the Guanji, the big bad theropod is Allosaurus, while many modern dinosaur films star T-Rex. Why was Allosaurus getting the spotlight? What changed to shift the media attention back to T-Rex? Ooh, that is a very good question. And uh, I might bounce it back to you a bit since you were the one that did a deep dive into dinosaur movies yeah. at one point. Um, I, there are, it is definitely interesting that there are a handful of prominent dinosaur movies that are, T-Rex isn't the big one. Mm-hmm. That it is Alice. So T-Rex appears in The Lost World, but those two movies are good examples of where Allosaurus is the big one. I I don't know that 
it ever shifted because mm-hmm. T-Rex has been the big bad one throughout. I showed up in Ghost to Slumber Mountain mm-hmm. uh, in 1918, and then it was there in King Kong in 1933 and in Fantasia in 1940 and in a number of movies in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, so I, I don't know if T-Rex ever at, truly fell out of favor. Yeah. It is interesting that there were some movies that went, yeah, but what about Allosaurus? Yeah. Well, I do remember as a kid, those two being kind of presented as the 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 rival big theropods. Right. And they were the, fir- to the sort of the two prominent early discovered yeah. theropods. Allosaurus was discovered in, the, I think, the 1870s or 1880s, somewhere in there. So by the time movies started, both T-Rex and Allosaurus were well-established and, and well-known. So I wouldn't be surprised if maybe it was just a preference of I, mm-hmm. you know, because I remember having friends that was like, no, I like Allosaurus. And so, no, I like T-Rex because it was that was kind of how it was presented of like, yeah, these are the two these are the two teams. Uh, so it may have just been something that goes, no, Allosaurus. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, these days T-Rex is extremely sort of dominant oh, yeah. uh, in the although i do wonder if if there might be something where we look back in, from the future and be like and say oh there were a number where spinosaurus was yep. where so, yeah another animal you know showed up in the news or showed up in a museum somewhere and that inspired somebody to go hey forget that t-rex one let's do this other one yep next question is jennifer is there anything that can be inferred about life in the Cenozoic or Mesozoic in the parts of North America where there are no fossils from that time? It's a bit sad. I'll never know what dinosaurs lived where I live. Uh, good question. Uh, yes, we can make inferences, even in places where we're missing fossil evidence. Uh, certain groups of Dinosaurs, for example, were very widespread, Mm -hmm. and we can reasonably say, all right, they probably also lived in this area. Especially if we find things on either side of that area. Right. Also, uh, we know the general structure of dinosaur ecosystems. So, for example, we have lots of evidence of dinosaurs from Western North America in the late Cretaceous, and not very much evidence uh, from the late Cretaceous in Eastern North America. But... We know what are the components of a dinosaur ecosystem in the late Cretaceous. So we can very reasonably say, well, in this area where we don't have a lot of dinosaur fossils, there most likely were big theropods, medium and small theropods, small herbivores. And then we can say, well, the prominent big theropods at this time were tyrannosaurs. The prominent small theropods at this time in this on this continent included oviraptorosaurs and dromaeosaurs. The herbivores were this, this, this. So you can reasonably sort of speculatively construct a dinosaur ecosystem. Yeah, we might not know the specific species that was there because it could have been something different than across the the interior seaway. Mm -hmm. But it probably was still in that group or very likely in that group. Yeah. So when it's very funny because we'll have it here in Tennessee. Mm Mm-hmm. I've had I've I've been asked by kids. I've also been asked by educators who are like, yeah, my kids really want to learn about dinosaurs and stuff. But I heard that there aren't really many dinosaur fossils in Tennessee. Did dinosaurs live in Tennessee? And I'll be like, absolutely, dinosaurs lived in Tennessee. Yes. And they'll say, oh, cool, which ones? And I'm like, ah, we have no mm-hmm. idea. <laughs> we don't know. Nope. Edmontosaurus apparently. Yeah. Uh, maybe Edmontosaurus. 
to. We know they would have been here. There was no reason for them to have not been here. It'd be super weird if this was just a dead zone for dinosaurs for some reason. But now we don't. We don't have the fossils to say what species they were. Yep. Brayden asks, What do you guys think about this year's finding of the Spinosaur Irritator having a pelican-like lower jaw? Do you think other Spinosaurs might have had the same adaptations? Uh, very interesting. Yeah, that was a really interesting interpretation and a, a potential aspect of, of, of that Spinosaur. Yeah, this was a study that reconstructed the jaws of Irritator and found that it looks like it would have had the ability to widen the jaw to yes. the sides to some extent. Mm-hmm. Which is something that a lot of bird jaws do. Lots of birds mm-hmm. can widen the back of the, the opening of the throat in the back of the mouth so that they can swallow larger food items in one gulp. Yes. Uh, fish and stuff is the common one you'll see them do that with. But, you know, uh, look up videos of seagulls eating stuff yes. and you can watch them just... <laughs> like down a rabbit. Yeah, a piece of pizza and like crazy things. So that's not too terribly surprising that a theropod was found with similar sure. structure because that's that's uh, makes sense, especially if they were also fish eaters. Right. And you, if you want to swallow a big fish all at once, having the ability to sort of shift the jaws sideways a little bit mm-hmm. might help with that. Now, whether or not they had that guler sack, that pouch that pelicans are so famous for, uh, I don't remember. I know we, we talked about it, but I don't remember how much solid data there was on that. And I don't think, I think it was more of a, this would pair nicely with. And right. so could, that could make sense here. But Here is an example of a bird that does this yeah, kind of thing. But there's not direct evidence that they had that pouch. Now, they could still potentially have done something if they were doing it like crocs do, where mm-hmm. they relax that, because crocs also have a pouch in that section, but they use it for carrying eggs, not for catching prey. Mm-hmm. So they could be doing something odd like that, but we don't have direct evidence. And so we can't speculate that pouches were common among spinosaurs, but I also would not be surprised if other spinosaurs could widen the jaw. Yeah. yeah, that would make that is a very practical thing. It's very good for eating fish yeah. and your weird dinosaurs. Yes. So I, I'd be kind of surprised if we don't find it on anyone else if we get better specimens. Yeah. So, yeah. Our next question is from Ian. Given your recent episode on Neanderthals, where on the spectrum of lumpers versus splitters do you personally sit? In other words, how many species of homo have existed? Uh, oh, that's an interesting question. I don't have a strong opinion about that. No. Uh, I am not a paleoanthropologist and not at all involved in identifying ancient species. And the the classic lumpers versus splitters argument, I find often is very conditional. Mm-hmm. Uh, some things could use some more splitting because they are overly lumped. Some things could use some more lumping because they are overly split. Uh, I don't personally have very strong feelings about that with ancient hominins. I'm sure eventually it'll all work out uh, based on where the data points us. Uh, so there there are as many ancient species of Homo as whatever the consensus is right now. Yeah. And in 20 years, if that's different, then it'll be that. I, I uh, uh, another thing that comes up to mind with this and in the vein of lumpers versus splitters is the biological definition of species that often hinges on if they can reproduce and make viable young then they are not separate species, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a very often shared and used definition for species. But there are tons of species that are very classically held that 
by that definition should not be species. So it is not actually a functional definition all the time. And that's that's kind of where I land on this of I'm sure there are arguments to be made to group them, but I I trust the people who are who have named the species <laughs> that are there, kind of. That's that's sort of where I land. Yep. Our next question is from Allie Baumgartner. Who? <laughs> uh, who asks if you could be any plant, extant or extinct, what would it be and why? I would definitely be some kind of climbing vine. Why would you want to be a plant? Yeah. That seems yeah. like a silly question. I'm playing, I'm yes-anding. I'm yes-anding. <laughs> who would want to be a plant? I would definitely be some sort of climbing tendril. Yeah. Uh, I think climbing vines are the best. They are super cool. Uh, I would either want to be the, the cat's claw one that has the little oh, yeah. grapple hooks that it clings to bark and rocks and stuff. Or one of the ones that wraps around... Yeah. yeah, that does the spinny search for the next foothold and grabs on and then wraps and then coils up to make a spring. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know if that's one group or if a bunch of them do that. One of those. I want to be, I want to be, I, that's my inner ADHD <laughs> coming out of the answer. I want to be able to climb still. <laughs> I want to be a carnivorous plant mm-hmm. with an active capture mechanism. Yes. Like a Venus flytrap. Yes. I want to grab stuff out of the air. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. Will and I have, of course, both chosen plants Which that I- most... Uh, emulate animal behavior. Yeah, whichever one is most like snakes and crocs. <laughs> yes, that's what I want. I want to be a plant that coils up. Yes. It's, got, it's like that climbing vine, but it's coiled. And then at the end of it, there is a Venus flytrap set of leaves, and then it uncoils and strikes and grabs stuff say, out of here. It is funny that you chose the, the toothier one, and I chose the, the... The sinuous one? Yeah. I did. Hey, we're not so <laughs> yeah. different, you and I. Hey, you've brought us together, Allie. Thanks, Allie. You've brought us together <laughs> on our animal on our animal appreciation. Next question is VJ. Regarding plesiosaurs and pliosaurs, was it totally impossible for them to haul themselves onto land like sea turtles? Is it possible that they had super beefy arms packed with muscle to help them haul themselves out? Uh, Good question. I don't know that it's totally impossible. Mm -mm. Uh, And certainly some of the early members of those lineages might have done something like that. Yes, yes. Uh, if they were still egg layers. There doesn't seem to be good evidence to suggest that the later ones were doing that. Yeah. Uh, if they had those super beefy front arms, there's a good chance we'd see some evidence of that in the bones. Yes. You don't necessarily need to have super beefy arms to do something like that. I don't think sea turtle front flippers are like enormously muscular. Yeah, but they they are notably bigger than the back. But they are notably bigger than the back, which we don't see in plesiosaurs and pliosaurs typically. Yeah. We also talked, and we talked about this in the live birth episode, 154, and I think a couple other places, about how <clears throat> certain uh, marine lineages might have switched to live birth first. Yep. So plesiosaurs and pliosaurs, if they started out as egg layers, and moved into the water, they may have had to return to land like sea turtles. But if they came from live-bearing ancestors, then it never would have been a concern. You just move, like sea snakes, you can just go into the water. There are also definitely some members, at least of the pliosaurs, which were much beefier-bodied overall than your biggest uh, plesiosaurs. There are definitely some of those that are in the size category of whale today that will suffocate if beached. Right. So it's like, I don't know that you could be as chunky as those were and cl- pull yourself out of the water and still 
be okay. Right. Sea turtles have highly reinforced skeletons. Yes. And even the biggest of them did not get up to the categories of those. No. So like the biggest sea turtles that ever existed were still only among the more moderately sized toothed whales. So like some of those pliosaurs were massive. So the, if there were members that could pull themselves out, I don't think it would have been the bigger ones. Yep. Our next question comes from Z. Okay, so we all love the podcast and you all love doing it. That being said, what's the worst part of the podcast process? What tasks do you dread? What's the dark side of common descent? <laughs> uh, there's definitely tedious parts to it. Mm -hmm. uh, editing can be very tedious. Editing, and if any of our previous guests are listening right now, it's not due to you. <laughs> but guest episodes can often be a trial just because it's a new voice that has new speaking patterns. Like, yeah. I'm very used to yours and mine, the way we pause, when we cough. Like, I can pull out most of our coughs visually. Right. Just because I know what they look like in the audio. Because I've been doing it so long. But then a new person comes and I don't know what your ums look like. I don't know when you tend to um. I don't know when to look for it. So yeah. I'm having to listen much more carefully with a guest episode. It it's also, also now three dialogue lines that I'm having to track. Yeah, it, it tends to be another a, another audio file yep. that now we're combining audio files. So I have to make sure that you and I don't talk over each other, but also that they don't talk over, that we don't talk over them and that we're not combining or uh, uh, conflicting in who's trying to be heard. Mm -hmm. uh, so th those can be challenging. Yeah. I would, the, the other thing that comes to mind is we record on a schedule because we release on a schedule. Mm -hmm. So we are often, there is always something to be recording and we give ourselves flexibility in when we're going to do our recordings, but there's only so much flexibility we can have because the podcast needs to come out at a certain time. And that does mean that from time to time, a thing has to be, recorded and done and sometimes we're just not in the mood for it yes and this is a process that requires a certain amount of energy and enthusiasm and sometimes it can be a little bit there have absolutely been times where we've been a little behind on something and it's like all right now's the day we have to record this thing and now i feel a little sick or mm -hmm. whatever but that's the day it has to happen and that can be a bit of a, a difficulty yes uh, the other big one for me is whenever I'm taking notes on something that I don't quite know where to start because I don't mm. know the topic well enough means that I just kind of have to jump into it. Yeah. And I always have the slight nervousness and anxiety when I'm taking those notes of like, is this, am I wasting my time on this source right now? Am I going to get five sources in and be like, I did not need to take any of those notes mm -hmm. because I don't, I, but I don't know better yet. So I don't know which of these are going to be worth it or not. Cause I don't know this topic yep. yet. Your, your ability to be efficient is compromised. Exactly. And I'm always like, I know I'm wasting my time somewhere during this. <laughs> and I, that's, that's very frustrating. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know what? Those problems, not all that bad. Yeah, no. That, as, that's, as these things go. It, it is uh, heavily outweighed by the rest of it. Next up is Aaron. This year in... The year is 2085. The tech to resurrect dinosaurs has been around forever now. Frankly, it's not even interesting anymore. Dinos have escaped their personal owners and breeding facilities in Florida and have infested the Everglades. U.S. citizens have free range to harvest dinosaurs for consumption 
What dino do you think is the most delicious, and how would you prepare it? If possible, could you ask Allie what ancient plant would make a nice veggie or salad side dish? What dinos are the most delicious? Well, going back to our hadrosaurs episode, uh, mm-hmm. I probably hadrosaurs. Yep. And I would imagine you could prepare them the same way that we prepare like cattle yeah. and stuff like that. Well, and I think that they also are a good one to go with because they they they'd have a big beefy drumstick. Mm-hmm. Uh, like them yeah. in theropods. Yeah, can you imagine a cow sized drumstick? Yep, yep. Or even bigger for some of them. So they they would have now the the thing I'd be most interested in is would you prepare them more like cattle or more like bird? Like, yeah, like chicken. What what is their meat? What category of meat would they have? Yeah, and that uh, I do not know. Yeah, I don't know enough to know. If, would it be categorized as red meat or mm-hmm. would it be more like light dark meat? Yeah, would their eggs be delicious? Oh yeah. That would be mm. that would be very interesting. Yeah, a hadrosaur easy enough to catch and butcher because some of those would be unwieldy. Be a, you need a team. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, little theropods, uh, like yeah, like little chicken. dromaeosaurs would just well, be like little like... free range pheasants and chickens. <laughs> uh, I did reach out to Allie, and Allie said I'd go with fern fiddleheads, <laughs> the young shoots that haven't yet unfurled. Or maybe the fruits, in quotes, of ginkgos or cycads or benetitalians. Both of these would take planning to be able to consume because most non-angiosperms are quite toxic to mammals. However, all of these are eaten by humans today in different parts of the world. There you go. So we've got some nice veggies uh, to go alongside our uh, hadrosaur eggs and dromaeosaur drumsticks. Zabby asks, which modern day environment would be ideal for the re-emergence of terror birds? Ooh. Uh, I mean, a lot of the ones where we have big birds today, so like the grasslands of Africa and Australia, uh, mm-hmm. where you have ostrich and emu respectively, uh, probably would would be a good place for them. I would uh, say South America, mm-hmm. where the closest relatives of, ter- of terror birds are still ground-dwelling hunters. Yes. You know, Sariemas mm-hmm. are predatory they run around on the ground they're very much like terror birds they're thought to be very closely related to terror birds and they're still doing very much the kind of thing that terror birds did yes so i I, if uh, my bet would be that we would get this same lineage would do terror birds again convergently within that group would make sense though uh i will definitely put in just a little side bet just for hopes of cassowary base lineage Mm -hmm. coming about and doing it uh, just because I want it to happen. Yeah, it would be, it yep. would be pretty cool. That's that's my hopeful bet. <laughs> Buddy would like to know, are Homo sapiens the only hominid to domesticate dogs? As far as we know. Yep, that's where all the evidence points. Uh, dog domestication seems to have happened, uh, well, maybe one time, maybe yes. multiple times. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's with, kind of the big debate with it. Yes. Uh, there is no evidence that we know of to suggest that domestic dogs were ever associated with other hominin species. The earliest evidence we have of dog domestication, and indeed our sort of genetic estimates for around when it might have started, are after our other hominin species were extinct. Yes. It's like the earliest domestic dogs, as far as our evidence suggests, would have been around after the extinction of Neanderthals. Yeah, the date I remember from that episode was 16,000 years ago. Yeah, the, so, the, dog, the estimate for dogs usually ends up falling somewhere between fifteen and 30,000 yep, years yep. ago. And the extinction of Neanderthals is around 40,000 years yeah. ago. So, 
most likely there was never any sort of domestication event uh, with any other hominin species. Yep, yep. Eddie asks, how did rangemorphs, those are the frond, those ediacaran things that are shaped like big leaves, gather their nutrients? I have read that it could be either osmosis or filter feeding. Which of these are most likely, and are there other possibilities? Uh, I'd expect that it's probably, that it very likely could be some form of filter feeding. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could be something different, you know, it might not be a net the way we think of, like, frond-shaped sea creatures today doing it. Uh, But filter feeding would make sense. Even if it is uh, some form of osmosis, that could still be considered a filter because you're still pulling stuff out with a structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're just gathering it instead of physically you're, you're using the chemical process of osmosis. Yeah. And like we discussed in 180, filter feeding is extremely common among marine yeah. invertebrates. Yeah. yeah. So that, that would be my expectation just because of how common it is and because you've got the shape of a filter feeder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what the exact anatomy is would, would be the, the deciding factor. SG asks... I'd like to ask you guys if the chances for modern species to be fossilized has been impacted by recent human activity on the environment. Great question. I wonder if this is an SG that I know. (laughs) Uh, For sure. Yes. Uh, We have, for example, uh, in many places, covered up the ground with asphalt and stuff. Yep, yep. uh, Which would absolutely uh, interfere with the chances for modern things to be fossilized. We've also made a lot of species much rarer Mm -hmm. which impacts the likelihood for things to be fossilized there are species that like like large whales or bison or i mean some you know extreme examples like dodos and Mm -hmm. passenger pigeons which we have severely impacted the likelihood that they're going to be fossilized simply because we've reduced their numbers so much uh, or entirely we also have a habit of disturbing habitats that are good for fossilization, like riverbeds mm-hmm. and lakes. Like We will completely reroute entire rivers and remove that habitat from areas or drain lakes. Yep. So like that, anything that could have been fossilized that was buried in that silty mud is now not protected under the lake they're exposed yes. we also get rid of so like coral reefs mm-hmm. great places for fossilization in part because of the environment but also because they're great places for life mm-hmm. and if we kill off coral the life's not going to be able to live there and now even if you still have a good environment for fossilizing things if there aren't things there to be fossilized then you're not going to get them yep so yes yep we sure have Next question is from Hugh. I just finished reading Carl Zimmer's Science Inc., and many of the tattoos made me think of Common Descent. Do either of you have any science or other tattoos? If not, would you ever get a science tattoo? What would you get? Oh, yeah. Uh, nope, I have no tattoos. Same. We are tattooless. Uh, I've never come across a tattoo that I definitely sh- for sure want. Yeah, I've never been particularly interested. I don't do body modification very much. Yeah. Uh, just not a, I'm not a piercings person. I'm not a tattoos person. Same. There have been a couple that I've considered. The only one that's kind of sciencey is I saw a tattoo one time that was uh, uh, on a person's forearm and it was a alligator swimming through some uh, uh, grass, some some underwater grass. And 
was like silhouetted on their arm to be swimming yeah uh, 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 off the surface of their arm which is very cool that's cool uh the only other one i've considered getting is an idea my brother had for me him and his wife to get the animaniacs oh yeah each get one of them yeah i if i was gonna get a a lot of people it's pretty common with paleontologists to get a tattoo of a fossil that is important to them yep yep like uh, their research fossil uh britney stoneberg who did uh, episode 80 with us about mary anning i believe got a tattoo of the horse tooth that she did her i think it was her master's research Mm -hmm. on it's like a a a research specimen it would be pretty cool to get a tattoo of one of the xelantophus vertebrae yes uh that would be pretty cool uh anything snaky Mm -hmm. uh of course snakes are are very tattoo friendly yes they're relatively simple shape so that 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 could be something there i'm i won't (laughs) i'm not gonna i have no intention of doing so uh, but that, that those things would be good choices. The, those two I've considered, but not mm-hmm. with any serious weight. You know, I've not made any plans. I'm not saving up money for them. All my money goes to toys. <laughs> Next question is from Kraken. What are some ways to find good sources of paleo art? I'm wanting to improve my drawing skills and would like to be using accurate reference material. Uh, good question. Uh, there are, of course, books that uh, collect paleo art mm-hmm. the sort of, you know like there's some of them are like coffee table books about paleo yes. art uh probably the best the first thing that comes to mind one of the best ways to do it is to follow paleo artists mm-hmm. on social media and such uh paleo artists like gabriel ugeto who was on the podcast uh, back in episode 64 and many other paleo artists will have instagram accounts or tiktok accounts or whatever and also maintain websites with archives of their material finding who the prominent paleo artists are that are doing work that either you like or if you're looking for credentials work that shows up in museums Mm -hmm. or is being commissioned by other scientists that's what i was going to say is if you see it show up like a lot of uh new studies like if a new species is described Mm -hmm. sometimes they will commission an artist to make a reconstruction to be the official here is the first reconstruction of this new species yeah. that's being announced. And you'll see it in the news articles mm-hmm. or the press releases that come out. Also, uh, documentaries. Yes. So I know that uh, Gabriel was involved in some recent paleo documentaries and sort of the, the animal design. So finding out which artists were involved with art that you like or that you think is really professional. That's a that's my number one recommendation is go find paleo artists and follow them. Yes. And and if you find, you know, either you find it through the news or through one of the books or something, you find a person, they will often have connections or uh, even if you message them, be able to suggest other people because they will know those other artists. (laughs) Absolutely. Kylie asks, I mostly listen to you on the Google podcast app, which is shutting down very soon. Is there a preferred app I should use that helps your podcast out more than the others? How do you want me to listen to you? Ooh, uh, that's a very, I didn't know that was shutting down. Yeah, that's good to know. Uh, I know uh, a little bit ago, Spotify was our number one, but uh, mm. typically d- just Apple podcast, iTunes is where a lot of our downloads yeah. come from. Apple, Spotify, we host on Podbean. Mm-hmm. And then that distributes out to a whole bunch yeah. of others. I don't think it really matters Mm-mm. a whole lot where people are listening to the podcast. If you're listening, if you're engaging, wherever you're listening, what if you want to sort of find a, an avenue that 
uh, really supports us. Wherever you're listening, leave a review. Yes. Leave a nice review for us. Uh, and that sort of gives us a little bit of a, of a boost there. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know that it that it makes a whole lot of a difference exactly where you're listening. And my official answer would be, I want you to be listening to us on whichever app you find most convenient and easy to use. And yes, friendly. Ha- have user the best interface. time. Yes, listening to us. I want it to be as least as uh, the least amount of frustration or trouble with whatever app you choose, <laughs> because <laughs> they are not all equal. Uh, and thank you for asking. That mm-hmm. is a very mm-hmm. kind question. Next up is Petrus. Let's say the asteroid didn't hit the Earth 66 million years ago. Great. Do you think dinosaurs would have evolved a culture or civilization and become technologically advanced similar to humans? If yes, what species do you think would have evolved to become the human equivalent? Uh, This is a thought-provoking question. I have two reasons for my answer. My answer is no. Mm -hmm. I do not think uh, that dinosaurs would have evolved a culture or civilization similar to humans. And the two reasons that I don't think that they would is reason number one, evolving, developing an advanced human-like civilization is not an inevitability. Yes. Often when this kind of question is posed, it is sort of posed as like, that is a niche that needed to be filled. And if humans hadn't come around and become the big civilization species, something else would have had to do it. Yeah, or that surely with enough time, eventually... Uh, another group would have ended up there. Right. Uh, but there's no reason to think that any other lineage would ever have done that. Our lineage is very particular. We are the only species of many, many primates, of many, many mammals that have made civilization the way that we have. Well, and, and we've been on the planet for a very small amount of time. Like, yeah, which is, life has had a extreme amount of time to have done it. Yes. By the time the KPG extinction happened, dinosaurs had been around on Earth for two or three times longer than primates have been around on Earth. Yes. They had time to do... If it was something that was like, oh, it's only a matter of time, they had plenty of time to do it, and there's no reason to think that that is something that has to have happened. Yes. The second reason that I say that I don't think that dinosaurs would have eventually gone on to create advanced civilizations if they had survived the KPG extinction is because they did survive and they didn't go on to develop advanced. We have dinosaurs. We still have dinosaurs. And not only do we still have dinosaurs, they're part of the group of dinosaurs that is most often pointed at as those would be the ones to be super smart. Like the old school idea of the, uh, it has a name, but the, the Troodon. Yeah, the, the, the uh, dinosaur person. The, dinos- the dino person of like this hypothetical. If these animals survived, Troodon and its relatives were very intelligent, big eyes, big brains, small bodies. Here's a depiction of a human-shaped dinosaur that would have been the other intelligent species. That is the lineage that is often like, oh yeah, Velociraptors and Troodons, the small, clever, smart ones. Which, if you're trying to find parallels with apes, that is the group to go to. That's a great choice. Those are the sister group to birds. Yep. They are, that, that, them and birds form a group of some of the most distinctive and possibly socially complex groups of dinosaurs. So, not only did dinosaurs survive that extinction... The supposedly really smart ones and capable ones 
did survive that extinction and we haven't gotten an advanced civilization. We got crows. We got crows. But they have not yet built tools. <laughs> they will use tools. They have not yet hit the Bronze Age. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it, it's always very fun to think, what would it be like if advanced civilization had developed from another species. Yeah. Would we see major differences? Would the tool use be different? What if it had been birds? What if it had been XYZ? But if the question is, do I think that it would have happened mm-hmm. if humans weren't in the picture? No, probably not. Yeah. It, it seems to be, it's a one-off. We may very well be the only species that has ever ended up in the right circumstances to do that. As far as we know from how evolution of life works, we've only got the one planet and it is as likely as not that we are an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Like we could we could be a fluke that it's a weird thing that happened yep. on life here on Earth. <laughs> or it could be that, yeah, on a lot of planets, it tends to be that eventually a species does rise up to become the civilized species of that planet. But it could also be that, nope, this was a fluke. This was this weird. Was a, this was an accident. This is not. <laughs> this is not common. We don't. We don't know. So, with apologies to dinosaurs, <laughs> uh, I don't think that they they had their chance. <laughs> Next up, Sarah May asks: Once the podcast reaches enough patrons that y'all can treat yourselves to your first annual company retreat, where will you go? Ooh, we've talked about Australia. That's true. Uh, we have talked about finding a reason to go to, to Australia. Go go to Australia. We, we we recently were invited to take a trip to Alberta. Yes. Uh, so we could go to Alberta. We, those feel like very opposite choices. Yeah, those are extremely <laughs> in different. In many ways. <laughs> not only because they are in exact opposite directions. Like, not we went from the largest croc to no crocs, and that's what I'm measuring. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> not a lot of snakes up there either, so it's... <laughs> uh, we also talked about doing, like, a, a museum tour, of like, going yeah, to a whole muse- bunch of museums, museums road trip. that we we either haven't gotten to or, or, or have always wanted to. I don't know if that to. counts as a retreat. That would be, we'd do, we'd, that, that would be content. Yes. That we'd be working. Uh, so, yeah. Australia's always been the one that's kind of been my assumed, yeah. uh, just because. So, if we have any Australian listeners. We might. Uh, be ready for us. <laughs> <laughs> Alexandra asks, in your Silver Screen Science series, you often discuss the portrayal of science and scientists. Do you have a favorite movie based on an accurate depiction of scientists? A good question. There are a number of movies that have done a good job with scientists. Not to be, you know, keep coming back to the same well all the time. Mm -hmm. But Ellie Sattler is a great movie scientist. Yep. She's awesome. Yes. Uh, and, you know, in, in Jurassic Park, there are several scientists and she really stands out as mm-hmm. a very believable character, a person who is acting and thinking and talking like a scientist. Yes. She's not very tropey. I was about to say, both Grant and Malcolm are a little more tropey in it, following more of the scientist movie trope a bit. Yeah. Uh, and not to say... Kudos to the movie makers for not being sexist, because you don't get points for doing the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. But that is a very commonplace. If you're if you're gonna see tropes, it tends to happen with overlap of demographics. Yes. So a woman scientist seems like a very ripe opportunity to and end up with tropes, and she manages to not be very tropey, which yes. makes her stand out that much more. 
A similar one in many regards is Tremors. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I always forget her name. Yep, yep. I, I don't remember most people's names in, in that movie. Bert's the only one I remember, <laughs> but that's because he's in every Tremors. But the, the grad student <laughs> yes. uh, in Tremors... I don't know the actress's name. I nope. don't know. I don't know the character's name. Uh, but she is an excellent portrayal of a scientist in that she knows her stuff. But every time she gets asked about things outside of her field, she keeps going, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Why do you keep asking me? Which is such a realistic contrast yes. to the common trope of the scientist being the font of all knowledge yep. in the movie. Oh, and I've experienced that where like, as being a biologist and then getting asked a medical question. Yeah. Being like, why would that I? Happens. My dad does that to me. He'll be like, hey, I went to the doctor and he said this. What do you think? And I'm like, I don't know. I think that sounds like I think you a, should. Your doctor gave you some advice. Listen to your yeah. doctor. <laughs> uh, so those are two good. Yes. Those are two good examples. Stephanie asks a ridiculous question. Uh, I believe Stephanie uh, announced that this was a ridiculous question. This is this is self-described. If there was an all-animal Scream remake, who would be Ghostface? Who would be Ghostface? So let's... So Ghostface is a bit goofy. Uh-huh. Clearly dangerous. Yes. Ghostface is a murderer in the movie. Ghostface also... So spoilers for the Scream movies. Uh, multiple people have been Ghostface. Yes. And it... To my recollection from when I've seen them, it is often it's a it, there's a mysterious identity. It is often a it's a character who is underwhelming when the mask comes off mm-hmm. that it is like, oh, it would like a Scooby Doo villain. Yeah. So scary, dangerous, a little bit silly, s- something else on the inside. My 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 brain wants to say it's got to be some kind of monkey or primate because mm-hmm. You have a lot of them that are like like a like a capuchin or something where it's like you can be very cute and very silly and like, oh, look at the cute little monkey. And then they like open their mouth and you see the teeth inside. Right. And you're like, oh, ah, eh. or like a well, I was going to say like a baboon or a mandrill, uh, which are pretty scary to Those, begin with. Yeah, because that was where I thought first. I exactly went <laughs> yeah. there first. Well, like a baboon with its big red butt. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like I feel like some sort of primate. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'd agree with that because, cause if you're gonna have a psycho killer, uh, <laughs> primates, primates listen, are kind of where you gotta go as the, as the <laughs> only lineage of life on earth that has for sure produced psycho killers. Yep. Yeah. Primates. Yeah. That would be the, that'd be the place to you're go. You're not taking that from us. That's, <laughs> that's our us. legacy. That's you wanted what's uniquely human. That's us. <laughs> we make, we, we produce serial killers and uh, movies that's that's the real answer is that since humans are still animals you make it a human and all the other characters are endangered species well this is (laughs) (laughs) Um, i was gonna say this it's like the the meme about uh replace every actor in a movie with muppets yes except for one yeah yeah the the real killer was human yeah and what i love about this is much like scream the franchise we went really meta with this answer (laughs) yes so we are we are on brand Now you just have to decide which which endangered creatures that eventually takes us out. Is it the panda? Which is the one that rises <laughs> up. Yep. It's the panda with an inexplicable aptitude for uh, martial arts. There you, they, <laughs> now I want to see a panda on a phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But it would be like panda, red panda, yeah. tiger. Yep. 
a giant tortoise. <laughs> so these are all extinct. Oh, we did it. We, yes. That's yes. Oh. the crossover no the one cr- asked for, <laughs> but we all needed. This is it. Artists, uh, do your work. <laughs> Amy asks, somewhere in the multiverse, your fans of the Common Descent podcast, what subject would you, as listeners, request of the alternate hosts? What a fun question. Uh, I mean, snakes. Yeah, as I say, if they didn't, if they started with whatever they researched right. as their first, and, and their that's two the and question. Three. Yes, is alternate universe are Dylan Wavid <laughs> also Snake and Croc? Yes, researcher. Is it something different? <laughs> is it like frogs and salamanders? Yeah, there's just Sicilians. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's Sicilians and salamanders. Yes, hellbenders specifically. <laughs> uh, in which case, we'd be like, "Hey, you should, you should do a snakes, yes. snakes or crocs episode." We should, we'd, we'd be going in and be like, "No, best animals, right? <laughs> Come on now, do something, do something good." Uh, yeah, that that's definitely where if if for like odd topics, probably a bunch of the ones that. Like we've picked as our topics like right. like cryptozoology and speculative evolution like weird things that i was excited when i saw other people ask for them because mm-hmm. it's like i would love to talk like about venom that. venom yeah. and poison like those those very odd topics that i usually don't get to hear a good scientific discussion about yeah that was half the reason i was excited to do those so yes we would be uh happy to be Members of the cask and boil <laughs> in this alternate universe. <laughs> Tim asks, would you ever do a Darwin Day episode on a modern day scientist? That is a very intriguing question. Uh, probably not. No, I don't think so. No, I, part of the fun is that it's a historical discussion. Yes. And also, it it would be a little bit weird to do an episode about a modern day scientist and not just make it an interview yes. with that modern day scientist. Yes. But I don't know that I would do it, like reach out to a specific scientist and be like, hey, we've decided to feature you on an episode about your life and achievements. Come on over and, and do an autobiographical episode about yourself as like a one-off Darwin Day thing. Yeah. Would be, would be kind of weird. There's also a little part of me, and this might be a pessimistic part of me, but if you've listened to our Darwin Day episodes, not all of those historical figures are the best role models when looked at from every angle. Yes. And part of the reason we're able to discuss them more completely is because their story's been told. Mm-hmm. It's they're, they're dead. If we did it on a modern person, uh, we don't know the full story. Right. You might go on to do something <laughs> that it would have been really useful to include as a caveat yeah. when discussing it, you. It's also hard to do a caveat uh, and be sort of all encompassing about the true nature of this person if they're the one who's talking to yeah. you. That could technically uh, be slander. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. That could technically <laughs> be a trigger a, a legal response. Uh, so probably not. No. <laughs> Scott asks, why do we consider insects to be hexapods when nearly all adult insects have five pairs of mobile appendages, three pairs of legs, two pairs of wings? This is an intriguing question. And in contrast to something like tetrapods, mm-hmm. where you know, tetrapods have four limbs, there are a couple of things going on here. First, uh, pod means feet. Yes. So when we say tetrapod, four feet. 
hexapods, insects don't really have feet feet the way that we think of it. Yes, but walkie bits. But six legs, the wings don't count as legs. Whereas in tetrapods, the wings do count as among the four legs because they are derived from ancestral legs, which insect wings are not. Yes, we don't know for sure what body part wings do come from, Mm -hmm. but it is pretty well agreed that they were not previously legs like a bird's wing is. The other thing that is happening that's interesting in a scenario like this is that hexapod and tetrapod are both descriptive terms and cladistic terms. Uh Uh-huh. Tetrapods are within a group called Tetrapoda. Insects are in a group that is called Hexapoda, and it's named for having six feet. And ancestrally, that is a feature of the group. But then there have been tetrapods that have gone on to lose their feet mm-hmm. or to become bipedal. You're st- even though you're not tetrapodal, you are still a tetrapod because you're within this group. Insects, same thing, even if you have, like, caterpillars who Mm -hmm. develop extra leg-like structures or insects who have wings that are also, you know, limbs of of a sort, even if we counted that as not being hexapodal, you are a hexapod because you are within the group that is called hexapoda. Yes. Well, it's kind of like how decapods... Mm Mm-hmm. Many of them have modified modified front limbs that are now claws and graspers and are no longer feet. They yes. don't use them for walking anymore, but they are still the same structure overall as the legs they're using for walking. They've just refined them into a new function and shape. Ryan asks, what is the biggest obstacle currently in deciphering the phylogenetic relationships of rapid radiations? like Paleocene placentals or Triassic marine reptiles. Do we need more fossils or just a bigger computer? Uh, More fossils is always good. Yeah. Uh, Even if we get a bigger computer, more fossils will still be a critical and sought-after source of data. I'd definitely say for a lot of those, it is the fossils more than our computational power right now. Yeah. There definitely could be new techniques that might come down the pipe, you know, in the future, that allow us to reanalyze or analyze it in a new way. I don't know. I, this is where I don't know enough about our how much our limitations are computational power or that is it technique of analyzing the fossils. Like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, like our st- statistical techniques might get better over time. Yes. We, but we do need more data. Yeah. Also, better resolution in the dating of fossil bearing layers during those radiations yep, yep. is also really important. Well, and that's kind of what I was getting at is less the statistical models, but like, you know, how spectrographic study and, and analysis of fossils is a new technology that's come along. Mm-hmm. Less to do with the our, our ability to analyze the data, but new type of data. That kind of stuff might step in mm-hmm. and allow us to analyze those radiations better. We might get a way to go, all right, we've had a new way to ID different species based on the fossil because we've gotten a new way to scan the fossils. And that will allow us to have more examples of those fossils potentially now that we can identify them from different materials. So I I might be wrong. There might be a statistician out there who's like, no, no, bigger computers, please. Uh, (laughs) Right. But I would suspect that it's less to do with we can't quite read the data well enough, but that we don't have enough, like more fossils, Mm -hmm. and that 
future types of data might come along to better resolve those those situations. Yeah. Lily and Ender ask, are you guys planning to talk about Godzilla minus one in a silver screen episode? If not, can you say what you thought of it here? We are not currently at this moment planning a silver screen episode for Godzilla minus one, although it could happen in the future someday. It definitely could. I haven't seen it. Will. I has. <laughs> I, for a glimpse into more thoughts, I loved it. Uh, <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> Part of the reason and, and, you know, sharing the thoughts here that we aren't currently considered doing a silver screen is this one is much less on the explaining Godzilla than a lot of other ones were. Like the first one where they have a paleontologist come in and try to explain the origins of Godzilla. This one doesn't focus on that very much. It doesn't Mm -hmm. try to explain Godzilla. It's Godzilla is a thing and he's here now and that's what's happening. So we don't have a lot of that stuff. Still could be interesting. There's still a little bit of his biology. I don't want to get too much because I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Sure. Uh, But I very much enjoyed it. I thought it was a great film and a very, very engaging addition to the Godzilla franchise. Like one of the top stories they've told with Godzilla. Mm -hmm. Erica and Brandon both asked, what are your thoughts on the new documentary Life on Our Planet? I haven't watched it yet because my Netflix sign-in is currently not working. Oh, that's a shame. (laughs) I watched the first episode uh, of it. I uh, I thought it was okay. Mm. That was right. It is fine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There I had an, I have a number of complaints with it in terms of some of the information and the way that the information is portrayed. The animals look cool. The animations are fine. The sort of setup of the documentary is fine. Uh, I did not particularly like the first episode. Yeah. uh, So I did not continue to watch more of it. I thought I'd give it a shot. So I was not particularly impressed by the first episode. Uh, so I haven't continued to watch it. Sounds sounds like a lot of the Netflix documentaries where it's not that this is bad, but I, I have notes. Yeah, <laughs> I have no. Yeah, I do have. Uh, I was uh, dissatisfied with some of the things. Yeah. So. Next question is from Hello, Fellow Human. I am also human. Well, hey, me too. If you're on a space station with artificial gravity, how would bugs fly? How about on a planet with more or less gravity than Earth? Uh, this is an interesting question because it, it may not be seem intuitive how you f- move around in artificial gravity, mm-hmm. uh, especially flying things. Uh, if you have artificial gravity, either some sort of, you know, sci-fi push a button and gravity turns on. Yes. Or the spinning space station thing or whatever. I would imagine that flight would work basically the same way that it does uh, in regular gravity. Yes. Because you're pushing yourself up away from the ground through the air. Yeah. And there's still going to be air there yeah. that you can then move through. And like, you know, if if they were in zero gravity, they still should be able to push themselves through the air the way they do here on Earth. But they would lack the orientation and sense of up and down that they have. If you have that sense of artificial gravity, if it's a if it's a sci-fi engine, then it probably just works like gravity, I assume, because it's sci-fi magic. Right. If it's the spinning, I would be curious to know how that would affect like a fly that has stabilizing organs that react to its motion. Nothing is actually pulling on you mm-hmm. that is creating the false sense of force of centrifugal force. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, being created by the centripetal force of the movement, but 
the sense of being sent out from you know, toward the floor is a artificial force right that i don't know how it would respond in, like does the air transmit that enough right i would assume that if it's powerful enough to simulate gravity on earth mm-hmm. for us that it would basically would mean that the air is acting the way that air acts on the surface of the earth yeah because there's no reason to think that the air would be affected by the quote gravity differently than a person standing there would be well, but that, that's it. what i'm saying that on earth gravity is actually pulling you down right so there is nothing actually pulling you down in the spinning motion that is a false force. So I don't actually know mm-hmm. how, how it so, respond. And more or less gravity is also an interesting question because, once again, flight, in theory, would work basically the same way you're pushing yourself through the air. But certain aspects of flight would then change based on how powerful or weak that gravitational force is that's moving you in addition to yourself moving through the air. But uh, that it would be a good question to ask people who have worked on engineering models of like yeah. spinning space stations and stuff like that. Well, because I know we've done animal uh, observations on the space station for certain mm-hmm. things. So I can and I feel like we have taken flies to space or at least to low orbit so that we can see zero gravity with them. Yeah. And I don't remember how if they moved fine or if they were disoriented. But yeah, it's I don't yeah. know how the the lack of gravitational force would it would mostly be changing your perception of your motion, not your ability to move. Right. Like flying yeah, through that air that wouldn't change sense. it. Can you tell which is up and down? Mm-hmm. Or would you be kind of dizzy the whole time because nothing's actually pulling on the organ that's telling you which way is up yeah. and down? Yeah. Would you feel like you're falling no matter what you do? Because that's that's kind of what us being in orbit is, is us perpetually falling the whole time, all the time. <laughs> so... Would that confuse them? I don't know. Rebecca asks, can you recommend a great educational children's book about paleontology or evolution? Ooh. Uh, I do have a couple uh, that come to mind. I don't have one right off. Uh, Recently, Ashley Hall published Fossils for Kids, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a kid's book. Ashley is a paleontologist and science educator, uh, and I have seen great reviews for that book. I know that it wasn't too long ago that, I think this was Ohenya Gold, who worked on She Found Fossils, Mm -hmm. which is a book about paleontologists and finding fossils, but meant for kids. So those two come to mind. Fossils for Kids and She Found Fossils are two ones that jump to the front of my mind. Nice. I will suggest uh, Dinotopia, which is not a new (laughs) book, but they still sell it. And it is always that that is always a good one. Next up. Addie asks, what are some core facts about paleontology, evolution, and geology that you wish people knew or understood better? Like, if you could have a magic wand and the entire world would now understand these things, what would you want those core facts to be? Hmm. Interesting question. I think uh, if I I could magically wave a wand, uh, it would be less about specific facts about those topics in science and more just a general understanding of where that information comes from and how we put together all the evidence to come to the conclusions that we come to the scientific process the scientific process the general concept and breadth of the evidence that we are building on top of a lot of general distrust in science 
stems from distrusting the process of science. Yeah, not understanding how or why the answers are changing. Right. Or d- having a distrust of the motivation of scientists or not understanding why certain conclusions are being drawn or why they're different from other conclusions and a better better transparency mm-hmm. right? a more a more general understanding of how does science work where do these conclusions come from what drives these studies and why these conclusions are considered important and strong conclusions based on the evidence that they're built on yeah i i think that is a very good answer to to give one of the the more like paleontology specific ones deep time is one that i often think of in this kind of regard is that unless you've been exposed to the concept you know in in a more academic way and in a investigative way it is often very hard to wrap one's mind around Mm -hmm. the actual lengths of time we're discussing and what that truly implies about the process of life and evolution changing on our planet so that that's what i think of as kind of one of the things i i feel is very often a source of misunderstanding and miscommunication because even though we're using the same words we're not understanding them the same way mm-hmm. yeah rebecca asks in the spirit of the recent cute e episode which extinct animal would you most want to cuddle and why samasugas <laughs> that is always and will always be my answer for which one could i have as my best friend and pet is samasugas the terrestrial Little Croc. No, I still have not watched Prehistoric Planet 2, two for Simusuga. where Simusuga shows up. <laughs> I've seen some of the clips and the gifts, so I, I will eventually. But adorable little herbivorous croc about the size of a dog, you know, a, a medium-sized dog. Probably wouldn't have been super cuddly because it was covered in armor, mm-hmm. uh, so it was probably pretty pretty knobbly it's a good cuddling size uh but it, oh, I, I could sit on my lap its belly does, i don't think was armored the armor we have wasn't on the belly so it would have had a nice soft belly for belly rubs sure <gasps> oh and if it's like crocs they would go into that kind of suspended state when you roll them on their back and so you just go uh, and let you rub his belly um <laughs> next question is from you into your pants you are given a james cameron level budget Woo. true yeah <laughs> With the goal of producing a movie to alter the modern public perception of dinosaurs in the same way Jurassic Park did back in 1993. No pressure. Right. What does your movie look like? Genre, themes, animals included, specific scenes, etc. If I have a James Cameron level budget, mm-hmm. I don't think I'm going to make a movie with it. <laughs> I think there are other things I could do to further science with a James Cameron level budget. Whew. Uh, no shade on James Cameron. I also like movies. Yes. Uh, it is a great thing to do. Um, oh, man. How would we go about altering? My fir- Having not thought about this, I would be inclined to make a movie about scientists. Yeah. To make it a movie about paleontology. Uh, I don't know exactly what. Maybe it could be. What story would be told with that? Maybe it could be like a story about paleontology. And it's something dramatic like the Bone Wars. Not the Bone Wars specifically. But you create like a dramatic movie about scientific discovery and sort of the process of finding things. I don't know how you go about making that interesting. James Cameron can do it. But you intersperse it with hypothetical scenes of the animals that they are researching Mm -hmm. so that you get to have the here are dinosaurs and stuff 
on screen in this dramatic CGI exciting scenes without sort of interspersing them with humans or having to come up with a reason for them to be a Jurassic Park type thing. Yeah. But it's sort of the way documentaries will do it, where it's here's I was say, yeah, a like scientist a big budget documentary. talking and then here's dinosaurs. But in a narrative way that a better screenwriter than me <laughs> could come up with so that you can have, it's a movie about science yeah. that still is featuring the, and now I'm, I, I, it makes me think of like, you do Rashomon, <laughs> but it's different interpretations of the behavior of ancient. As uh, This was the first idea off the top of my head. I mean, that definitely sounds, it sounds like it would make a very good documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what story would slot into that. That I don't have yet. I haven't gotten that far. I'd do Dinotopia. Yeah. That's what I would do. Mm. A nice, really faithful and really t- to the spirit of what Dinotopia, it would be a little bit, you know, unscientific because mm-hmm. like the dinosaurs have a language the dinosaurs can communicate. You know, there are translators between the humans and dinosaurs so they can communicate and have society together. So it would be a bit, you know, fanciful in that regard and others. But I feel like that would be a really good one to show dinosaurs to introduce a whole bunch of dinosaurs, you know, yep. all different kinds. There's nothing there other than a couple of specific ones. There's no dinosaurs that need to be the specific kind of dinosaur they were in the story. Right. So, like, you could do a different kind of Ceratopsian than mm-hmm. they featured in the book. You could do a different kind of Stegosaur and include a bunch of recently discovered things. Yeah. You could focus on making them as accurate as possible portrayals. Yeah. And then also get to show them doing a variety of behaviors, both natural and in in unusual human situations, but still showing them as dynamic creatures. Yep. I like that it would be good for all ages. Mm-hmm. Lots of fun. And it is a way of bringing dinosaurs and such to the big screen without, you know, one of the side effects of Jurassic Park is that Jurassic Park adheres close enough to real world science yes. that it spawned a bunch of misunderstandings about real world science, yes. about genetics and about extinction. Dinotopia is something that is very clearly fanciful. Yes, exactly. And you don't have that kind of issue. So it's very easy to just go, no, they can't talk. They didn't wear clothes. Right. But. But all the other stuff. That is a real dinosaur. Mm -hmm. They did eat what we showed them eating. And we could even have them talk about what they're eating. (laughs) Like, yeah. All right. Yes. This dish for you. This dish for you. And the other nice thing about Dinotopia, which is what the books. You have a hapless new person because that's what that is a that's what it is a shipwreck survivors <laughs> come up and you will get to explain all these different dinosaurs to them on screen and the audience gets to come along with them learning as they learn yep so you get the james cameron budget and the the cgi team from prehistoric planet mm-hmm. and whoever the people are that made the lego movie yes <laughs> and you make a dinotopia movie <laughs> yep yep emily asks what did you guys study and where? Did you love it? What were your favorite modules or projects? How was your overall experience? And how come you didn't decide to pursue academia further? Ooh, very good question. Uh, we both did our graduate program at East Tennessee State University. Yep. Our master's program there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did our undergrads separately uh, uh, er- earlier colleges than that, but still focused on biology. Uh, I was in a geosciences yes. program but I did a lot of studying of biology classes. And I was a biology undergrad because that, that mine didn't have any 
geosciences where I was at. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was happy to be in biology because that was definitely, I was not focused. I was not interested in rocks to sure. any regard. So I just wanted animals. <laughs> I studied alligators, alligator skulls while I was in grad school and did not pursue it partially because my research kind of hit a bit of a wall. So I would have had to really, it would have been a major undertaking uh, to pursue that further uh, just because of a couple of complications that made it difficult to get the data we really needed to further it and realized that I enjoyed education much more than research. Yeah, I had a similar, my overall experience in undergraduate and graduate school was good. Mm-hmm. I had a great time learning. I met a lot of great people. I had a lot of great opportunities. Yes. Some of the best stuff that I got to experience uh, as a graduate and undergraduate student were the opportunities to interact with scientists, go to conferences, get involved with research projects. Stuff like that was really, really great. And then by the end of it, I also uh, hit the point where I was like, all right, research is cool, but education and science communication is more exciting and more fun and more fulfilling for me personally. Yes. So I hopped off the academic track uh, and went into this kind of stuff. Yes. And you studied like snakes and lizards. and For my master's research, I did uh, a number of projects on small reptiles. Snakes, yeah. lizards, did a little bit with turtles. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah enjoyed it. Uh, I did not do many other research projects. I really just did the one. So I, I didn't. I was, I was less into the research than David got into. Uh, I dipped my toe. <laughs> Next question. Storazzo asks, what is your opinion on people who don't have backgrounds in the field making informative content about natural history, particularly on YouTube in regards to smaller channels who don't communicate with scientists for their videos? Uh, Good question. Um, It is totally possible to make good science educational material without being a scientist or without consulting with scientists if you are doing your research properly, making sure you understand the material, making sure the information that you're sharing is up to date and accurate. There are lots of content creators, YouTube, uh, social media that do this, that that put out educational content about paleontology and other science fields. And a lot of them are really good. Yes. Uh, even smaller ones are often really good. There are a lot, even in cases where there are content creators that maybe aren't getting everything quite right or are making mistakes or something. Uh, A lot of them are doing so with an enthusiasm and an engagement that is really valuable and really important and really nice to see in science communication. Yes. There are, of course, irresponsible content creators. There are people who will make videos about stuff that they don't really understand or haven't really researched or maybe something that they should have consulted with somebody on. Uh, And of course, that's not ideal. Mm -mm. But generally speaking, uh, content, informative content about natural history and paleontology, as long as it's being done in a reasonably responsible uh, and effective way, then yeah, that's awesome. It kind of goes back to the previous question about who's considered a science communicator. Mm -hmm. There's nothing about having the credentials or being involved in science that guarantees responsible handling of that information or dissemination Right. Of that that info. Yeah. Some of the best science communicators that I know and content creators that I know are not scientists. Yeah, they do not don't have, have background. that background in mm-hmm. science. And I've seen tons of you know, famous scientists giving talks on a thing where I go, that's you're being a bit <laughs> misleading and flippant with the way you're discussing this. I I don't approve of your SciComm technique. Right. 
So there's nothing that guarantees either way that a non-scientist will be uninformative or untrustworthy or that a scientist is going to be a good communicator for those things. So So generally speaking, more content about interesting, engaging natural history uh, information is good. Yes. That is a good thing. Hopefully being done in a way that is effective and responsible. Agreed. Eric asks... Are there any examples of plant species returning to the water, similar to how some terrestrial animals returned to an aquatic lifestyle? Um, I don't fully know. Yeah. Uh, there are definitely aquatic plants, and since plants, like true plants, not mm-hmm. just like algae and other things that photosynthesize, but true plants started on land, as far as we know, yep. then that means that, yeah, your aquatic plants did return at some point. Yeah. Uh, there are tons of aquatic angiosperms. And yes. Angiosperms most likely got started on land. Mm-hmm. So things like water lilies, sea yep, grasses, yep. those kinds of things. Yeah, lily yep. was where my brain went to first, where it's like, that's definitely a land plant that's gone back to the water. Yes. Uh, I don't have any info about how that happened. Yeah, I don't like know. There... what group it came f- I don't know. <laughs> there are convergent features in plants that have returned to the water i don't know a whole lot about Mm -hmm. them like we have seagrass you know like that yes stuff like that that grows but i don't yeah uh, i don't know how often it happens i don't know if it's as common as it is with animals or Mm -hmm. if it's there's only been a couple of groups that did it and then radiated and became bunches of water plants i don't know yeah but yes there are plants that are secondarily aquatic plants absolutely ian asks i know that organic material does not fossilize well so how is it that there are seemingly so many examples of fossilized coprolites? Is it because of the calcium of ingested bone that's preserved? Uh, good question. Uh, it is not necessarily a calcium thing because a lot of coprolites don't have calcium and such in them. A lot of coprolites are herbivore coprolites mm-hmm. and such. Fossilized poop for everyone. Fossilized poop, coprolites, fossilized poop. Uh, why does that preserve? I think the the simplest and most straightforward answer is that coprolites don't fossilize very well. Yeah. Uh, there are many examples of coprolites, but I don't know that coprolites are more common on the whole than other things that don't preserve very well, like soft tissues or feathers or things like that. Yes. Uh, coprolites are actually quite rare yes uh for example to use an example we've talked about before and an at-home example the gray fossil site here in tennessee extraordinarily good preservation of animal and plant remains which Mm -hmm. does not usually happen millions of fossils preserved there hundreds of ancient taxa uh ancient species and we have essentially no coprolites yeah we have caterpillar coprolites oh yeah Uh, those have been identified but like yeah we don't have poop fossils of any of our other animals Coprolites are not actually very good at preserving. And when they do, they preserve under unusual conditions, similar to when you get soft tissues and things like that. And if there is any, like, and I don't actually know what the statistics is with coprolites and other Mm -hmm. soft tissue and and oddly preserved fossils. I don't know what the the numbers actually breaks down to. But if there is any, if it does seem like they are more common, uh, there is a benefit to that. Everybody poops. Yeah, poop is more common than, uh, you know, a a bird will produce more poops than it will produce feathers, potentially. Yes. So, like, you you have a constant chance Mm -hmm. of them falling into, but they still need special scenarios. Dr. J says, 
you can't end 2023 without one final mention of the ocean? <laughs> what was the most interesting thing each of you learned about the ocean or its inhabitants this year? Ooh, what's the most interesting thing? I think for me, and uh, far be it for me to give a point to snakes, uh, but how utterly aquatic and specialized marine snakes are too an ocean habitat is mm -hmm. crazy. Yep. I was also going to say that. That one. <laughs> like, learning about the diversity and history of sea snakes and just how well they've made it into marine organisms. Yeah. That like they are potentially the most marine adapted modern aquatic reptile by, you could definitely make a strong argument for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the most in earth's history, like that they have such an, uh, uh, ability to survive there that i was not fully aware of yeah it's intense crocs are also kind of cool yes yes they are hannah asks when referencing old episodes it seems like you know the numbers immediately off the top of your head it's impressive how do you remember all the numbers of past episodes do you just know them all or do you have a list yeah will how do you remember all the episodes <laughs> off the top of your head i don't <laughs> uh this is a thing that has been uh we've talked about before people have uh pointed this out uh i do know just all the episode numbers and topics off the top of my head uh that is not a thing we don't have the list uh, in front of us that i'm pulling it off of uh, sea Snakes, which we were just discussing, was episode 169. There is a list of episodes. We have the list of our full episodes, and we go through that list when sorting information on our website or on our playlists on YouTube or going through the stats. Uh, as far as how, uh, that's the thing that I'm good at. You're a lists guy. I'm a lists guy. Well, and it's funny because it's one of it's a very it's a very weird thing to suggest that knowing all 181 of our episodes by their number and episode topic is a thing that requires practice mm -hmm. and experience, but it does. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The reason that I have that is because I've looked over the list over and over and over again. And the reason that it sticks in my head so well is because I've been learning lists of things since I was a kid. Yeah, it, that's been a thing. It's, it's just like a little personal I don't want to call it a hobby, but like, yeah, I like memorizing a list of things. If it's got a number and another discrete bit of information, it just sticks. I always, I've always liked associating those things. Yep. I also do practice it in mm -hmm. the sense that every now and then I will sit and remind myself what the episodes yes. that we've recently done. Every now and then I'll sit down and be like, oh man, uh, we just did all the 170s. Do I know all the 170s off the top of my head? And then I will sit and I will think about it. And it turns out that I do. <laughs> but in doing so, I'm refreshing it and I'm practicing. Yeah. I also do it on the podcast. Yes. So it is a thing that I am. It's not like it. I we do it once and then it's in there yeah, forever. In a decade, I, you'd just be able to bring them all right back out. Exactly. Uh, it's a very funny thing because it started out as a joke. Yes. To make Will laugh. Yep. And then it became a thing that I did to entertain the audience because they started to notice it. And now it's a thing that I do for very pra practical reasons that we have so many episodes that it's actually really helpful for people to 
hear recommendations. Yeah, to realize we actually do have an episode about what I just mentioned. Yeah, and we've had people who are like, thank you so much for doing that because it really helps me to figure out what other episodes to listen to. Yeah. So, yeah, my little my little party trick uh, has turned into something that is actually useful for the podcast. Thank goodness. Stacy asks, do you think that extinct animals are too abstract to teach to little children? I had a boss in preschool who didn't want us to present dinosaurs because they weren't hands-on enough, and she wanted the kids to do sensory and observational science. Uh, that's a bad boss. Uh, (laughs) uh, No, I don't think they're too abstract. I definitely get where that can come from, and there's definitely things that they can be a bit too removed from. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I think, A, teaching the concept of extinction is an important aspect that you can really only teach with extinct animals. Like, you can't teach that using a tiger because a tiger is not extinct yet. And now you are giving the even more vague aspect of maybe it will be someday. But you can point at a triceratops and saying that used to be here. It's not anymore. It went extinct. So that's an important concept for understanding life on the planet. And I think you can still use them in similar ways that you would use other animals, uh, but just with the reference that, that there used to be animals that also did what the bison does by having horns. Right. Yeah. I, if you can teach kids about animals, you can teach them about dinosaurs. Yes. Dinosaurs are just animals. You can approach them with all the same sorts of things that you would to teach about food webs and ecosystems and adaptations and lifestyles. To my mind, knowing exactly nothing about this situation other than the two sentences that have been sent to us, the suggestion that dinosaurs won't work for young kids because they're not hands-on or they're not observational sounds to me like something that is coming from a person who doesn't quite understand how we study dinosaurs yes. and d- doesn't really get that there is a whole lot of science and observational and edu- and, and hands-on science happening to draw the conclusions that we have about them, yes. that we study them the same way that we study modern-day animals. Which is a common misunderstanding. Absolutely. Yeah, I made my comment flippantly because of anyone who keeps dinosaurs out of the classroom, I, <laughs> I disapprove. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, that the, there is this concept that dinosaurs are... Well, it's, it's like we were talking about with it being a phase for kids. That it's just mm-hmm. a topic. And it's like, no, no, it is... That is a incredible introduction to science and understanding the history of our planet. And even if you're not going into the depths of that, but understanding that it used to be different. You know, there mm-hmm. weren't deer running around all the way back then. Yeah. There used to not be deer. There used to be dinosaurs. Yeah. There used to not be, you know, birds. And there used to be other things flying. Like, things have changed on the planet. The planet goes through changes. Yeah. And it is a very common uh, misunderstanding of paleontology and science in general to, like we were saying before, not understand the full process that mm-hmm. is leading to these conclusions and get the idea that this is guesswork or that people are making stuff up. But if you, if you have a, if a child is capable of understanding an animal and understanding what death means, yes, kind of, at least, at least to some degree, and they can learn about dinosaurs. Yeah. It's, it's all the same. It's all the same stuff as learning about modern animals. It's, we've done tours for very young groups of students. Oh, sure. And it absolutely is, is applicable to them. You know, you have to, change the way you talk about it than you would to an older group obviously sure and again if it's really young kids extinction is about death 
and you have to be careful with yeah. that. You I, do, obviously, you have to sort of I've uh, definitely be gentle with it. <laughs> had those moments before of like, have, do they know what death is yet? Yeah. Do, do you do, do you I know need what to it... introduce that, or can I just? Because if so, maybe maybe we skip that part. Yes. Like <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be the random person at the museum. Be the person who's like, so you all know what happens when you die. But you all know that you won't be here forever. Eventually, right? you, everything you and your friends and your parents eventually <laughs> uh, won't be around anymore. Uh, so like, there are certain things that you have to be more delicate about mm-hmm. or more specific or more uh, uh, tailored to the age group you're talking about. Uh, but dinosaurs are animals. You can teach them just like you teach animals. Yeah. Well, and I also feel like it's potentially, and this one I'd love to have a conversation with someone who deal with or teach smaller children of, I, I could see that extinct animal, that extinct animals could potentially be a good introduction to the topic of death. Absolutely. That you could use that as the, there are things that aren't here anymore because they all die. They all went away. And that does happen to all things eventually, but mm-hmm. some things it's happened to all of them. And so that, it, I don't know if that would be the idea. I, that's what I was, I'd love to have that conversation with yeah. young, young uh, children, child educators. But yeah, so I think it's Best good. of luck putting dinosaurs in your classroom. Yes. Next question, Thomas asks, My work sits by a big field with unkempt grass. Snakes that live there sometimes make it into the store, and managers will kill them ASAP. What can I do to make sure these animals don't have to go through this? That is a good and tough question. Mm -hmm. Uh, The easy answer is, uh, kempt the grass. Yeah. Uh, Unkempt grass is going to be a great habitat for these animals to live, because it's where their food is going to live. But, of course, that might not be in your control, depending on what it is. There may be uh, something to be said for making it harder for things to get inside the building Mm -hmm. if there are places, if you know where they're coming in, for blocking those entrances. There's also something to be said for getting to the snakes first Mm -hmm. and demonstrating a humane and not fearful response to them. Obviously, if this is your work, there's only so much control that you have over that. Uh, It's hard to keep snakes out of a place that they want to be in without making it unappealing. And it's hard to educate people and teach people about something. Uh, If it's it's possible in that scenario, it may be something that you you can work at over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You also might, and this is just a thought that popped in my head, uh, if there's any like local nature center or, you know, people Mm. that would know would deal with these the the species of snakes you have nearby on the regular and might know advice or tips and tricks to how to handle them. You know, they might have like a if you can just get a box and do this, it's an easy way to remove them. Uh you know, yeah. they might already have set responses that they'd suggest. That's true. They also might be a more authoritative source of information or advice like if you don't have the authority to say hey trim the grass out there so that this isn't a place where wildlife is hanging out maybe if it comes from an organization like that and they're like hey we'll come down there and just clean that area up for you or you should do this here are here here is uh, uh, information about it that might be something that can help out so yeah, looking for local resources is a really good suggestion because they'll they'll know the animals that you're already dealing with. Yeah, they'll have been de- dealing with them. So best of luck to you uh, and to your snaky friends. Yes, yes. The original cat asks, "What is Will's favorite Darwin quote?" 
At the end of episode 28, you say to ask if anyone is still wondering. Well, I'm wondering. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. That was a long time ago. It sure was. Uh, I, I do not have, like, a, a specific one that I hold near and dear. Uh, I've always liked the, um, and I always flip some of the wording, the um, wondrous forms. Uh, Endless forms, most beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Endless forms, most beautiful. Because yeah. we almost went with that as part of the title. Yeah, we considered it. For the podcast. So that one's always stuck in my head because it's a great term. It's a great line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it is connected to the podcast. So that's one I've always uh, 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 resonated with. I like that one a lot. Yeah. I think that one is part of the big quote that I read mm-hmm. as my favorite quote in that episode. Cause yeah, it's the, it's the classic. That's, it's awesome. That, but that, that right there, that little snippet, that, that would be the part of that, that I like the best. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> Next up, Renee asks, you each have to choose an organism to be transported fresh from the Cambrian period and then eat it. What do you choose? Oh, man. <laughs> Fresh from the kiss. So much shellfish to choose yep. from. Well, because on the one hand, you can go with something safe and pick like early bivalves yes. or something. Yes. Something similar to that. Some sort of crustacean-y thing. Probably some sort of crustacean-y thing. Yeah, that like was where my brain Cambrian, went. Cambrian. Uh, cra- there, there weren't crab crabs no. there. But something like crab or shrimp that would have been around back then. Uh, I don't know that trilobites would be particularly. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of meat to a trilobite. Nah, not not really. Though I would be very curious. Uh, That's true. And if we're just going on curiosity, yeah. Uh, Anomalocaris. Yes. Bring yeah. me an Anomalocaris and sh- point to where the meat is. Yes. As long as we get to like you know steam it and and well yeah we're gonna make it you know make it work. We need it. It needs to be editable. It needs to be editable, and then uh, you can share it. Yeah. The Anomalocaris is a lot there. Yes, that'd be plenty. <laughs> yeah. Huh. That'd be fun. Next question comes from Atopodentatus. Is there anything you regret doing when you were an undergrad? What do you think people who are just starting a geology degree should avoid? Uh, I mean, I don't have anything I regret in regards to my degree. Uh, so, like, I have social choices. Like, <laughs> friends I was friends with and, and uh, people I dated. That sure. I, I, I have. If I could go back, I'd be like, hey, I, go I ahead have... and put a pause on that ways that i acted yeah. when i was 19 that yeah. i would go back and uh, not do that uh i had loans that i took out that <laughs> i i might have advised myself differently on uh no not not anything that like boy i wish i had taken that class because that really would have changed my future path yeah uh, i'm sure there are things that i could have taken that could have had that effect but i don't have any that like i kick myself over and I think part of that is just that you're you're it doesn't feel like that would have just made the difference. Yeah, that it would have just changed fundamentally the way I experienced my schooling from then on. They all feel like things of that would have been interesting to have that information. But the information I had was was often plenty. Yeah. Uh, as far as things to avoid, that's an interesting phrase because so often my advice is things to do. Mm-hmm. You know, do engage with other people who are involved in the stuff that you want to be involved in. Uh, do talk to as many people as you can and see what opportunities there are that are available. Do take a variety of classes and work on a variety of projects to sort of get yourself. You know, don't try to avoid getting into a 
single path, you know, mm-hmm. give give yourself options, give yourself a broad foundation for starting off. I, I would say, I'd, I'd say if I, because there's not a lot that I'd say to avoid. Like, yeah. I want to be like, avoid things that don't have to do it. No, because that can be a big deal for people. Like, the fact that I, w- I was in plays in college, I am very grateful for. Mm-hmm. It. Has yep. nothing to do with my career, really. Uh, but I'm really grateful I got to do that. Yeah, I studied three languages. Yeah. In con- None of them were particularly useful uh, directly for what I ended up going on but to do. wouldn't give it up. But it was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the thing I would say to avoid would be don't get... Uh, like you were saying, getting on trap, you know, stuck on all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. And, and even kind of more so to a, give yourself the leniency to be flexible because things are going to change. Mm -hmm. So don't make out a plan that you're like, and this is how I'm going to become a geologist. It's this or nothing. And if I'm not on this path, I am failing because that's probably not true. And there are lots of ways to pro- very likely to get where you're picturing. Mm-hmm. And so allow room for flexibility, allow room for change, you know, give yourself the grace to mess up yes. uh, that kind of stuff. Those are the things I would avoid is expecting too much of your plans to plan to, to line up the way you've planned them and to not give yourself the, the room to try other things or try out a different idea and so forth. Because even if you do not take a class right up front, there's always a chance to catch up. Yeah. Like, you can take that class later or you can study the stuff you need later and then take that next step. Like, yeah. There's not a limit to when you can learn a thing. So, I, I'll say, uh, be kind to yourself. Yes. And and drink water. Drink uh, Yeah, drink water. Drink water. That's a great, yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Here's an avoid. Here's an avoid. Yeah. Specifically for a geology degree. There is a very heavy drinking yes. culture. There's yes. a very heavy drinking culture in geology. And if you want to do that, go for it. Uh, but be responsible. Be responsible. But also, uh, you don't have to do that. No, that doesn't there, need there, to be part of it. There is a lot of, just like with anything, there can, you can encounter clickishness. Yes. And you can encounter expectations of stuff like that. As you're going through, I remember when I was, uh, especially when I was in college, I had a whole lot of anxiety about what I should be doing, Mm -hmm. whether it was social stuff or whether it was like, I should be doing this right now to get myself started, or I should be uh, interested in these things. I should want to go on hikes. And I never wanted to go on hikes. And I did not like that about me for a long time before I finally went, you know, it's kind of okay to just not like hiking. Yes. It's okay to not want to go do that, even though all the other geology students seem to be going off and doing stuff like that. Uh, So avoid letting yourself get too caught up in the pressure of the expectation of the the group or field that you're in the way i've seen it don't should yourself don't Uh, should yourself don't should yourself yourself to death (laughs) exactly (laughs) it's not worth it uh and and don't stress on like are you missing out on the college experience because you're not doing those because your college experience is fine as long as you're enjoying yourself and as long as you're doing okay everyone's college experience is different the cliche one is not the only one Yes. You're doing okay. Also, your college probably has like a counseling center. Mm-hmm. Go to the counseling center. Yeah. No, because it I, costs money later. <laughs> yeah. Later on, it costs money <laughs> to get therapizing. Yeah. Uh, go to the counseling center. Benefits everyone to get to to be able to talk out loud about the way you're what feeling. A, what a great start to be able to do it without having to have insurance or anything to back you up. Yeah. 
Uh, so yeah, there's a bunch of advice from some uh, old guys. <laughs> <laughs> Next question, Catherine asks, do you have any recommendations on how to start playing D&D? Oh, fun question. Mm-hmm. Um, Go to YouTube and watch Ginny D... <laughs> and or Matt Colville. Yeah. Those are my top those are my top recommendations for how to start. Uh both of them have excellent videos on advice for how to get into it, how to get started. As far as actually getting it happening. Yeah. To actually play. Uh depending on where you are, there may be groups that play. That it seems more common now than anywhere. Yes. If you're interested in getting interested in it, which it sounds like probably not, you probably already have it. There's lots of content online that you can engage with, Dimension 20 and Critical Role and all sorts of uh, uh, actual play podcasts and series. For actually getting started, there are often places, especially if you're at a university or something, that will have groups where you can go and join a, a game for a day. There are or groups online that will organize online playgroups. There has been talk on our Discord server yep, yep. from people who are looking for players for uh, D&D games. The way that I got started in D&D, because I, I also tried, I've tried in the past going and joining other groups. Mm-hmm. I did that once. I went to a game store and I joined a group that was playing. And I didn't love it. Yeah. Mostly because what I've come to learn is that what I want from D&D is to hang out with my friends. Yes. Uh, and so doing it with another, with a group of random strangers, it was still D&D and so therefore still fun. But I'm not actually into D&D for D&D. Yeah, just raw. Purely. I'm into it because I want to do something fun with my friends. I started D&D because I didn't know anybody who ran D&D or played D&D. So I ran D&D. Yes. I got a bunch of friends and I said, who wants to play D&D? I'm going to put together an adventure and start it. Which is a perfectly valid way if you want to play, but you don't know of a place to play. You don't have a, a group to join or an online community uh, who's looking for players. There are tons of resources for how to put together a simple adventure or modules that already exist that you can just grab a little adventure. Get some friends together, sit down and start playing D&D to get things moving. Get the, you know, the first game that I ever did. Uh, for a group of friends that included Will, did a little adventure. I made up a little adventure. We finished, and I said, you guys want to keep playing? And everyone went, yes. And I said, do you want to keep playing with these characters? And everybody said, yes. And then we played for a year and a half. Yep. It is a great way to get your friends into the game. It is a great way to become the DM of your group, Yep. uh, which I have yet to shake, (laughs) uh, because I love it, because that's that's what I want to do. Because you keep making (laughs) I keep making, I keep keep (laughs) having ideas. Uh... And all of you just, you're so fun to play with. And yeah. I keep doing it. Uh, it's also a great way to trick your friends into getting interested in running games. Yes. The biggest piece of advice I'd give is more just generally th- the group you play with matters. Mm-hmm. It's not that there are right and wrong groups. There are some wrong types of groups and, and <laughs> toxic personalities. <laughs> sure. You shouldn't like, there are some wrong ways to do it just that are socially not very acceptable. But the group you play with matters. You might not have a group of friends nearby that are up to play, so you can't always just play with your close, trusted friends. If you do have to go find a group, check the vibe of the group. If you're not into that group, try a different group. It is okay to say, this group doesn't work for me. Yes. Because that that can make or break your experience if you're not playing with people that you gel with. Uh, that D&D is very much... It's, it's, a, it's a part that I don't always hear discussed that, you know... 
Civ is just like, yeah, go find a group to play with. It's like, oh, find the group that works for you to play with. Yep. Because you might not be enjoying it and you might just think that D&D is not working when really it's just they're not playing it the way or they're not making the the atmosphere the way that would be most welcoming and comfortable for you. Yep. Also, Ginny D. Yeah. D-I, Ginny D. Go, go watch Ginny D's videos. The next question is from Apoorva. I'm studying to be an animator, but I've always had an interest and deep fascination of paleontology. What are some possible opportunities to be involved in research as an outsider from the field? Ooh. Uh, well, I mean, as an animator, there's ton of paleo animation that can go into documentaries and even games and other projects that would be portraying extinct organisms uh, moving around and doing stuff. Yeah. Uh, there are research projects that use animation and stuff to model, you know, the movements or biomechanics or things that we would expect or how it would look based off of the the you know measurements and the numbers and the data uh i don't know exactly where the overlap between that and programming and other other computational skills mm -hmm. come in so there's definitely direct aspects of research and of psycom yeah, that there, there are ways to that. apply those skills mm -hmm. in general uh volunteering like just just generally from the outside trying to get into paleontology volunteering is a great way if there's a museum or anywhere nearby that deals with research or psycom mm -hmm. there are i don't know of any currently paleo ones but there are like science projects on the internet that take in you know like, like crowd science yeah yeah projects uh, crowdsource help and work on the research yeah. the other thing is if there's research that you're interested in either doing or getting involved with uh, find paleontologists and talk to them. Yeah, just reach out to those people doing that work. See if there's room uh, for the idea that you have or if you hear about research that you think is interesting that you might be able to uh, contribute to. Talking to people who are already in the field is the way to get into the field and get involved in those kinds of projects. Yes. So yeah, good luck. Yeah, best of luck. Next up from Frederick. What do you personally speculate could have existed in the past but do not have any direct evidence for. Hmm. My favorite answer is uh, uh, goofy dinosaurs. Goofy dinosaurs, yeah. Dinosaurs doing silly dances and singing silly songs and doing show-offy show things like we see birds and a lot of other animals do today. Yep. I, I maintain that there must have been goofy dinosaurs. Yes. I like that one a lot. Uh, this one, I, I don't think about this one often, but this came into my brain as uh, reading this question, weird cephalopods, mm. like weird octopus uh, that like, cause already today we have weird members. Were there particularly weird and probably cause a lot of them, we might only have their beak. Like, right. We don't have all the parts that would have shown us that it's <laughs> actually super bizarre that like four of the arms were bigger than the other four arms. And it was a weirdly proportioned octopus. Cause Probably those are a very odd group with very weird anatomy that specialize that anatomy in peculiar ways. Yeah. 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 That's a fun one. Eric asks, I recently came across what appeared to be a pair of hominid fossils being sold on eBay. Besides reporting them to eBay, what other resources are available to refer items like these to the proper authorities? Ooh, that is a very good question. There are definitely people you can contact 
we talked a bit about how there are laws around fossils and stuff. And so you can usually contact, you know, either directly local authorities, but there's often um, organizations that oversee those rules and are the ones that deal with most of those cases. Here in the United States, the main agency that deals with that kind of stuff is the National Park Service. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, There is a there are laws specifically about Native American remains, uh, human remains here in the U.S. that are dealt with largely through the National Park Service as the authority. I don't know what the rules are if they're like African hominid remains that are, you know, more ancient remains or things like that. But that would be a good place to at least start. Because they'll know who to then contact like after yes. that. Uh, but they, they contacting and if you if there's a local organization that you, ha- you know, in your area, even if they end up doing that contacting to the national parks, but handing off to the local, you know, uh, uh, nature or or people who would be handling the the, the artifacts in that area. Right. Your, uh, your local repository, yes. a museum or whatever. Uh, so. So, yes. Yeah. So there there, there should be uh, hopefully there are resources to deal with stuff like that. Uh, and good on you for reporting that one. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. Human remains should not be just wantonly passed around. No. That uh, is not and something... indeed, uh, it is illegal. Yes. It is illegal to do so. We, we shouldn't just uh, uh, have a market for those. No. <laughs> Next question from TJ. What's your favorite off-the-wall docuseries about prehistoric animals? Mine is Prehistoric Park, where they would go back in time and collect species from different time periods. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. That was part of the chased by sea monsters. Well, it, 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 so right. like, are those the, the, I think by, of the right ones? Chased by dinosaurs was with Nigel Marr. And then I think this was kind of a spinoff of that. Okay. It wasn't part of the same series, but it is a kind of sister series to it. Yeah. Those are, that's, it's a fun group of, of sort of wacky uh, docuseries. Actually, I also, they did the T-Rex autopsy. Oh, yeah. One that was a paleo uh, documentary. That was a pretty cool concept. That's a very neat one. That was neat. Uh, yeah, the the chased by and the prehistoric part probably would have been my answer. Uh, I'm trying to, the future is wild also got mentioned earlier. And mm-hmm. as a kid, that used to be one of my go to's. Uh, so those are there's also Alien Planet. Uh, oh, yeah. That what was a little bit more off the wall then the future is wild but had some interesting parts to it i like mm-hmm. i used to watch those a lot as a kid so the, yeah th- there's some good ones out there cj asks what prehistoric mammal are each of you most curious about and why Ooh, uh giant sloths probably for yeah grand giant ground sloths are really really something weird and special but what did you look like did you look as weird as you look on the inside did you look surprisingly mundane how did you actually move around? Yep. A uh, very similar vein, uh, Calicathirs. Yes. Just the weird, the weird ones. Also, those those early mysterious bats that yep. we were asked about uh, earlier in the Q&A. Yep, yep. Uh, Thylacoleo is another one that I've always been curious about because mm-hmm. it, it gets often compared to big cats, but it was also very weird and different from big cats. So how were you hunting? Did yeah. you Did you move around? You know, kind of like how the the Tasmanian uh, uh, wolf moved a lot like a dog. Like, mm-hmm. did you just also move surprisingly normally, or were you moving kind of weird, like a lot of other marsupials? Where it's like, 
wombats, you you move in a wombat kind of way. You're very odd, you very move, distinctive. Exactly. Were you like a big predatory wombat? Like how did ah? I'm curious. Yeah. Also, those early whales. Yes. Ambulocetus, and mm-hmm. the, the, that would be really interesting. To how does about. a mammal that shape? Because it's that's a different shape than an otter. Yes. That is different than quite anything we have today. What were you doing? Good question. Next up, John asks, could bipedal carnivorous dinosaurs have caught some of their prey by stamina through efficient running the way human hunters do? Uh, good question. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is a hunting style that is sometimes called persistence hunting or endurance hunting, yep. which is walking or running after prey and just chasing it until it gets tired. Yeah. Uh, this is something that, that humans do. Uh, humans who hunt wildlife uh, will do this. It's also something that like wolves do that they are going to follow over long distances. And basically the idea is that you just keep the prey moving. You don't let mm-hmm. it sit and rest. So you're not just following it so slowly that they can just take a break. You're always just far enough back that they can't ever rest and you have more stamina than they do, and eventually they collapse. Yes, and sometimes it is running after them to sort of tire them out. Other times it is very much like a like a horror movie. Yeah. It's just walking so that they can never stop in one place. But either way, you're moving not at top speed. You're just moving fast enough that they can't take a break. Yes. You're just staying near enough that they always are on edge, and they're always having to keep going. Uh, there are a bunch of predatory dinosaurs that were very well adapted for walking. Yeah, efficient. Or for, uh, very walking. efficient. Uh, tyrannosaurs are an example of these. They have a structure to the foot that not only sort of the proportions of the foot, but also the structure of the bones in the foot. Uh, tyrannosaurs, for example, have this famous arctometatarsalian condition that makes the foot bones extra sturdy. Mm-hmm. And just really good. It's a similar adaptation to what we see in things like horses and wolves that would have made them really efficient movers. Now, this could be for patrolling territories. There's a lot of reasons why it's good to be efficient at walking around. But they very likely could achieve this behavior. Yes. They're good enough that they probably could have outwalked another species. So, yeah, there's a there's a decent chance that there would have been dinosaurs that hunted this way and tired out their prey by chasing after them. And as we often say, I'd be surprised if there weren't. Same. Because that is a very common pursuit strategy for a number of different kinds of predators today of, I'm just going to stay behind you long enough that eventually you get tired or make a mistake, mm-hmm. and then I can come in for the kill. And I only need one of you, even if it's a group of you. I just need one of you to get too tired to keep up. Yes. And that that just makes sense. Janelle asks, If you visited Earth during or just after a mass extinction, would the planet seem obviously out of whack, or would you need to see the fossil record to know that a mass extinction had happened? That is an excellent question. If it's, uh, you know, if it's us or if it's someone else visiting, uh, you would need some other reference point. Uh, mm-hmm. you'd, you'd need to at least have some other frame of reference for what the planet has looked like at another time because you need to have an idea of what, you know, quote unquote, normal Earth would look like. Otherwise, you, you know, if, if it's an alien visiting Earth, for instance, they don't know that this isn't what Earth looks like all the time. Right. So you would need some context and if it's us traveling back in time Mm -hmm. then we have today's context and 
it, probably we'd be able to make a decent inference of at least something's off. Yeah, I, this often, you know, we talk about mass extinctions and this came up earlier that a mass extinction isn't a thing that happens in a day. Yes. It's a protracted process. My guess is that I would say that if you went to a single place on the planet at a single time during a mass extinction event, you probably wouldn't know that it was a mass extinction. Not just like right off the bat. Right. If you were able to sort of analyze the ecosystems, you might be able to say, well, this ecosystem is unhealthy or missing important components to it or not it seems oddly lacking in certain groups of of organisms big animals uh you might get a sense that something's wrong in this ecosystem i don't know if you could identify a mass extinction from by standing in a mass extinction yes like no even on the on the tail end of like the asteroid impact at the end of the kpg You'd be able to tell that something apocalyptic had happened. Yeah. But I don't think mass extinction is something that you can you identify with the benefit of being able to look over the thousands of years that it happened and the millions of years that came before and afterwards. So I think you can notice a lot of the weird things we notice when we look for the evidence of a mass extinction of if you're in the middle of ancient Africa and you go, there's not a single animal above the size of a dog. Mm-hmm. That's weird. Yes. That's weird. Something's unusual here. And you might eventually go, maybe a lot of animals went extinct recently. Right. But I don't think, yeah, you wouldn't get that just like, oh my gosh, look at the massacre. Yes. Because it's not all instantaneous. Yeah, that's um, a really interesting question. So yeah. Ultimately, I think you would have to be able to look at the fossil record, you know, yeah. if you were transported or if, if an alien was transported to a point on Earth when a mass extinction, they would need the rest of the evidence right. to be able to say, oh, there used to be a lot more and right. now there's not. Well, and to put a sort of a fine point on it, that's how we know that we are experiencing high levels of extinction yep. today is by comparing it with what we know of the past. Yeah, if you ask people a few hundred years ago if the Earth is weird, they'd be like, no. No, this is normal. This, this is, is how, how the this Earth is how it's always been. has always been. <laughs> exactly. Next up, Ari asks, Throughout Earth history, every extinction provides new opportunities for future life. In light of this, what are your thoughts on the ethics of conservation? By saving some species, are we removing the opportunities for the next generations? From a deep time perspective, why should we try to conserve nature? A very intriguing question. Uh, this has come up here uh, before the, the, the idea that, yeah, extinction is normal. Extinction yes. is a regular process that happens here on Earth. So much of our conservation efforts historically have been focused on this species is disappearing. Let's save this species. And on the one hand, it often is focused on species that we are the reason that they're going extinct. Yes, they were not just happening to no longer sync up with their environment. We messed it up for them. Yes, in a way that feels to us like it wouldn't have happened otherwise. Yes. That this is something that we kind of came in and changed. But then again, are we not denizens of the same planet? Do we not uh, fit into the grand ecosystems of the world? Are we not a force uh, similar to other things that have caused extinctions and mass extinctions? It's ha- the the topic that comes up with calling anything humans make unnatural. Yes. Like, oh, but we, we evolved here too, and now we're just making it. It's, feels like this is as unnatural as a beaver dam. 
And part of this is part of the reason why conservation efforts have shifted over time to be less about individual species and more about ecosystem health. Yes. Do we have complete healthy ecosystems, regardless of what specific species are in them necessarily? Are all the components that should be here here are all of the features uh, that make an ecosystem work properly yeah, and be able to support life? Yes. All that being said, I mean, yeah, we are removing opportunities for future. I, every forest that we save, that could have been a place that was then became home to other species that would have moved in and then diversified and potentially set up a healthy ecosystem there over time. Yes. Kind of either way we're messing with the environment. From a deep time perspective, it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, I, things will recover, things will bounce back, things will continue to radiate and diversify and establish and come and go over the many millions of years. I think the main difference between the right now perspective of conservation and the deep time perspective of, you know, future from a future perspective, what we're doing now is one is speculative and mm -hmm. one isn't. What we're doing right now is dealing with the situation that is in front of us. Yes. Are we removing the possibility for potential new species? Yes, but we also don't know what those would be, nor that they would even happen the way we are speculating they might. Right. And we're removing those possibilities by providing possibilities for the species that we have now. And so in, a, in my perspective, the argument for conservation from a deep time perspective is that if we want there to be a deep time... For many of these organisms and potentially for us ourselves, we need to stabilize things a bit more now because mm -hmm. right now at the rate we're going, there might not be a deep time for a lot of us. We There might not be humans to look back millions of years from now to mm -hmm. see how things did and didn't change based on our actions if we don't take a, be a, better, a, a, a better accounting of how the plan is doing right now. Yeah, I, yeah I th the big difference between what we're doing to the planet and what has happened in extinction events in the past is that it's something that we're aware of and have the ability to stop. Yes. And that really, you know, yes, we're messing with the environments and the ecosystems that are around us, but what we've been doing is not good. Mm -hmm. we, causing massive ecological disturbances. Things would generally be better for the things that are here now if we weren't doing that. And we can stop that. Yes. We can correct course. We can't put things back exactly where they were, and we can't know what is going to come next. But we can at the very least make changes to our own behavior now so that we aren't having these dramatic effects on things moving into the future. Yeah. So there's uh, and when I've heard versions of this question before, it feels like sometimes there it is trying looking for is there a a, a kind of disconnected moral argument for conservation mm -hmm. and the truth is a lot of the reasons for conservation are still because either we feel guilty for what we have done or we want the world to be better because we, uh, we, are, we live in it we live in it <laughs> and we want it to be better for us and even if we are just doing it because we want it to be for, better for the animals it's, it's still what we want yeah so there are always going to be aspects of we're doing it because we want to and some of that want might be kind of counterproductive or missing the point but that will it will always kind of cycle back around to it because it's a thing we're doing mm -hmm. so it will always kind of have a human-centric 
concept to it, at least uh, to some degree. So yeah, good question. That's a very thought-provoking question. Kylie asks, in your Bats episode, you explained why morphology and the fossil record make it difficult to pin down the evolutionary origins of bats. Why haven't genetic studies cleared things up yet? Ooh, yeah. Typically, that is a very good way to go is to just compare the genetics of different groups and say, well, you seem to be most similar to this group. But if genetics have changed a ton, so much so that there are now no easily recognizable similarities between two groups, then you might not be able to get that resolution. Mm -hmm. And you can get genetic similarities without it being due to relation. Also, not all of the early members of the bat lineage have left direct descendants behind. Mm -hmm. So we're missing a lot of information with the genetics can only give us what we have today. Yes. We can't get DNA from those earliest bats. So if there are things that have changed a lot, like you're expressing, we don't have that. And if there were early branches that just died out, we don't have DNA from those. Yeah. So, so genetics can only actually get us so much. Yeah. You you can have, just like we've had moments in the history of understanding relations using fossils and you know skeletal anatomy, you can get moments of, well, these two skulls look real similar. It's like, all right, cool, but I think that's convergence. I right. don't actually think they're that closely related. That happens all the time. That can happen with genetics. Yes. You can get two genes and go, these look real similar. It's like, yeah, but is that just because they're doing the same thing? Mm -hmm. Is it just convergent genetics? Or is that something that's, yes, it is ancestral, but it's also ancestral in this other group of mammals, which is definitely not related. Like that, this is a a broader mammal feature, which isn't really going to help us nail down where they go. Yeah. So you... You can run into just as many troubles in genetics as uh, other fields because it is still just one other way to analyze them. Next up is Drosophilist. For us listeners, there are only a few seconds of music between segments of an episode. How long are those interludes for you in a typical recording session? Oh, fun question. Mm-hmm. Uh, it varies. Yes. Uh, we will often use that time to take a little break. Yep. Uh, get up, uh, use the restroom, refill our water or whatever. Sometimes we just go right through. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the break for us is about as long as the break is for you. Other times we do take it as an opportunity to get up and stretch. Yeah. Every now and then it'll be those moments of, oh, I thought of a thing that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So I didn't say it, but I Here, forgot to tell you about some chit chat. This yeah thing I saw yesterday because you made this joke in this first section. Uh, so there are definitely segments that I'll cut out in our funny dialogue, but unrelated and often not e-rated because now we're just chatting yep. <laughs> so we <laughs> emilio asks since the start of the annual q a the podcast has received hundreds of questions my question is has there been a question that has stuck with either of you or that has left an impact on the podcast itself Ooh, i mean we've definitely got questions before that spark really good conversation and everything uh, I, I unfortunately can't like remember previous ones clearly right off the top of my head. Yeah, we, there have definitely been questions we've gotten on the Q and a that inform our approach going forward. Yes. We get asked a lot about how do you get involved with paleontology? What is advice for, you know, going into college? Like we have gotten on this Q and a yep. a couple times already. And those have definitely, for me, adjusted the way that I think about some of those mm-hmm. things. 
my preparedness to answer questions like that. I, I seem to remember there being some discussion very early on where someone asked for advice for, you know, getting involved in paleontology, and we gave an answer that later on through further discussions, I would look back at our original answers and realize that we were giving answers that were applicable for us. Yes. Like, these are answers that are perfectly applicable if your situation is very much like my situation. Yep, yep. But it might not be, and so I've adjusted the kinds of ways that I answer certain questions or think about certain aspects of our field based on getting these questions in the past or or reflecting on how I've answered them previously. I, I, I definitely, and like I said, I can't recall any like word for word of the specifics. And in a very similar vein to those, the ones that p- just me personally often I feel the most while answering are ones where people are asking about like their personal situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly just because it, it is, I am, I am honored that you're asking us like that you want to hear and that this is something that actually might affect your life. It's like, you, you actually might make a decision off of what I say here. And I, that I, I take that to, to heart. I take that. Ser- and so those often are the ones I, I feel most impacted by. Yeah. Next question is from Danielle, the bug lover. So we got to see David's girlfriend on the Patreon live stream. She is adorable, by the way. What are the chances of seeing Wills? Can we get a few details how you met? In my mind, you both met them through the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Will? I So yes, my girlfriend, Anna. There, I, There's nothing that is stopping her necessarily from showing up, but uh, it is not often that she is here when we're doing that because she is also out of town. Yes. Uh, Nora also made it onto the live stream in part because she's been involved with yes. podcast stuff a bunch. And like Anna's like she's made some of the art that's on our, our merch mm-hmm. stuff. So like she yep. she's done stuff like that. But uh as for how we met, we met way back in high school. You uh, met before I knew you. Oh yeah. No. Uh I've known Anna longer than most other individuals that are still in my life. <laughs> uh we hadn't we weren't dating that whole time. Uh we weren't uh, uh, an item, so to speak. So we were not high school sweethearts. Um, it wasn't until later that we actually started dating each other. Um, but she is super cool. And if ever it syncs up that she could be here during one of those live streams, uh, maybe I'll be able to convince her to yeah. pop on. Come see us at Dragon Con. Yes, that is that is the, <laughs> the best guarantee. <laughs> Here's a question that, uh, to two very similar questions. Mike asked, if you could each design the next fossil Pokemon, what would they be and why? And Taterboy said, if you were commissioned to design the Generation 10 fossil Pokemon, one each, what would you design? Ooh, very fun questions. I often say some sort of prehistoric mammal because mm-hmm. we haven't gotten anything in that regard. We've gotten other Pokemon inspired by that are mammoth-esque. And right, saber-tooth cat-esque. Yeah. But, but there hasn't been a mammal fossil yes. Pokemon. And I like a bunch of the ones we have other than things like sea lilies, which are still around, like crinoids are still around. I don't think we've even got anything that reaches into the Cenozoic. So it's all pre Yeah, they're age all of at least directly based on Paleozoic and Mesozoic things. So some, something from the Age of Mammals would be cool. The one I've often argued for is a giant ground sloth mm-hmm. that is rock fighting. Yep. That that's 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 the one I would vote for. Yeah, I like that idea. Uh, I'd partially be tempted to go do more invertebrates. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The early 
couple batches of fossil Pokemon were so cool because they were really prominent fossil invertebrates, uh, which don't get a whole lot of love. It'd be really cool to see a take on like a Brachiopod Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pokemon. That'd be pretty neat. Uh, Or uh, if they want to try to do the thing that they were ostensibly trying to do in the Galar region with the mix-up fossils uh, and going with the Mesozoic thing, I would have it be a fossil skull that you then take it to the researcher and it turns out that it was accidentally put two things together Mm -hmm. and it was actually two different fossils that had been mistakenly combined together. So you get two uh, fossil Pokemon. And if we're going on the Piltdown Man thing and it's a skull, it could be the, the cranium was one and the jaw was the other, like Piltdown Man. Yep, yep. And then you get a big brain Pokemon and a big jaw Pokemon, and they could be psychic and dark type. Yes. Yeah, I so. like that. Next question, Michael asks, some species intentionally get drunk, but this often leads to bad outcomes. Why have these species not evolved an aversion to alcohol? Uh, That is an interesting question. As far as I know, the evidence for species intentionally getting drunk is dubious. Yes. Uh, There are a lot of stories about animals getting drunk, and there are a lot, you know, eating fermented fruits Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Same with other forms of of drug use and and, and intoxication. To what extent this is something they're intentionally doing for the buzz, right, for the feel of it, that we don't really know that there's a lot of anecdotal stories there's not a lot of real good documentation of it as far as evolving an aversion to alcohol part of it might just be that it's not that big a deal yeah if it is only if if it's happening just as often as we've heard anecdotal Mm -hmm. evidence for it and even if that is legitimate if they are actually doing that on purpose that is not super common that you hear stories about that it's not like that is just a oh yeah these animals do it all the time nope it is a fairly rare occurrence, yep. so it's probably just not common enough. Also, the attraction to things that are alcoholic tends to be a side effect of being attracted to things that are nutritious and mm-hmm. beneficial, things that are very sugary and whatnot. So it is likely to be a, a occasionally quirky side effect to something that actually is very important and yes. important to be selected for. Yeah. Uh, The only species that we know for sure is drinking lots of alcohol for fun is humans. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, that's not something that appears to be affecting our evolutionary trajectory. Yes. So it would not be something we would evolve an aversion to. Exactly. Like it's, it's either might not be common enough. There might be benefits that are associated with it and it might not be detrimental enough. (laughs) Right. Next question is from Katya. This is a great question for Will. Which animals would pull Santa's sleigh in the Mesozoic? Ooh, that's a good question. Now, you'd think pterosaurs would be the answer, but that's the whole point. They're magic reindeer. Right. Uh, So it doesn't need to be something that already flies. These would be magic. I think I would say some sort of ceratopsian. Mm -hmm. That's where I want to go with. And protoceratops. Ooh. That that is... That's a little short. That's a little smaller than a reindeer, but... Rangers sure. also just have I mean, really long legs. Mammals were smaller back then. Yes, so Santa exactly. would also be oh, yes, a no. smaller uh, species. Very good point. Uh, I, protoceratops. I think I, a protoceratops uh, makes me very happy. 
to yeah. picture those pulling a sled. I do think it's very funny that reindeer are notoriously cold climate yeah. animals and protoceratops comes from a desert. Yes, yes. So it's a, it was a different time. Yep, yep. Uh, there wasn't a there wasn't a ice cap. Oh, though you could go with one of those those arctic uh, or northern circle dinosaurs mm-hmm. that have been found there. There uh, were ceratopsians. There, there were, were ceratopsians. northern dwelling ceratopsians. So yeah, I don't know those well enough to give you a, a species name, but one of those yeah, would be Pachyrhinosaurus. Cool. Uh, there, there's been uh, I've seen art that will depict them in sort of yes. more northern uh, realms. Yeah, th- there you go, Pachyrhinosaurus. <laughs> Next up, Tirup asks, "What are the closest hyenodon relatives still alive today?" Uh, good question. Hyenodon and the other creodonts and such. Uh, had, there, it, it's a big mystery historically as to exactly where they fit uh, in mammals. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, they're considered to be close to the lineage that is carnivorans and their close cousins. Yes. Uh, so very possibly bears and cats and dogs and the other carnivorous mammals are the closest thing. And if not them specifically, something closely related to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be something weird like pangolins, which are also kind of a weird where exactly yeah. <laughs> do you go. But for for simplicity, uh, likely carnivorans. R. Smith asks, can you please explain molecular phylogenetics? Happily. Go ahead, Will. So phylogenetics is the process by which we make the, you know, the family trees of different organisms. That's a phylogenetic tree. And basically you're using some sort of measurement. Here it will be molecular. You're using some sort of data on those organisms and you're comparing the similarities and dissimilarities between the different organisms that you're going to put into the tree. You know, this could be a group of animals. This could be disparate members from disparate groups to get a wider, you know, looking tree. But you're basically putting it through a statistical analysis. Nowadays, we use computers. Back in the day, we had to just measure that statistical uh, significance and do the math ourselves. And you're looking for what are the, basically, this isn't quite accurate, but it'll get the idea, percentage of similarity Mm. of which ones are more similar to being closer to the same kind of organism, and then which ones are less so. And based off of that, the more similar ones should be grouped closer together on nearer branches of the tree. The less similar ones should be grouped farther. And then specifics in the way you run the system will help you find where those branches and nodes should go. And different models will have various ways for accounting for what do we know from the fossils. Yes. What do we know about how evolution works on different features? Incorporating all of those things into your model results in a hypothesis of how all these things are related to each other. Molecular phylogenetics is basically just saying that the thing you're looking at is molecular data. It, usually genetics. Usually genetics. Usually genetics. This could be the DNA. A lot of times it'll be RNA mm-hmm. you know, and things like that. You can look at different parts of it. You can look at specific genes. You can do genomes where you're looking at the entire genetic code. So there can be various forms of molecular study, but you're looking at some aspect of the molecular components of you know, inside their cells and are comparing that same thing across whatever the group of organisms you're looking at is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the 101. There you go. For more on that, uh, go to college. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> I, I now no longer know how to explain the specifics of how we... I still do not fully fathom how we go, yeah, no, 
this section of DNA. Go, how? How did you get yeah, that? Yeah. How did you know you were getting the right bit? I, I asked for it. I know this. I've taken cell biology, but like, <laughs> it's so crazy. So yeah, good question. Rachel asks, what do you guys think about the Paradox Pokemon in Pokemon Scarlet and Violet? Oh, well, thank you for asking. You did a whole, <laughs> uh, you uh, talked about this on Lucas's podcast. Yes, I did. Uh, Paradox Pokemon uh, introduced in Scarlet and Violet are supposedly extremely ancient and extremely future uh, relatives of modern Pokemon. I think the Paradox Pokemon are pretty cool. Uh, I think that the past ones are all are, are largely interestingly sort of bestial mm-hmm. and that's they're they're a neat variation on their modern counterparts. I think the future ones being all sort of robotty and metal is very cool. There's a lot of very cool designs mm-hmm. among them. I think Great Tusk is awesome. <laughs> what a cool, that's such a cool uh, looking Pokemon. I I like, like Iron Thorns is very cool. Iron Valiant is super cool. Yeah. Like, what a really neat, there's a bunch of them that are extremely cool designs. Very fun concept. I like the way that they tie into the lore. I think that they are interesting. They're weird. Mm -hmm. They're very weird in the same way that the Ultra Beasts are very weird. But that's the shtick. That's the whole, it's the whole thing. There are some of them I like less than others. Sandy Shocks uh, makes me a bit uncomfortable. (laughs) Uh, Not, uh, this is fine. They are also ridiculous and tropey. Yeah. Uh, They absolutely lean in to tropes about both the future and the past. Yep. All the past Paradox Pokemon are like Land of the Lost Caveman designs. that's exactly what I was about to say. It feels like someone asked, could you make Caveman versions? Can you make a Caveman Jigglypuff? We would like a Caveman Jigglypuff. And so therefore leans into the the, the trope of the past being savage and primal and and all those things. The future is all metal and robots. The lore is that these are past and future relatives of their modern Pokemon counterparts. There is text within the game that suggests that these are relatives from a billion years in the future or a billion years in the past. To be fair, and this is my little, my (laughs) headcanon justifications, in the game that information is coming out of like an occult magazine. Yes. That the game also treats as not reliable. Yeah, like it's like tabloid sort of... It's it's an occult magazine. It is presented as not being a reliable thing, which is what I hold on to uh, to be like, yeah, because it is utterly nonsense to suggest that this is a Jigglypuff from a billion years in the past. That's not how things work. That's a very silly thing to suggest, and it's very tropey. Now, in the grand tradition of Pokemon, what I'm sure will happen eventually is that something will come out maybe, this, maybe in December when they release the new DLC. Something will come out where they provide a source in the game that is authoritative and informative that also says those things because that's a thing that they like to do in pokemon we we said it in this and we just chose this way to put the information in there but yeah yeah, we put the information in there literally it is a thing that happens where they'll be like here's a piece of information it's a rumor it's lore no one knows if this is true and i'm like great that's a fun little mythos and then they have a game later where they're like no actually it is Actually, Arceus is just an omnipotent god being that, that can do uh, whatever it wants and yep. create avatars of itself. It's like, all right, cool. I, I, I liked that when it was lore. Anyway, I think the Paradox Pokemon are pretty cool. Yeah. I, they're pretty cool. They're tropey and weird. Yeah. Uh, and there are some of them that I don't, you know, love with all of my soul. But uh, overall, 
I think they're very fun. I think they're a very fun concept. I kind of wish they had gone a little crazier with the future ones. Yeah. That's like, Robo Pokemon's are cool. They look cool. But like, compared to their counterparts, they're very standardized. You know, they're very... They had really cool ideas for the past ones. And then they had to make future ones. It's like, why don't you guys have like floaty limbs or like rocket feet? And like, Mm -hmm. like, why aren't you hovering around or like... You know, it feels like you could have gone a little more cyberpunk with with the designs and made them a little more wacky. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, not bad. Not bad. Not bad. B plus. Yes. Yes. I agree. Phil asks, among modern groups of animals, which phylogenies are surprisingly hard to establish? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, There are some that stand out as being odd. Uh, Xenarthrins are one of those. Yeah, your sloths, anteaters, uh, armadillos. Those have often been kind of difficult to pin down exactly which group of mammals they for sure originated from mm-hmm. and what their an- you know, where their ancestors should be placed on the the tree of life with, within mammals. There are some groups that the phylogeny, like where they fit in the broader phylogeny, is difficult to figure mm-hmm. out. Turtles, very famously. Yes. And then there are some groups where it's difficult to sort out the phylogeny within the group. Yeah, just uh, among their own members. Yeah, snakes have historically had a lot of trouble with that kind of stuff. Yes, absolutely. Where it's, you have, and it often it's a mixture of either you have so many that it's a lot to keep track of, and there's, so there's a lot, every, almost every complicated scenario you can come across, you're going to, because there's thousands of them. And so you're, you're dealing with all the typical difficulties, but just magnified. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely some major groups. Those, those are some of the first ones that come to mind. Yeah. Uh, also lots of inverts. Oh yeah. Uh, plants. Yes. I assume that no one has any idea what's happening with plants. Yep. Uh, that is my non-expert assumption. Yes. I, I, I will they second are, it. So they are simply that's... magical. <laughs> A wizard did it. Yes. Uh, yeah. Inverts for sure. Like a bunch of groups of insects. Same issue with the snakes. of just like, there's so many of you. You've, you know, a lot of you can crossbreed in weird ways. And it's very complicated, your interrelationship. Next question is from Serpentine. Is there an ancient species that for your own selfish reasons or more justified ones, you are downright glad is extinct and good riddance to it? Ha! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Hmm. I feel like as a kid, I would have had a much easier time answering this because there was a whole bunch of fossil animals that as a kid, I thought looked dumb. Yeah. That like a lot of the early um, groups in the Permian, like the the, the big. Uh, 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 oh, yeah. Like the, the, the early synapses. Yeah. The ones with the big bodies and the small heads. Yeah. And the, the, the goofy stuff. As a kid, I was like, that's that's a bad design. That's <laughs> Whoever came up with that. Why'd you make even a toy of this? <laughs> Well, it's like Shringosaurus. Yeah. Uh, the newer discovered one. That's like, that's not how animals are shaped. Yeah. As a kid, a lot of those, I was like, no, nothing. I, it, Permian extinction. Good job. <laughs> good job. Way to go. Good way job. To go. You cleared the way. We got better ones after that. Sure. Good job. <laughs> Let's go with Permian stuff. You know what? Gorgonopsids. <laughs> whoa. Hey, whoa, wait. Whoa. Hey, whoa. Get them out of here. <laughs> I, I, I think I've signed too big a check. Get them out of here. <laughs> nobody is... nobody even likes Gorgonopsids. I've made a horrible mistake. We removed them and we did it better several more times. <laughs> I meant I meant the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> Tanistrophiids. Shut up. <laughs> what are you up to? 
Uh, delightful. Delightful <laughs> question. Keegan asks, is there an upper size limit for how large dromaeosaurs could get? Could there possibly be a four meter tall giant sickle clawed raptor yet undiscovered? Uh, I mean, there's nothing innate about them that limits how big they could get. Yeah. You would just see a very different proportions. Yeah, they wouldn't be shaped like a velociraptor at tyrannosaur size. Exactly. They would start becoming shaped much more like big theropods with, you know, a bit more thick and sturdy legs Mm -hmm. and... uh, Not quite as... Uh, mobile, yeah, like the little ones. And depending on what they were doing with that big sickle claw, that could mean that that is no longer useful at that size. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't for sure know what all the uses of that claw could have been. If it was indeed a useful climbing tool, well, you're not climbing at that size anymore, right? So it probably would reduce. If you're using it to hold down prey, then it could still be useful. Mm-hmm. You know, so you might still use it at that size. Uh, I would be very curious if we would see their arms get smaller. Yeah. Like, would you do the same thing that a lot of other big theropods yeah. did? And or, would your head get bigger? Yeah. Or if you are hunting in a different way because you're a dromaeosaur, and mm-hmm. if it does scale up to bigger sizes to hunt that way, then would you not shift your head size and arm size because you are hunting in a different way? You're not head-oriented in the way you take down your prey. Yeah. Yeah. Which also then would bring up the question, if we never do find one that big, why not? Did the way you live only work at a small size? Yep. Yeah, good question. Ryan asks, in the original Power Rangers, each of the five rangers had a dinosaur, only two of which were actually based on dinosaurs. If you could make all the Zords based on actual dinosaurs, which five dinos would you pick? This is a great question. This is a great question. (laughs) I saw this question uh, going through it, and I was like, Will's going to like this question. Yes. Um, The original five dinosaurs were Triceratops, Mastodon, Pterodactyl, Sabertooth Tiger, and Tyrannosaurus. Yes. Uh, two of which are misnamed. Yeah. Uh, only two of which are dinosaurs. Triceratops and Tyrannosaurus. I would keep Tyrannosaurus and Triceratops. Those are excellent yes. choices. Fantastic. I think I would switch the Mastodon for a Stegosaur and Ankylosaur. Mm. Uh, because yeah. you could still... You, you, if you have them, you can use the tail in place of the trunk. And yep. so you can still get that kind of uh, uh, shape and weapon to it. And you still have the... Because the Mastodon was always the stubby leg, doom, doom, doom. Yep. Uh, so you'd still have that tank of a body. Yeah. Uh, that'd be good. It would be really cool to have something like a Dromaeosaur, something smaller mm-hmm. that could be more fast and agile. Yep, which is what the Sabertooth often was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, I feel like that one would be a hard one to turn into a leg, which is the biggest mm, difficulty that you'd true. have. So uh, another quadruped, either have it you know, be in place of the, the pterodactyl mm-hmm. and be some, cause you'd still have, you could still have wings and feathers. Just, you, it's not yeah. f- flying. It's jumping and leaping around. Yep. Uh, absolutely. So now we need, we need a leg. I, I feel like, uh, uh, it's, it's a very different than a saber tooth, but like so, some sort of hadrosaur or something would be cool. That'd be mm-hmm. a cool inclusion. Well, and that could be something that could handle things. Yes. It can stand up on both hind legs and then actually use its arms. Well, if you made it like a parasaurolophus, you could have it like do sound blasts and stuff. Ooh. Just... Paras- yeah, yeah, parasaurolophus. Yeah. That's, yep. Yeah. You, you sold me. Yeah. 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 There you go. That's cool. That's cool. All right. Great question. Yeah. Lucia and Kyle ask, have you guys played Baldur's Gate 3 yet? And if so, what's your ideal party composition? Uh, I haven't. Me neither. Uh, I, I've 
heard from my, uh, a number of my friends have played it and loved it. And I've seen tons of clips and it looks like a lot of fun. Um, I am currently busy, uh, as we mentioned in <laughs> our um, bonus noise, deep in playing, continuing to play. It's the same file I've been playing the whole time of Fallout 4 because I got all the DLC recently. So that is currently my party composition is Nick the Detective because I <laughs> like him and he's quirky. Um, so I have not played it yet, but I am interested to. Andrew asks, how do we get to know so much information from just a tooth or teeth? Good question. Uh, often we don't. Mm-hmm. It is very common that we find a tooth in the fossil record and we go, uh, and then that's the end of it. We go croc, question uh, mark? If you find a croc tooth, if you find a fish tooth or a shark tooth or a snake tooth, a lot of those are often not very informative. Even if it's something like a mammal tooth, if it's very eroded or if it's not a good tooth, like a canine tooth is not typically very informative. So oftentimes we don't know very much. When we do, we can learn a lot from a tooth because in certain groups, mammals, for example, dinosaurs, different lineages have very distinct differences in their teeth. Yes. So you can pick up a teeth and go, oh, camel or oh, early whale or oh, this specific lineage which can tell us broadly what kind of animal we're dealing with. The shape of the teeth can also hint at dietary information. We can also do chemical analysis or microwear analysis to learn even more about diet. We can ana analyze the isotopes of a tooth and go, yeah, this was a grazer. Yes. Or this thing fed on aquatic prey based on the isotopes in the teeth. Teeth also have distinctive developmental stages mm. in many animals. So if you have a mammal, for example... And you're looking at like, all right, this is the last molar. This is the last tooth that erupts in the animal's development. And it is unworn, which means that it was fresh. That can tell you this was a newly adult animal. Yes. It had just developed its last molars uh, that it was going to get in its life. So there is a whole bunch of information we can get from the right tooth. Yeah. And the right situation of that tooth. Mm -hmm. So it's not every time that we can do that. And there are definitely sometimes with those groups that typically aren't as informative, like crocs or fish. But if it's a weird tooth, it's like, this is definitely croc, but it's flat. Mm -hmm. All right. This croc was crunching stuff. This was doing something that is not typical of crocs. That is a unique enough that we can tell it. So you can definitely sometimes get surprisingly and excitingly informative teeth from groups that usually have pretty you know, standard teeth for the group. Yep. So every now and then you'll get uh, special situations. Jared asks, as science communicators, do you deal with science denialism? For example, Young Earth, Flat Earth, Bigfoot, etc. How do you deal with this in a polite, professional manner? Uh, we absolutely do. Yes. It definitely comes up. Uh, not as often as you might think. It's not something that we're having to deal like just every day, uh, but... It's something we've both dealt with. It's something that definitely can come up and will come up again. Like, mm -hmm. we're going to deal with it again. Uh, it, for me, it often depends on the situation I'm in. Like, if I'm on the clock, then I will answer and handle it. If I'm not on the clock, I'll usually just go, cool, goodbye. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just not going to engage because it's not likely that I'm going... It's not likely the conversation we're going to have is going to be enjoyable for both of us and it's i'm not gonna change your mind here in this passing encounter so i usually will just go sure goodbye i'm i'm done mm -hmm. if i'm answering the question if i'm interacting with the person the the main thing that i always try to keep in mind and 
attempt in those situations is to address the information, not make the person feel attacked. Right. I don't want to try to correct the person because you're not saying you're wrong. Exactly. That information. Let's talk about that information. Because as soon as I say you're wrong, typically, just based on human psychology, that person's going to go on the defensive. Right. And they're going to, at, at best, just get annoyed with me. <laughs> at worst, double down on whatever it is we're talking about. Because I've now made them feel like they're being attacked and they need to protect themselves. Right. Our brains react that way. Uh, the other aspect of being polite and professional is... Keeping in mind where people are coming from. Yes. Most of the time, if you're in a classroom or you're in the museum or wherever we're working, when a person brings up something that is not in line with science or, a, or a, an opposition to a scientific topic, people generally aren't out there looking for fights. Yeah. If you're on a tour and somebody raises their hand and they're like, well, how do you know carbon dating is reliable or whatever? Odds are, and it is just generally better to assume the best of people, odds are that person didn't come here to troll you or to have a fight. They're asking a question and you can answer it in a very genuine way. Yes. It's easy for people to have misunderstandings or to be mistaken. That happens to everyone, even outside the context of science denial. Uh, If a person is being rude about something, if a person is actually trying to start a fight, that's a great opportunity to walk away. Yep. Because there's no point in engaging with that. Yeah, like, like I said, the only reason I stick around for that is when I'm being paid to. Right. If I'm on and the even job, then, yeah. If I'm at the museum and I get someone on a tour who's like tr- wants to start a fight it's about it, actively like, disrespectful. I, I'm going to escort you out of the building. Yeah, you're done. That's not an appropriate way to to engage in this building full of children. Yes. So yeah. But remember, keeping in mind that people are being curious and responding to it. Even if you suspect that they're not, mm-hmm. that they are trying to sort of needle, if they asked it in a polite, relatively respectful way, you can respond in a relatively in a, in a polite, respectful way and steer the tone of that conversation. Uh, very often, what I'll do in situations like if a conversation's happening online or something, mm-hmm. those situations I will sometimes comment, but not in response to the person, in response to the other people in the chat in the conversation just to say hey just so everyone else knows here's the actual here's the actual data here's the what the science actually says about that Mm -hmm. just so that if there was someone that this was the first time you've come across this topic (laughs) that bit of misinformation is not what you're left with right i won't engage in a conversation with the original poster because that's not what i'm there to do i'm here to just say hey just putting it out there from a scientist this is actually what we say This is actually what we think about that thing right now. Uh, And that's the other thing uh, to always keep in mind is you can't change a person's mind. You can help a person to change their mind. You can offer the opportunity. You can provide resources and information and perspective. But one of the best things in being polite and being professional is being realistic and keeping in mind what the goal is. The goal is to answer a question, address someone's concern. The goal is not to change somebody's mind. Because no matter how much information you give, that's not something you can force to happen. Yes. That is always up to them as to whether or not their mind changes or remains where it is. So you have to accept that. Next up, Kathan asks, how much do you think our big picture understanding of the history of life on Earth would change if we had a perfect fossil record? 
are there major ecosystems and groups entirely missing due to preservation bias? Might we find some non-avian dinosaurs hanging out several million years after the KPG extinction in some remote land lost to time? <laughs> uh, if we had a perfect fossil record, the honestly, the big picture wouldn't change nearly as much as you'd expect it to. No, I, I think uh, we would be closer to it than than you might expect right. the, the overall like here's what general life typified different time periods here's where the mass extinctions happened here's where major shifts it, a lot of that stuff isn't really going to shift around very much because we have enough information to be able to say that's the case we would however learn a ton about ecosystems that we our picture of individual ecosystems or smaller scale changes or the origins of various groups would be improved dramatically. Yes. There are in there are absolutely entire groups missing due to preservation bias. There are going to be entire lineages of things like dinosaurs that were missing. Yep. Let alone insects and other soft-bodied organisms that we have basically no fossil like jellies and stuff yep. where we have almost no fossil record but which were probably quite extremely common like they are today oh yeah like if just due to how early they likely showed up and how prominent they are today probably some of the most numerous species in the entire history of the planet that Uh, we don't know a lot about their history and we would learn a lot about extinction events yeah Uh, we would see when exactly things disappeared how long certain lineages lasted and others didn't when the extinction started yeah we would get a much more fine resolution picture uh which would be really helpful I think some of the areas where some of those bigger, you know, dramatic changes that one might expect would be in the groups where we have a very hazy understanding of their origins because of lack of fossils. Mm-hmm. That that could end up being where we get those fossils with this, whatever spell you cast. We get that and we go, whoa, you are related to something very different mm-hmm. because those early members were something very peculiar to what we would have expected them to be. And that could shift major groups on the family tree because we find out their origins actually started somewhere different than we had been hypothesizing. Uh, I don't think that would be happening with all of those ones that we Mm. are lacking that on. I think a bunch of them, we probably are pretty close. Yeah. But a few of them, we could absolutely go, (laughs) actually, yeah, no, turtles are way over here. (laughs) It's, we were not close because we didn't have that. So we, we had made a, a, uh, a misjudgment. Adam asks, what are your favorite hybrids? As in mules, ligers, etc. Do you know of fossil evidence of hybrid animals? Ooh, favorite hybrids. That is a good question. If you have an answer. I, I don't know right off the top of my uh, head. Pizzlies are pretty cool. Pizzlies are, that, Pizzlies are yeah. pretty cool. Uh, for fossil stuff, there was that study that we talked about a while ago that found uh, fossils of an... A hominin individual yes who was the first generation hybrid of homo sapiens and neanderthal yep yep very cool yep that's very that's cool. my favorite hybrid uh, <laughs> that's yeah. a very cool discovery i know what mine is because uh, pizzlies are good i like roller bears all right there, there you go yeah yep there it, you go just because of the name <laughs> next question ella asks how are all domestic dogs one species but have such drastically different appearances uh good question part of the answer is that species are a thing that has blurry edges. Yes. Uh, so what counts as a species will differ from case to case. It is not a singular universal strict definition. But also, dogs have been under extreme and rapid 
selective forces, which is to say that we are breeding them specifically to look very different. So we are breeding changes in them that are much more drastic than what you would get in a natural scenario under regular natural selection. So they aren't actually changing that much or diverging that much the way that species will diverge from each other, but they are accentuating distinctive features that make them look very different from each other. And we can see this whenever you get to see just stray dogs interbreed and you get mutts that kind of start to mellow out a lot of the breed's characteristics and you get a more generalized domestic dog. Mm -hmm. If we stopped our breeding of them, they would kind of centralize back to a more generic, less extreme dog. Yes. Royce asks, I was wondering about the dual bone structure of our limbs, the radius and ulna and the tibia and fibula. We have this structure in our arms and legs, but how did it get there and what do other tetrapods have? To my untrained eyes, as I flip through some images, it looks like some tetrapods have them or lack them or have them in just certain limbs. Is this convergent evolution or something else? Good question. Uh, this is not convergent. This is ancestral. The earliest, uh, our, our fishy ancestors had that same two bone structure in those fins. So the answer is to why is our set up that way? It's because that's what we had to work with. Mm-hmm. And when you do look, because a lot of limbs in tetrapods can get really extreme. So it can be hard to find the same bones. But there are great diagrams showing you the wing of a bird of a bat the fin of a whale and a human which are often the four that they tend to go with just because those are four very extreme uh tetrapod limbs almost all of them have at least some amount of those two bones some of them have reduced one of those bones down and that that is an important point for why it looks like some tetrapods don't have it Mm -hmm. in some those bones have become fused together yes or one of the bones has become heavily reduced and mostly they're just using the other one Bats are like that. Yep. yep. Uh, hoofed mammals are like that. But if you went back, if you could look through their ancestral record, you would find an ancestor of theirs that had both bones. Because mm-hmm. uh, all of us tetrapods started out with those two bones in our, our limbs. Good question. Next question is from Travis. How do you tell the difference between sedimentary rocks formed in freshwater versus marine environments? Oh, that is a good question. Uh, so there are a number of different... Uh, ways that you could distinguish freshwater and marine. Some of it, uh, there are chemical differences, mineralogical differences. The the minerals that are forming in ocean water will sometimes be different than minerals that form in freshwater. They can have differences in their isotope ratios, things like that. There are also certain sedimentary structures that you'll see in freshwater and not in ocean sediments. Like the kinds of ripples that form at the base of a riverbed, yep. you're not likely to find out in the ocean. Sometimes it's context. Uh, like the gray fossil site is within a sinkhole. Like that is a place where you get a freshwater uh, deposition. Most of the time, the most helpful evidence of freshwater versus marine is the fossils. Yep. Now you will have organisms that are distinctly marine organisms versus freshwater organisms. The sediment at the bottom of uh, these deposits will be made of different stuff, often from the organisms that are contributing materials. Like in, like limestone is something that forms in shallow ocean 
from the remains of a lot of organism things that organisms are making, yes. calcium carbonates. So there are a number of different uh, bits of evidence that you can use to distinguish these uh, depositional environments. Indeed. Jeff asks, what dinosaur had the thickest, most impenetrable armor? Uh, d- definitely an ankylosaur. Uh, which specific species is harder to say? Uh, there are there mm-hmm. are definitely a bunch that are kind of very comparable to one another and how heavily armored they are. Probably the biggest ones. Yes. Yep. And so, like, you have ankylosaurus, which has some of the very extreme armor, and I believe it has the armored eyelids. Yep. Yep. So, like, ankylosaurus potentially could be the holder of that title or a close cousin of ankylosaurus. Uh, there's not really anyone else that's competing for for that title than ankylosaurus they are just so ridiculously armored even by the 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 rest of animal history (laughs) like they are they are intense magnamophus asks in the episode on cats you said that cats aren't good candidates for domestication if humans were a bit more open-minded could we have domesticated snakes to catch mice instead what attributes make cats or snakes better choices Ah, an interesting question. So we've talked about what makes, uh, so domestication, episode 27, we talked a bunch about what makes things good candidates for the process. It might not be impossible that we could domesticate snakes with determined effort. Yes, and enough time. But I don't think that snakes would be very good candidates for domestication. A lot of snakes are not... Snakes are not very social. Mm-hmm. They're not often very tolerant of other species near them. Even if they're not bitey, they're just not, that's not a thing that they gravitate towards. Whereas cats, even though they have a reputation for being antisocial animals, they're mammals. They exhibit group behavior. They exhibit parental care. Things that are easier for us to take advantage of. Well, it's, it's a lot of things that you, it's not that it, those couldn't show up in snakes, mm-hmm. but we'd have to be hoping those traits showed up. They aren't already there for us to start artificially selecting right. like they are in most mammals in general, more so than the average snake. Mm-hmm. So it's just that is a trait more common in your mammals that we can already seize upon. Yeah. Snakes are also generally very precocial mm-hmm. when they're born, yep. uh, which means that there isn't much of an opportunity to raise them to live a certain way or to... to uh, they're ready to handle themselves. Yes. Uh, unlike mammals, which offers us a lot of opportunity to have specific influence on their early life and how they're developed. So, yeah, snakes might not be the best candidates for domestication, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I often like thinking about the the weird things we could domesticate but as you said w- we would have to be dedicated to it for potentially a long time before we saw anything that was actually yielding results because we're gonna have to hope eventually one of these generations of snakes are friendly also i don't know if this is intentional on this person's part and it's not quite spelled this way magnumophus might be the best genus name <laughs> for a snake that I've ever heard. I'm gonna. I'll pocket that one and see if I ever get to use it. That's that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Tim asks, Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who? Uh, Star Wars. That's that's that one's pretty easy. Uh, I like Star Trek. I used. I've watched a couple of different versions of it in the past in a number of the movies. Uh, I have never actually really watched Doctor Who. I have never watched Doctor Who. I have also never watched Star Trek. Yes. 
<laughs> I saw the movie with Chris, the first one, yep, yep. the 2009 or whatever with Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto. That's that's my basically my entire Star Trek uh, exposure. I've so seen... Star Wars by default. Yep. Yeah. And I, I do like Star Wars. Yes. I, I Star Wars is definitely the winner. Uh, Doctor Who I've seen. Uh, I've seen the uh, uh, Weeping Angels episodes mm-hmm. and I've seen like all of them from multiple doctors and I liked some of them with one of the doctors and I did not like some of the episodes with another doctor. So my experience with Doctor Who is very 50-50. I very much enjoyed it and very much didn't. Uh, so yeah, Star Wars. Next question is from Margaret, Susan, and Harry. You've said herbivores developed after carnivores. What did carnivores eat in the earliest times? Ah, other animals. Yes. Uh, there have always been other life forms for life forms to feed upon. Yes. That is kind of, you know, microbes do it. Microbes will eat each other. They're not technically carnivorous because that it's not meat. Mm-hmm. And now we're getting to the blurry edges of our of our definitions. They are predatory, but they're not carnivores. Yes. So yeah, the the other life is a great resource for food. There also would have been filter feeders, mm-hmm. which is a sort of a type of predation. They are eating. In that case, usually plankton, which are very, very small organisms. So carnivory and filter feeding and detritivity, uh, uh, eating detritus, eating scraps and stuff, would have been probably quite common before herbivory proper got started. And some of the the plankton and the microbes eating microbes will be eating photosynthesizing organisms. Mm -hmm. But that is different than the specialized herbivory that we were discussing in episode 173. That is still basically just eating another organism. Ben asks, how much do you think the invasive species that we've introduced will permanently affect the evolution of major groups of life on earth? Uh, I mean, they definitely already have because there are invasive species that have caused the local extinction or extradition, you know, removal extirpation. Yes of uh local species and native species right that's a pretty big effect already we have animals in places that they wouldn't be without our help and animals that are no longer in those places because of those invaders so that definitely is is huge there's definitely the potential if especially if many of these invasive species hang on in those areas to shift the format and balance of that ecosystem for the long term Mm mm-hmm but I don't think that there will be necessarily... I think if we were to be able to take a look back at this time from the future, we will definitely notice a changes happening because we will see species suddenly showing up and becoming, like, all of a sudden, rats just became way more distributed than they were almost seemingly no time before. And now they're in a position to radiate and diversify and diverge in all sorts of different ways. So if in the future there's just tons of new species of rats, they'd be like, well, that's where it started. Yes. What happened? (laughs) There was a volcanic eruption. That blasted rats That blasted rats all over the world. So like, it's definitely something we'd be able to tell depending on what the futures of these invasive organisms look like. They could then give rise to later lineages. They could continue to cause, you know, mm-hmm. local species and ones they are now competing with to disappear. So mainly the things we are already noticing with them now, just potentially on a longer time scale, if it 
if they don't then themselves get removed from the habitats they were in. Yeah. Well, and they're, they're changing the starting position. Yes. Like everything that happens in the future is built off of the status of things that are in the present. Yes. And we've changed the present. So now things are in new places. Things are going to interact with each other in interesting ways. So probably not any like big crazy things of like, oh my gosh, deserts disappeared. But like, right. yeah, you will notice a, a, <laughs> there will be a KPG-esque event in our <laughs> history where just all of a sudden a bunch of animals ended up everywhere and a bunch of animals disappeared. Yep. And it's like, boy, those those invasive animals were organized. They just, <laughs> they wiped out everybody. Yep. What happened? So it and will our, be notable. Our rats will blot out the sun. <laughs> That's horrifying. <laughs> Next up, we have Tim. Am I the only one that is bothered by Pokemon using the term evolution when the creatures are clearly doing something more akin to metamorphosis? I have brought this up to others, and they say metamorphosis is too difficult to say, and yet my five-year-old is able to say Deinonychus and Pachycephalosaurus. <laughs> uh, it, it, there's a couple of questions in here. Uh Pokemon transform from a, a, a one life stage into another, and that is indeed much more like metamorphosis than it is like biological evolution, especially for a franchise that also hints at the existence of biological evolution separate from the transformation of Charmander into Charmeleon. Yes. I think I agree and I also disagree on the metamorphosis point. I don't think metamorphosis is too hard for a kid to say if a kid is interesting in learning that term. I do think that it is too hard to be a good marketable term yes. for a thing that you want kids to easily engage with. And, and metamorphosing, it's, uh, when you when you, when the game announces that your Pokemon what? is... What? Bulbasaur is metamorphosizing. Yeah, that's, it's not quite as smooth. A little bit tricky. Part of the, the difficulty here, I, I, I would posit that the issue might not be solely that evolution is a bad term for what's happening in Pokemon, but that evolution is a bad term for evolution. Yeah. That the term evolution has many different connotations. Yes. Which is why it gets confusing that we talk about evolution as change over time in other contexts, the evolution of music and the evolution of technology and so on and so forth. And if, if I remember correctly, Darwin himself didn't like the term evolution mm -hmm. as being just the blanket term for this whole process. Uh, I actually, as far as I know, this isn't a translation thing, because to my knowledge, the word in Japanese for biological evolution is also the same as the term that is used for change over time, similar to our own. Yeah. Uh, I could be wrong about that. I don't speak Japanese. But that it isn't just, I, I, I've wondered in the past, was this just a translation thing? Yeah, that this we was just go, the right. best term we had. We'll call it evolution. Uh, yeah, it comes down to just that there's multiple uses of this particular term. Uh, I It doesn't bug me uh, partially because I don't think that it's doing a whole lot of misleading harm because yeah. it's a term that already has a bunch of other uses. And also, I don't have a good alternative suggestion. I was thinking about that. Yeah. Uh, my my suggestion to kind of find the middle ground here is to call them metamorphs. Like yeah, make up a word. Metamorph stages. And it's metamorphizing or met metamorphous. You know, some... Yeah, meta metamorphing. Metamorphing. Yes, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, metamorphing. Mm -hmm. And you, now you are hitting on that it's metamorphosis because it's... Because even still what they are doing is crazy even compared to metamorphosis. Right. But you'd get that idea that, yeah, it's just now it is a grown up version of what it was. Yeah. If it was called metamorphosis, we would 
partially still have this problem yes. that you're calling it metamorphosis, but that's not how metamorphosis actually yep. works. Yep. That's a different weird thing. So, so making up a term uh, may, may be the solution to something like uh, that. Digivolving. Digivolving. <laughs> Fantastic. How dare you? <laughs> Cap asks, do today's tetrapods trace their ancestry back to more than one of those early fishapods, or is it thought that all living tetrapods have a common ancestor that was already on the land? Good question. Because, yeah, there were a number of fish groups that were kind of ha- had some of those features that seemed like they were moving closer to activity on land. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, there's not any major evidence or, or things that really suggest that multiple of them gave rise to land lineages. Right. It seems like it was more likely a small diversity of fish gradually evolved these land dwelling habits. And then from that group of fish, groups of tetrapods showed up yes so yeah it doesn't i have not heard the idea that yet really we are a group of lineages but that probably yet one species within that group of fish gave rise to tetrapoda so yeah all right our next question is two from tim and jessica who asked similar things tim said what do you feel is the most underrated time period in earth's history Jessica asked, in your opinion, what time periods or animals are interesting or interesting facts get left out of documentaries? What would you like to see included in future series? Uh, that's a fun question and a fun way to frame it. Um, it's it's very difficult because thinking about it in terms of sort of popular representation and documentaries and stuff, most of it gets left out. Yep. Our documentaries are very homogenous. Yes. Uh, they're very filled with dinosaurs and stuff. I even, even when they take a tour through, they often hit yes. on very similar points. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of really cool Paleozoic stuff that doesn't get focused on very much. Uh, I think it'd be really cool to see paleo documentaries specifically focused on invertebrates. Mm-hmm. Like a trilobite documentary would be really cool. Insects over time would be really cool. Just marine ecosystems through all through all time would be cool starting but actually spending time throughout the paleozoic and not just racing to the mesozoic yes not just be lip service to "Ah, and trilobites and cephalopods and stuff but then mosasaurs cool spending some time in the paleozoic would be really cool if we're stuck with doing vertebrate stuff the triassic would be a really cool place agreed to focus on some of those weird reptiles that lived back then uh, also, uh, for Allie's benefit, because I know she's listening out mm-hmm. there, a whole paleo documentary on plants yep. and the biomes that they formed, like major, a, a paleo documentary that followed major innovations in plants, yeah, like the origins of photosynthesis and what that did for ecosystems and the origins of forests and what that did for ecosystems and the rise of angiosperms and the rise of grasslands. That would be a really cool framing for a paleo documentary that you then could throw in all the exciting mammals and reptiles and stuff. But the focus is on these major changes in plant life. Yeah, no, that would be pretty awesome. Yeah, so do that. (laughs) Next question is from Piero, who asks, what is your honest opinion of the Avatar movies and the Pandoran fauna? Ooh, Uh, I I do enjoy the Avatar movies. Uh, They are very pretty. They are very fun action films and they have uh, some cool creatures 
I think they are very high budget, very standard sci-fi action films. Mm -hmm. Like the story, the characters, all I've seen versions of this in a number of other like that. None of them feel just so new and unique to me. Uh, They are just done at a level of budget that none of the others could even potentially reach. Right. That's the part where you're breaking new ground. Yes. And doing something exciting and and, and distinctly different. Yep, yep. Uh, As far as the fauna, I both really like some aspects of how it's set up and kind of, kind of meh about others. I like that a lot of the organisms, a lot of the animals that they put in, at least in the first one for sure, mm-hmm. have very notable similarities in their anatomy that gives them an alien ancestry. You know, that they all have breathing out of their chest, and most of them have four eyes, and most of them have six limbs, and that they all have a similar, like tetrapods, general base anatomy that they've all adapted off from. Mm-hmm. They lose a ton of points by the way the Navi are breaking all those rules. <laughs> they lose so many points in my They book. were artificially selected to look like attractive humans. Yes, uh, and I know who artificially selected them. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was a big disappointment on my part. Uh, the second one is similar cool things with some of the ocean life, but also I both think it's neat what they did with the water Navi of making them more aquatic, but mm-hmm. also like, no, that's not how that works. <laughs> That's not how communities that we know interact with each other would have evolved that divergently of like, no, they absolutely. You would still be interbreeding and homogenizing more. you wouldn't be fish people. <laughs> you I, So it's, it's neat. It, it is more effort into making the environment seem like an environment than most of these kinds of movies put in. And I think some of it's cool and other parts are like, yeah, okay. You made an alien shark and an alien whale. That's fun, but it's also just an alien shark and an alien whale. Yeah. So yeah, I I am less impressed than often they get discussed. uh, But I I by no means am like, ugh. Uh, Only the Navi do I have a bit of that. (laughs) (laughs) The least interesting fauna. Where are your extra arms? Where are your extra (laughs) eyes? Why do you have a nose? (laughs) Next question, Isopod asks, why are tree stems brown? Wouldn't it be good if it could photosynthesize too? This is a great question. I have thoughts about why this, what what the answer to this question is. But instead of me rambling, <laughs> I'm going to tell you what Allie told me when I asked her. <laughs> Allie says, specifying tree is key here because some plants like cacti and euphorbs, your, uh, the, which are the cactus lookalikes that we have uh, in the Eastern Hemisphere, those plants do have green stems for photosynthesis. Uh, Cacti are green. Yes. But they have reduced their leaves to spines and have no other place to photosynthesize. It's important to keep in mind that most trees are found in relatively closed environments, meaning there are a lot of other trees near each other, shading each other out. Trees are tree-shaped to maximize photosynthesis in an environment full of other trees. Yeah, it's competition. Other trees have put their leaves high up to be closer to the sun. If a tree didn't have leaves and used its bark instead, it would get shaded out by other trees. Yeah. This is that that way that they've evolved to uh, uh, compete against each other. Cool. Plus, outer bark is dead, which would make it impossible to control the opening and closing of stomata. That, and that's the other, you know, the, the outer layer of bark on a tree is dead tissue. Yes. The inside stuff is what's alive. To be honest, says Allie, this feels like a road not taken in plant evolution. 
early plants didn't have leaves, so we could have ended up with trees that are basically big sticks. <laughs> yeah, that's that sounds like such an disconcerting alien planet to land on. Big sticks, it's just just these pillars going up. <laughs> and it's like what is the weird? What are you do, what are you what are you doing? Eating. <laughs> cool. Next question is from Paul, who asks. How has studying and learning about early life and evolution affected how you live your own life? Ooh, it definitely has. And I think what I would say the biggest effect it's had on me is it's given me a, a sense of perspective mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, an appreciation for life because I found it fascinating. So it was just another cool thing about life because I already was an, an animal kid and a, a dinosaur kid. But learning about how they change was another interesting tidbit, but it introduced me truly to the concepts of deep time and how much can happen and how much time has happened on our planet. Mm -hmm. And that like, yeah, given enough time, there's very little that is impossible to to have the time to occur. And and just that that sense of the scale of things, which was only bolstered when I got into space (laughs) later on and having that just sense of like yeah the concept of infinity which there hasn't been an infinite amount of time on earth but there's been so much of it that to many of us like to a human lifespan might as well be that four and a half billion years compared to one human life is an unimaginable amount of time so it it gave that perspective and that just sense of scale and i kind of just put Earth and our day-to-day lives a little bit into Mm -hmm. a a, a comparison of, okay, not that this is irrelevant, but it also is this compared to all of that. Yeah. So I I definitely, there's been moments before when I've had tough moments in life, like I might fail this class. I go, but really, how bad is that? (laughs) Like in the grand scheme of things, that's uh, how bad is this? I think for me, uh, some of it is I, the the appreciation of knowing how things got here and yeah. where they came from. That there is a reason behind all the things. That there there is a story that goes back to culminate in what we have now. Yes. In terms of general perspective, the other thing that I would add to that is understanding the evolutionary history of our planet gives a provides me with a great sense of interconnectedness. Yeah. That everything on the planet is closely tied together, both by the ways that ecosystems work, the way that everything on the planet can have some impact on the other things around them, but also on the fact that we are all literally related to each other. Yes. Everything on, it's that sort of taking advantage of that sort of in-group feeling that we uh, uh, humans are so very good at that sense of like, oh, this is my family, and so I care about my family. This is my sports team and all of our fans, and I care about them because we are we are the in-group. This is my country and all of my country people, and I care about them because this is my in-group. Every living thing on the planet is part of the in-group. We are all family. And that's a really cool perspective to to get to have. Well, it's, when, you, when you step out and look at it that way, it kind of makes all the differences seem insignificant compared to the level of similarity mm-hmm. and what we, the amount of things we have in common dwarfs the amount of things we don't. Yes. And it makes me think of astronauts talking about seeing earth from orbit for the first time. Yes. It's, it's seeing the present from deep yes. time. That, that 
fundamentally changed the way they saw the world, that you can't see the planet with your own eyes and come back and still get tied up in the same petty differences. Yeah. Because we are truly one, one Earth. So, yeah. Next question is from Delano. Have you guys tried Metazoa? And if so, what do you think? I find it has a pretty strong mammal bias, but is still fun and educational. Yeah, I have. I've played around with Metazoa a bit. Uh, this is a, it's kind of like Wordle. Yep. Uh, but you're finding the mystery animal by getting better and better information about where it fits on the family tree of life. Very cool concept. Very fun. I think that it is really cool and educational. I think it's mm-hmm. a really fun, engaging thing. So mammal biased. Yeah. So very vertebrate and mammal biased. I don't know if it's still something that is like in progress. I don't know if it's being updated regularly. I'd love to see it expand in the future to include more invertebrates and non-mammals and other stuff. I think I'm sure it's going to be limited based on what your audience is going to be familiar with because it's a guessing game. Uh, at the end of the day. But I think it's super cool. Uh, people, if you have not tried out Metazoa, uh, give it a shot. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I had fun the the few times I gave it a try, so it is enjoyable. Next up, Jonathan asks, Occasionally, David Snake is mentioned on the podcast. Why do we never hear about Bob, Will's saltwater crocodile who lives in the bathroom? <laughs> uh, You're not supposed to tell people about your saltwater crocodile who lives in the bathroom. Yeah, for legal reasons. For legal reasons. Uh, the <laughs> Bob's doing just fine, but he's very shy and requests not to be brought up on the podcast. And so that's... Bob's not actually his real name. Yeah, no, yeah. In... Bob, Bob maintains intentionally a very low yes. social media presence. Yes. <laughs> for respect to the Bob's preferences. To Bob and his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, some celebrities like to be sort of out and visible some (laughs) like to sort of keep their private lives to themselves so that people aren't you know bugging them yeah can you imagine the paparazzi it's just a big old stage fright that's that's what's at the core of it he's yeah he's a big guy but he's shy yes uh it's you know it's not for everybody his crocodile tears are real the spot Next up, Josh and Maria ask, what's the evolutionary deal with moray eels and their pharyngeal jaws? Uh, Fun question. So moray eels very famously have an inside set of jaws. Yep. So they have their regular mouth and then inside the throat, there is a second set of jaws that they will use. They'll use both in concert. Yes. They'll bite a thing and then those jaws can move forward and grab at it and that helps them to process and move food yeah basically instead of doing the thing that like you'll see dogs do where they bite something and then they have to kind of rebite it to get it further in the mouth right or throw it yeah you know up to get gravity working for them the moray eel can just bite something and then the inner jaws come and bite it and they let go with the first set the outer set and it just pulls it down the throat so you will just watch them holding a fish and then they will let go and you'll watch the fish just disappear down their throat Yep. And if you look very carefully, sometimes you can see a little mouth. Because <laughs> they've got a it. little alien mouth in there. <laughs> uh, those jaws, they are called pharyngeal jaws. Uh, they are derived from the same ancestral structure as our jaws are. That parts of the pharynx, the, the pharyngeal arches. Moray eels are not the only fish that have a second set of jaws like mm-hmm. that. There are others who use uh, jaws like that. Yeah, it's basically their lineage 
did it twice. Yes. <laughs> that it's the same basic. I don't know a lot of details about if there are notable differences, mm-hmm. but on the broad scale, it's the same basic evolutionary path that gave rise to regular jaws, just in also another set of pharyngeal arches developed into jaws. Which is pretty crazy. Angela asks, is there a good reason why living, moving things are mostly symmetrical? Uh, That is a very good question. Yeah, typically, so symmetry being same on the left and right Mm -hmm. is pretty common among most of your fish, most of your insects, most of your vertebrates. Crustaceans. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be be clear, that's bilateral symmetry. Yes. Same in the... There are other forms of symmetry. Exactly. Radial symmetry and pentameral symmetry. That's the, the main answer to it is that we came from bilaterally symmetrical ancestors. Yes. That our ancestors were the same on the left and right. So that's our base form to work from. Mm-hmm. So we are descended from symmetrical organisms. There are still, though, plenty of asymmetrical members that do give up that, like flatfish that mm-hmm. are on one side and their face is sideways. And so there are plenty that have gotten asymmetrical as time has gone on, but the main answer is that's what our ancestry was and that it seems to work out just fine for what we're doing. One of the benefits of having bilateral symmetry is having a left and right also allows you to have a front and a back. Yes. Like one of the things that you see in all uh, across these groups of bilaterally symmetric animals is not only are they symmetrical on left and right, they have a head and a tail end. Yes. And if you're moving around... Having a front, the direction that you're moving, to put the important stuff up front, you put propulsion in the back, and you put interaction and sensory structures and feeding structures up front. That is a very effective setup for a body to be. And I think that's probably the main advantage for that is that you can prioritize. Mm-hmm. If you're a sea star, you could be moving in any direction at any time. So you need to have sensory or- the same sensory organs on each arm in all directions, so you have to kind of spread your bets. Mm-hmm. If you're only going forward most of the time, you can put all the stuff that helps you go forward in the front and back yes. and focus. As for why things aren't asymmetrical more often, part of that might just be efficiency, yeah. that it, it's harder to do. Also, it is way easier developmentally yes. to be symmetrical because then during development, you're just mostly doing the same thing on both sides. Uh, you have to. You only have to use half the processing power, yep. as it were. There's a lot of intentional asymmetry mm-hmm. in in life. Our organs, for example, uh, internally are not symmetrical yeah. with each other. We don't have a stomach that is just in the center and the same on both sides. Yes, and our intestines loops back and forth. But generally, broadly speaking, symmetry is easier to do. Yeah. Even in groups where you see it asymmetry, like fiddler crabs, the females are symmetrical. Only the males have the one big claw. Yes. Females have two normal claws, so to speak, that they use to be able to feed doubly as fast. So, yeah. Good question. Well, it's getting late. It is a bit late. This feels like a big, long episode. Uh, This has been a big one. Let's do one more. Yeah. Let's wrap it up. What do we got Our last question of the Q&A 2023 is from Joe, who says, what are you both reading, watching, or playing these days? Oh, that's a delightful personal question. And if you're not a patron, you don't get to hear us talk about these on uh, Bonus Noise. Yep. So this is is a great place to put it. 
I have been reading a lot of X-Men comics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I have a subscription to Marvel uh, Unlimited, uh, who are not sponsors of the podcast, but I do use them. And so yep. I'm mentioning them here. Other things are available. <laughs> um, I've been reading tons of X-Men comics. I've been working my way through the recent major events. Uh, there was there was Dawn of X and there was Reign of X. And then I had to stop because I had started catching up. Yes. So now I'm working my way through Destiny of X. And very recently I've been reading through the Axe event. It's been a whole bunch of delightful mutant nonsense. Uh, and I've really, I've, I've been I've having a grand old time uh, reading a bunch of X-Men comics. Yeah. I played, I'm not playing it currently. I played Super Mario Brothers Wonder, which was delightful. It looked like a lot uh, of fun. Very much enjoyed that game. Uh, and soon I will be playing uh, the new Pokemon DLC, uh, which is, I will uh, also enjoy that, I'm sure. <laughs> As you always do. Uh, I've been playing lots of games. Uh, I played through the new Spider-Man uh, with all my brothers, so I had to just rush through the story as fast as I could during Thanksgiving uh, while we were both home. And now I am currently playing all the DLC that I bought. Not new DLC, just it went on sale for Fallout 4. Mm-hmm. And that game is one of my favorites because it's just uh, scratches all of my neurodivergent itches. <laughs> And soon I plan to be playing the DLC that'll be coming out for God of War Ragnarok, which I am very excited for. Valhalla, I have no clue. I don't know any other information. I'm yep. ready for it. <laughs> uh, I haven't been reading anything. I I just started watching the Monarch, uh, uh, the Legacy Godzilla t- uh, Apple Plus series. Uh, and I've only watched the first episode, so I don't have any opinions yet. Yeah. Uh, and other than that, I watched Godzilla minus one, which we talked about earlier, which was very good. And part of the reason I was like, yeah, I should watch that Godzilla show. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, we are. We are engaging in our various uh, fictional fun stuff. And soon I will be watching lots of Christmas movies because we're about to be done with all the bulk of uh, podcast work. And so I can just relax and play video games. And when I'm not playing video games, watch Christmas movies. Yes, this uh, recording is one of the last major things that we have to do before we are free to go off uh, and enjoy a bit of a break over the holiday season. The end of the year Q&A is always a very interesting process because it's the last thing that is released in the year. It's one of the last things that we end up recording. It is a big extravaganza of recording and answering questions and audience engagement and interaction, which we really enjoy doing. It also always happens on a bit of a time crunch. Yes. There is always, there's always, well, we got to get it out of the way so that there's time to, we have to record it, we have to edit it, but then also we have other stuff that we're all going to, we're going to be going and doing. Yeah, I got to go open presents. Right. <laughs> As usual, we did not get to every question that was submitted to us. Apologies if we did not get to your question. Feel free to submit your question in the form of a topic request. Yes. Or if you're a patron, as a patron question. Or we do these Q&As every year. We also do live streams uh, Mm -hmm. every now and then, which are other times to engage with us. We also have a Discord server. And we do Q&As on there every month. We do Q&As on there. There are lots of ways for you to interact with us. A huge thank you to everybody who submits questions for the end of the year Q&A. We always appreciate it. Also, uh, to everybody who leaves delightful, lovely comments in addition to their questions. We do read all of those. We do greatly appreciate uh, hearing your perspectives. Some people are just saying 
thank you and I like the podcast. Some people are specifying. Some people give us little stories or little insights into who they are. And that's lovely for us to get to, yeah. to hear and get to know who it is in our audience. 2023 has been a year again. Yep. Like other years. Uh, a lot of great stuff happened in 2023. We did a lot of really cool. We did our second Croc and Snake Month. We did our first spooky live stream. We did our first cute E episode ever. It was good. We had a bunch of fun uh, listeners. We hope that you've been enjoying the podcast over the course of this year. We will be back in 2024 with the usual lineup of stuff. Don't forget that at the end of January, we will be having our anniversary live stream. We're going to be celebrating seven years of the podcast. Here at the end of a year uh, is always a lovely time for us to say, hey, thanks, everybody. Yeah. Not just for all these questions, but just in general. <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks for sending in requests. Thanks for making comments uh, on our stuff. Thanks for joining us on Patreon and supporting us on Patreon. Uh, huge thanks to all of our patrons. Thanks to everybody who sends us emails and messages uh, wherever we get them. Even if you're just liking our posts on Facebook or Instagram, uh, we really appreciate that. Everyone who leaves us reviews mm -hmm. on podcasting apps or Apple or whatever, we greatly appreciate those people who spread the word. Uh, we're always hearing about people who are like, ah, I've gotten my friends or I got my coworkers listening or I heard about you because of coworkers. Yes. That's awesome. Yes. Uh, we really, really appreciate people who are uh, sharing what we do. Uh, with others in their lives yeah so thank you all so 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 much as thanks for all of your kind engagement we will continue to do the podcast yes uh it is our tradition here at the common descent podcast to ramble uh and sometimes the end of the year q a is just the the perfect opportunity for extensive rambling but we've been recording for several hours yep uh we do we'd love we don't have to do this in one go. No. Uh, I mean, we are a little bit of a time crunch, yes. so there's not a whole lot of... Um, but it's kind of fun to do it all oh, in yeah, one go. Oh, yeah, it's marathon. It's really, it's really something uh, to be able to just go through all the questions uh, and have a grand all-time answering as many of them as we can before uh, we start to lose steam. I am out of steam. Yeah, it, it has been, been a lot. <laughs> almost exactly five and a half hours. So... <laughs> so we'll see how long this uh, recording ends up yeah. being. I feel pretty confident that this is going to be our longest end of the year Q&A. Yep. Sure feels that yep, way. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, a lot of good questions. It's, this is all your all's fault. This is all... <laughs> thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, everybody, for liking us and listening to our stuff and encouraging us to make content that we like. Look what you did. Look what you did nah. who's gonna who's gonna tell bob <laughs> how is he gonna handle this <laughs> happy new year uh thank you once again sign off phrase bye bye thanks for listening to the common descent podcast you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.